Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Medicare for all, the public option, Medicaid, Obamacare, Hillary Care. With the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primaries only weeks away, Democrats will continue to debate how health care and health insurance is administered in this country. Unfortunately, many of us, including me, don't know what all these terms mean. Here to give us a basic primer on the healthcare debate is Professor Simon F. Hader, whose recent piece in the conversation is entitled Universal Coverage, Single Payer, Medicare for All, What Does It All Mean for You? He joins us today from State College, Pennsylvania, where he teaches public policy at Penn State. Thank you, Professor, for joining us. Well, before we turn to America, let's talk about other countries. Great Britain has had the NHS since the end of World War II. Some say it's the closest thing to a national religion over there. How would you define the NHS? How does the NHS measure up against, say, Medicare? The uh, NHS or in the United Kingdom is something that a lot of advocates on the progressive side in this country always point towards. Uh, it's a very unique system where both the financing and the provision of health care is largely uh, provided through government. That means uh, all the services are basically financed through taxes and through government spending. And then the actual medical providers, the doctors and nurses and hospitals, they're also owned and operated by the government to a large extent on uh, they're somewhat supplemented sometimes to private care and out-of-pocket spending, but the vast majority of providers and spending is, is confined to government expenditures. So you go to a hospital. The hospital itself is owned and operated by the government. That's correct. Everyone's employed by the government. Everything is owned by the government. As I mentioned, there's a few exceptions. There's some private private uh, pay situations on the side, but the vast, vast majority of items are, are run directly by the government. You're a doctor. You're a nurse. Your government employee. Doctors and nurses, everyone's employed by the government. It's a situation that's quite similar to, uh, we might talk about this later here, the Veterans Administration in our country, but for everyone, uh, and everyone is eligible. So if I get sick in Great Britain and I go to a hospital, do I get a bill? Um. Even if the interesting thing is this applies to all, obviously, nationals and people living in, the, in Great Britain, but even if you are, this always surprises Americans when they're abroad, even if you uh, are in need of services and you're there visiting, uh, you will be treated for very, very low cost and often free. Okay. And would that be called single payer? Uh, it is a single-payer system. Uh, single-payer system are usually defined as those where there's one uh, overwhelming payer. Usually that would be government because there's no other entity that has the financial resources to do this. Uh, but it's also uh, really a, a socialized medicine system. And, and socialized medicine really means that the means of production, and in this case the means for pro providing medical services, are also owned. So it's a socialized approach where uh, you have a single-payer 
financing system that's combined uh, with a socialized medicine approach. And there, except for limited limited exposure, most residents of Great Britain are not dealing with a health insurance company. No, by and large, not. There are some supplemental situations, but by and large, uh, everything is run through the government. There's nothing else going on. And when a doctor decides a certain operation is necessary, is that cleared by some government bureaucrat or is it cleared by a panel of medical experts? Uh, so that's an, that's a very very good question. Uh, the United Kingdom has been very very good at looking at medical expertise and medical data to make decisions about what medical procedures and what prescriptions should be covered uh, uh, and how fast they should be covered. And so the United uh, Kingdom and the National Health Service has heavily invested in using what we call evidence based medicine uh, to determine which medical procedures, what prescription drugs are actually worth investing in. And which ones actually make you better and which ones make you worse uh, and or do not help you at all. And so a lot of decision making uh, is driven in the United Kingdom by those evidence based uh, decisions. So these government bureaucrats that you would be dealing with are, in fact, also medical experts. Yes, I think you could largely say that. Obviously, it's a combination. They're employed by government. So, you know, they are, in essence, government bureaucrats, but they uh, have the knowledge of, of medical expertise. And, and, and they're not trying to turn a profit. Right. They're trying. What's to, that? They're not trying to turn a profit for the government. No, there's no inherent. The, uh, the doctors really don't. Uh, in, uh, directly profit from providing medical care. They are usually on a salaried basis. They might uh, get some bonuses for keeping their patients healthy uh, above what would be expected. And so they're able, there's some financial incentive, uh, but the financial incentive is really driven to provide good medical care uh, to the patient. Is there billing fraud? Is it, are the doctors and the hospitals financially incentivized to overprescribe medications, perform surgeries that are unnecessary in order to fill their coffers. I think the very opposite is, is is the case here because they're salaried and they're not paid on a you know operative basis or how many procedures they perform or how much they prescribe. There's a strong incentive to really focus on what is truly necessary and what has been shown by evidence to improve uh, patient outcomes. Well, we're told in the United States that when you take the profit motive out of medicine, we don't get the best and the brightest. What does a doctor earn in Great Britain and what what are the outcomes? What's the life expectancy, roughly speaking, in Great Britain versus the United States? So if you compare the United States and there's just some recent data that kind of shows uh, where we stand is that out of the advanced industrial nations, you can compare us to either Great Britain, you can compare us to Germany, you can compare us to France, Japan. We're, we're all lacking, and um, we're, we're actually seeing some regression in terms of, of life expectancy for the first time, really, over the last couple of years in our country, whereas the other countries are still moving in, in, in a better direction. So the profit motive, does that discourage? If, if what, what does a doctor make in Great Britain? Are they poor? Uh, this is America, so we would assume that if doctors work for the government, they have to have five other jobs that they can't live on a government salary. Are they paupers so, in Great Britain, doctors? So, 
You know, I, I, I've never met a doctor anywhere in the world who thinks they're, uh, you know, adequately paid. Um, but, right. you know, pay, they certainly make less money in Great Britain as a doctor um, than you make in the United States uh, because there are very few limits on how much money you can make as a doctor in the United States to a large degree, um, which allows the United States also to attract a lot of doctors from other countries to come here. But we don't um, see too many doctors with British accents in America, do we? Sorry? We don't see many doctors with British accents in the United States. Yeah, They're that, not coming true. here for the money, are they? No, that's certainly correct. A lot of you know British doctors, they are because they're on a salaried basis. They have a certain set of income. They don't have to worry about working long hours. Uh, they, I think, uh, buy into the system. There's there's a large amount of public support for the system among conservative and liberals in the United Kingdom, uh, and so there's there's limited incentive. Uh, to obviously leave the country and go to a system. So if you're a doctor in Great Britain, because we're limited for time here, and I want to get to Canada and then the United States, if you're a doctor in Great Britain, how much of your time is spent going over bills and trying to get reimbursed? Yeah, certainly a lot less than the United States. In the yeah. United States, we're estimating that about 25% of of our the money we spend on medical care goes into administrative stuff, mostly billing, eligibility, and all those kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's virtually eliminated in the United Kingdom. Of course, there's some bureaucratic work that's associated, you know, with, you know, putting stuff into medical records and, you know, scheduling surgeries and all those kind of things. But very, very limited time. Uh, most okay. of it is really focused on you know, focusing on patient care. Yes, we have limited time, too. So let's talk about the Canadian plan. I've had Canadians mm -hmm. tell me they would take arms against any group who try to take away their health care. Mm -hmm. What is the Canadian health care system like versus the British health care system? Is it single payer? Is the government reimbursing the doctors in the hospitals or does health insurance play any role in the Canadian health care system? It's it's a little bit different, uh, certainly, than the British system. It's it's provincial based, or what would, would we call state? So it's not one large single payer across the country. Mm -hmm. uh, they have um, basically a single payer system that's based on a state or provincial level. Uh, there's certainly some uh, things that are not covered. Uh, by what the Canadians ironically also call Medicare. We have a Medicare system, obviously, in the United States as well. Uh, so a lot of Canadians have some supplemental coverage. They either get that through their employer or they get it on their own. Uh, so there's certainly a role for private payers. But it's a show. minor role. It's a minor role. It's a supplemental role. Uh, you could basically think about it as the vast majority of things are covered uh, by the government-run or state government-run system, uh, but there's certain supplemental things uh, that leaves room for private companies. For, for uh, probably pharmaceutical stuff or maybe eyeglasses and, and dental. But when it yeah, comes to... I'm sorry? Yes, yeah, certainly so, those kind of things. But if you're a Canadian and you're on the margins financially, you come down with cancer, you're going to get treated. Yes, I think you can say that. I think uh, there's overall, no matter what country you're in, uh, you're going to do somewhat better uh, if you have resources, if you're well-educated, if you have financial resources, than if you're very, very poor. But the the gap that you're seeing in the United States between rich and poor in terms of health outcomes and access to healthcare services is much, much more narrow in other countries. Are there any people who go bankrupt in Canada or Great Britain after getting a cancer diagnosis 
No, um, there may be a very, very small number in Canada, for example, because there's a supplemental cost issue, but that number has to be minuscule. Uh, I don't want to say there's none because it's a very blanket statement, but there are certainly none in the United Kingdom. There's certainly none in other European countries. Uh, rich Canadians, I'm told, will often come to New York City or Los Angeles mm -hmm. to be treated. Mm -hmm. Is that just because they have money they want to spend? Or is there empirical evidence to suggest that if you're part of the richest 1%, you're going to get better, better health care in the United States than you would in, say, Great Britain or well, that's a, Canada? No, that's a very good question. Uh, I, I think certainly in the United States, uh, we have some of... You know, at the very top, some of the very best medical providers in the country, in the world. And so there's certain attraction if you if money is not an issue for you to come to those, you know, top ranked uh, medical hospitals or, or providers. Uh, I think that would, might be one of the attraction. The other attraction is sometimes uh, because it is a system that uses evidence to prioritize care sometimes. And this is obviously the uh, the, the ghost that's been brought up by a lot of uh, conservatives in the United States is that sometimes you have to wait for services uh, if they're not if there's not an immediate need to be treated and some of the richer Canadians uh, don't really want to wait and uh, they might be able to pass the line if you will uh, and, and come to the United States you know, because money may not be an issue for them and get treated quickly, quickly or more quickly for, yeah. for an acute care. When Senator Rand Paul was attacked by his neighbor, he needed a hernia mesh and he had the treatment in Canada, not the United States, even though he's opposed to the Canadian health care system. I can remember the shot of Iran coming to the United States to get treated for cancer but we're hearing mm -hmm. of fewer and fewer billionaires and world leaders coming to the United States for world-class health care. There are very few incidents of world leaders, oligarchs coming to the United States for our putative world-class health care. Are there any countries, any first world nations that rely on private, not public health insurance companies, but private health insurance companies. Are there any countries that rely on private health insurance companies, but are still able to provide universal coverage? Is there any first world country that has some kind of private public cooperation mm -hmm. with for profit health insurance companies? Certainly there, there are some. Um, I think the most prominent exa example uh, that, that is in, in a lot of ways similar to what we have in the United States but addresses some of the shortcomings is the German system, uh, which exclusively relies on private companies, uh, Cygnus funds, as people call them, uh, to provide insurance coverage for individuals. They and these are for-profit health insurance companies? They're not for-profit. They're all non-profit. They're non-profit health insurance companies mm -hmm. that are heavily regulated by the German government. That's true. Okay. Uh, there's, they're regulated in terms of the benefits they have to provide. They're uh, in terms of the networks they have to provide. And so it's really uh, just a way to outsource the administration of the services uh, to private companies that are then set up to compete with each other uh, through consumer service and, and those kind of things. Let's turn to the United States hospitals. Hospitals. Are most hospitals for-profit or are they non-profit? 
In the United States, the majority of hospitals is still nonprofit. There's a small number of hospitals that are owned by government directly. Uh, there is a, certainly a number of hospitals that are run by for-profit entities, um, but the vast majority are still uh, run by nonprofits in this country. Although there's some debate uh, whether, in terms of patient access and some other measures, whether there's much of a difference between nonprofit and for-profit. And yet, so many of the billing problems, so many of the expenses that are jacked up come from hospitals, nonprofit that's, hospitals. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I'm in, I'm in a university. We have a university hospital. They're certainly, you know, in a way government-owned, although, you know, they're owned by the university. Uh, and, and some of the most egregious things that we've seen are coming from university medical centers that are operated by, you know, state systems. University of Virginia is one of those examples that uh, was recently prominent by, you know, collecting or seeking to collect large payments from, from uh, patients. You're talking about Penn State. Mm-hmm. And that's... No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And, and the billing fraud that we see in nonprofit hospitals comes from for-profit doctors gaming the system or administrators working for a nonprofit hospital earning several million dollars a year and passing off construction jobs to their friends. It's kind of like a casino in Las Vegas. The money isn't in owning the casino. The money is in the building of the casino and adding on to the casino and making deals with the people who do the dry cleaning and and who provide the food and the unions. But the, the casino itself, like a hospital, is almost nonprofit. It's what you do underneath the shell. Is that a fair analogy? You know, certainly, you know, I, I know for, for us here at Penn State, outside the, the athletic program, the highest paid employees are certainly uh, the surgeons and medical providers in our medical center. Um, you, you're correct, uh, I think, in a lot of ways that um, the structure as it's set up really incentivizes physicians to seek uh, large reimbursements, large profits, and because we have a system that's really a mish, mi- mi- mixture of nonprofit and for-profit entities, the overwhelming incentives are, are, are steered towards profit, even if you're technically a nonprofit institution. Right, right. There are a lot of people who get rich off of 501c3s, like the NRA. A lot of these nonprofit organizations are are gold mines, if you know how to work the system. So let's go over the terms. Again, I we have limited time. Let's start with the Veterans Administration. What is the VA? Would that be single payer? The VA uh, is is really uh, at the at the most progressive, if you will, liberal spectrum in in our country. It very much resembles what we have uh, in the United Kingdom. It's an entity that provides medical services uh, uh, to uh, qualified veterans, not to every veteran. But Are there any health veterans. insurance companies involved in the VA? No, uh, none at all. Uh, all the services, the hospitals, the clinics uh, are, are owned by the federal government. These are uh, government bureaucrats, the doctors, the nurses, the therapists, all government bureaucrats. They're all government bureaucrats, all on salary. By so the, if you're by a veteran, the you go into the VA and you have to be treated for heart disease. Mm-hmm. Do you get a bill? Uh, you to get a bill. You don't get um, a bill. If you're trying to billing, if you have additional insurance, they might try to collect from the insurance company, but you are not going to get a personal bill. And the doctors are on salary. Doctors are on salary. Yes, Do they correct. have to call a government bureaucrat at the VA to authorize 
surgery or can the doctors pretty much do what they think is best? They have to follow, obviously, medical guidelines. That I think the VA uh, sometimes gets a bad reputation, but it's really his over the last decades or so really, really focused on providing the care that's uh, following the evidence that we have, what helps patients. And so uh, if, if there's some guidelines that instructs or, or guides doctors to make certain decisions, but certainly the, the medical provider is the, is the person that has the final decision-making authority there. There have been rumblings from the GOP to privatize the VA, turn it over to private health insurance companies, because that would be more efficient. What is the general consensus from our veterans? Would they prefer the VA to stay the way it is, or would they prefer the alleged efficiency of a health insurance company? There's some outliers. I think everybody by now has heard, you know, some of the bad things that have gone on at some VA medical centers. A lot of the problems that we have with the Veterans Administration is that it's chronically underfunded and has to deal with a large influx of veterans with limited resources. Uh, if you ask most of the veterans, the vast majority, very happy with the care they receive. Mm -hmm. uh, great concerns about pushing veterans into the private market because a lot of the conditions the veterans face, PTSD, for example, coming back from the war, wars in the Middle East, uh, are not really well dealt with in the private sector. And so there's, I think, some concerns uh, among the vast majority of veterans what could happen uh, if we start. So there's a brotherhood and a sisterhood in the VA where a lot of the soldiers come back and work with other soldiers and if you were to turn it over to private health insurance companies, they would just be beans and they wouldn't be treated necessarily by, by fellow soldiers. That would be inefficient. Yeah. OK, that would be single payer. That's the VA. And the VA is a success story, despite all the oh. horror stories that the media can't wait to jump on. The VA is a success story, a lot like the post office. I think by and large, that's, that's correct, yes. Right. So anytime you read of a horror story that took place in the VA, yes, it's probably horrific. There probably is a long line occasionally, but measured up against a health insurance company, far superior. The outcome is far superior to anything that private health insurance companies could provide. So that would be single payer, and that's an example of it working in the United States. Medicare, Medicare, is that single payer? First of all, what is Medicare? And is it single payer? Is it health insurance? Is it provided by the government? How does Medicare work? That's a, that's a very good question. It's, it's a, you know, a very complicated construct. So Medicare, by and large, provides medical care uh, to most of American senior citizens, 65 and over. Uh, there's some other uh, ways to qualify, by, by, but by and large, it's seniors. There's two components, really, to the program. One is what we call traditional Medicare, uh, you know, where you basically have free choice of doctors, and then there's some reimbursement mechanisms that the federal government uh, pays for. There's also a program now called Medicare Advantage, which is really where uh, you receive all your care through a private insurance company, and about a third of American seniors are now part of that second program. So the doctors, um, is, the problem is that the doctors are not government employees. The gov the, that's very true. The, the doctors are not salaried true. employees working for the government, so they are incentivized to overbill Medicare and commit fraud. 
correct? Yeah, you're correct. Um, it's it's basically um, you know where the the financing arm is largely in, in in the hands of government with some tax subsidies and some individual premiums at times, but the provisional services is originally wholly uh, through the private sector. So the difference between the VA and Medicare, as I see it, is in the VA, which works extraordinarily well, the doctors are government bureaucrats. That's why mm-hmm. there's little to no fraud in the VA. Under Medicare, which was established by Lyndon Johnson in 64, 65, the government is the single payer, but it pays doctors who are not working for the government. That's the problem with Medicare. That's why we see billing fraud. What is Medicaid? What is Medicaid? Uh, Medicaid also established in 1965, like Medicare, is is basically a program uh, that uh, was envisioned mostly for low-income Americans. Uh, it's been expanded. It covers now you know, a lot of seniors as well of low income. It covers a lot of pregnant women, a lot of children. Um, it has more comprehensive benefits, ironically, than the Medicare system. Um, and it's one of those parts that's been in the news lately a lot because it was expanded under the Affordable Care Act. We'll get to that in a second. So the difference between Medicare and Medicaid, I'm sorry, the the difference between Medicare and Medicaid, I would assume, is Medicare is universal. It comes to us from Washington, D.C. Medicaid is a state's rights compromise where the states are given block grants and it's felt that the states can administer medical aid to the poor better than the federal government can so that we've ended up with a complicated system where poor people are treated differently in each of our 50 states. It's not quite a block grant, but you're certainly correct that each state has a different Medicaid program that provides uh, a floor of benefits that are similar across the country, but the optional or additional benefits are quite different. Uh, I think we should also mention that the vast majority of Medicaid beneficiary today uh, are receiving their 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 care or their insurance really through private entities because most state governments do not run their Medicaid programs really anymore. They have contracted with private insurance companies to right. run for them. Okay, so so the federal government will say to Kentucky, here's X amount of money for Medicaid. It, it, basically, it's based on uh, Medicaid expenditures, and there's a matching rate. So, and uh, then the, the state has to rate. the state has to match that rate. Right. What's that? So in other words, the federal government gives Kentucky money for Medicaid recipients, and then the state government has to match that money? Yes. Uh, the, the lowest uh, lowest matching rate possible is one-to-one matching. Most states, this is depending on, on how poor state is, uh, receive much more. For example, for every $1 that states like Mississippi spends, they get $9 from the federal government. The doctors who take Medicaid in, say, Kentucky – do not work for the state of Kentucky. Most, I mean, some do, but for the most part, you can be a regular doctor who also takes Medicaid patients. Very much so. Uh, although we should say that a lot, lot of doctors are unwilling to take Medicaid patients. And so there's some concern about access for Medicaid patients because um, doctors are often complaining about the lower reimbursements rates as compared to private insurance. And most states are relying on health insurance companies as opposed to government bureaucrats to administer Medicaid. Yes. So for-profit companies, they're using 
are tax dollars and are they incentivized to deny health care to poor people? Usually, you know, that's a tough question to answer. The the way these contracts are usually set up is, you know, for each individual enrolled in a program, an insurance company gets this much money uh, and then takes on the risk on how much it costs to provide care for those individuals. So it's certainly an incentive if these contracts are not well overseen and well managed and well set up that insurance companies might try to, you know, maximize profits by minimizing access in order to, you know, retain most of that funding for themselves. All right. Before you go, and thank you, this is really valuable and it's really complicated and it's complicated on purpose. Americans don't understand the most important issue of our time, health care. They don't even know the difference between health care and health insurance. And that's why we can't have a reasonable debate in the Democratic Party because it's confusing and purposely so. Medicaid expansion started under Obamacare. Obamacare was the most significant health care legislation since Medicaid. However, Hillary Care resulted in CHIPS. Is CHIPS up there with Medicaid and Medicare? What is CHIPS and how important is CHIPS. Chip, CHIP is really well, what we call the Children's Health Insurance Program is really a supplement that was created, you know, after the, the failure of the Clinton health reform efforts uh, in the 1990s that filled in the gap mostly for women uh, who are pregnant and, and largely children that are just making too much money to qual- qualify for Medicaid, but who also are struggling to access health insurance. And so it's basically a, a insurance program, again, funded by the federal government and the states to a degree. Uh, Is it administered by the states or the federal government? It's run mostly by the federal government, similar to Medicaid in in cooperation with the states. So there's some benefits setting and eligibility determinations and setting by the states. Layer upon layer. We're out of time. Very quickly. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Obamacare. I I have to ask you about the public option. Let's end on this. Mm -hmm. Reasonable Democrats say I like Medicare for all, but let's give Americans a choice. Let's make it an option to opt in to Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. What does the public option that Obama envisioned and then changed his mind on? What would the public option have been had it been included in Obamacare in 2010? The previous iteration that we had uh, uh, under the public op- for, of the public option under President Obama was this idea that, you know, for individuals who do not get insurance through a public program like Medicaid or who do not get insurance through their employer, uh, so they have to buy it in the individual market, uh, let's give them the opportunity to not purchase it from an insurance company, whether that's a nonprofit or for-profit insurance company, but basically put a government plan uh, or make a government plan available. That provides them basically like services like an insurance company would very similar to, I assume. So in other uh, words, under Obama, health care in the United States, Obamacare was completely turned over to health insurance companies. And a public option means that the government would have gotten into the health insurance business. They weren't going to. Very much so. Right. It wasn't going to be the VA. It was going to be you bought your health insurance from the United States government, as opposed to buying it from WellPoint. That's what the public option means, right? Correct? Yes. 
Okay. Yes, very much so. So when Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden talk of, you know, transitioning into Medicare for all with a public option where you can buy into Medicare, there is a distinct difference between universal health care, which is Medicare for all under Pramila Jayapal and Bernie Sanders, and a public option where people can choose to buy in to Medicare. You don't buy into Medicare. Medicare is free. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a very complicated question. Um, but Medicare is free. Yeah. In other words, if you're over, what, 66, it doesn't matter yes, what you paid in taxes. You get health care in this country when you're of a certain age. You don't have to buy into Medicare. Correct. Yeah, there is some premiums to you know for for hospital coverage, and there are some premiums generally for prescription drug coverage. But, but yeah. the general um, idea of Medicare is you're at a certain age and you get free health care. You're not you're not opting into buy into a government run health insurance company. Correct. Yeah, basically you're eligible once you reach the age limit. But you're not, and you're not dealing with the insurance companies as opposed to what Buttigieg and Warren and Biden are suggesting, which is a public option in which you choose to get health insurance from the government as opposed to getting health insurance from Aetna and WellPoint. So it's not Medicare, is it? A public option is not Medicare. It's not transitioning into Medicare. It's nothing like Medicare. It's not providing universal health care. At best, it might be able to provide universal health coverage, but that would cost Americans money. They have to buy insurance. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. Yes. Okay. I guess the answer is Medicare for all and vote for Bernie Sanders and the government, these multi layers, this Byzantine system that we have is purposely complicated. So Joe Biden and Mayor Pete and Andrew Yang and Elizabeth Warren can say, I'm for Medicare for all, but let's go slowly on it or let's rebuild. You know, we can get to Medicare for all if we build on Obamacare, Obamacare is nothing like Medicare. It's completely different. It's a love letter to health insurance companies, as is the public option. The public option is a love letter to health insurance companies. All it means is that the government is going to get down in the gutter with health insurance companies and compete with health insurance companies until the Republicans are in charge and then they destroy the public option. Okay, this is very valuable. I appreciate your time. Professor Simon Hayter talked to us today from State College, Pennsylvania, where he teaches public policy at Penn State. His recent piece in The Conversation is fantastic. It's entitled Universal Coverage, Single Payer, Medicare for All. What does it all mean for you? I will link to it over at my website. If you want to understand what the debate is about, I cannot encourage you enough to read Professor Simon F. Hader over at The Conversation. He has a, a long list of stories over there that have just been fantastic. Thank you for your time. Can you stand on the line for one second? Thanks. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. 
you sad, pathetic hump. Let us now go to Orlando, Florida, where Congressman Alan Grayson is standing by. He's the author of the new book, High Crimes, the Impeachment of Donald Trump. You can buy it by going to impeachbook.com. Buy this book, High Crimes, the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Thank you once again, Congressman, for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Congressman, I wish I had the luxury that you have to be funny. <laughs> but these, this now is not the time for me to do the really hard thing, and that is be funny. Well, on January 3rd, Donald Trump ordered the assassination of Iran's second-in-command, Qasem Soleimani. Your new book is High Crimes, the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Does the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, does that rise to an impeachable offense? Was this assassination legal? Depends on what the intelligence said. I know that, that some people have taken the position that uh, killing uh, someone when we're not in declared war is per se unconstitutional. Um, I, I don't take that position myself. Uh, if the intelligence indicated that um, this particular person was planning an attack against U.S. forces that would have resulted in American deaths. He is basically a combatant, in my opinion. Um, but uh, apparently there's questions about that. Mike Lee heard the intelligence reports and mocked them openly. Uh, this so is Senator Mike Lee, Republican upon- Ted Cruz's best friend. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, he did a news conference uh, yesterday where he openly mocked the presentation uh, that had been given in, in a classified setting and, and said it was the worst that he'd ever seen in nine years in the Senate. Uh, so, uh, you know, the if, in fact, it was done on the basis of no intelligence or on the basis of intelligence that was not credible, uh, that, that either wasn't believed or shouldn't have been believed, uh, then you are in a situation where that would be regarded as a high crime. Uh, that murder is a high crime. Assassination is a high crime. Assassination, in this case, is done using the forces of the United States. It's something only the commander-in-chief can do. So it's definitely a high crime in that context. And I don't think we'll ever know, because I don't think the intelligence community uh, will release the intelligence upon which the attack was based. Uh, so it, it's a uh, a crime without a witness uh, until we find out exactly what the intelligence said. I hope that the intelligence committees will look into it and find out and get to the bottom of what the intelligence was that was the basis for this attack. I think that uh, that's part of their oversight responsibility. But I wouldn't call it a high crime per se. Uh, because um, it's not if the intelligence indicated that he had planned an attack on U.S. forces. If Nancy Pelosi ever turns the articles of impeachment over to McConnell and there is a trial in the Senate, could they tack on 
charges of an illegal assassination? Could there be another article of impeachment? And would you see honest interlocutors like Mike Lee or Rand Paul voting to impeach Donald Trump for getting us into a war? Haven't the Republicans been a little more honest when it comes to foreign policy? Haven't they stood up to Trump when it comes to getting us into unnecessary wars? Aren't there some Republicans who we can depend on? No. Um, in the case of Lee, who I just cited, it's really all about Mike Lee. Um, what he was suggesting is not that uh, the president was trying to lie us into war, but that the um, information had been kept from him and from other senators that would validate the attack. And that's what he was most upset about. Uh, so, no, this is simply uh, senators um, trying to protect their prerogatives as senators. He said, I, I want to remind the Department of Defense that we give you a budget and we uh, uh, take your nominations and we act on them in the course of complaining about this. So he, he was doing what senators often do. He was um, protecting the perks of the institution uh, rather than actually directly attacking uh, the president for trying to lie us into a war. And I'll point out to you that we already have a precedent on this that did not result in impeachment, and that was the blatant lies that were told to the world and to the American people to get us into the war in Iraq. Um, I used to have a bumper sticker on my car that said, uh, Bush lied and our soldiers died. Um, that was a clear-cut case of ridiculous lies that were fed to us that led to uh, thousands of American troops losing their lives, about a quarter of a million coming back with permanent brain abnormalities, um, something I learned when I was in Congress, uh, and $4 trillion worth of expenditures. Uh, and that did not result in impeachment. Uh, this is uh, a, a different shade entirely. This is, at this point, a shade of gray rather than black and white. If there is not World War III, and by the way, there were a lot of people in my camp and MSNBC who were wringing their hands up until about two days ago saying he's getting us into World War III. Do you see any danger of this escalating or has he, Trump, pulled back and made his point? Or, 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 or are you frightened that this could lead to an invasion of Iran? which I don't think is possible, but you would know better than I. Well, let, let's be careful about the terms that we're using. That Even that extreme and horrible circumstance would not be World War III. Uh, World War III was, would have to be something in the nature of World War II, or maybe in the nature of World War IV, which uh, I believe it was Einstein who said that we still fought with sticks and stones. Uh, the, the, we're not talking here about a genuine world war under any circumstances. I was just watching a documentary about World War II. Um, every civilian population all through Europe was exposed to attack at any time. The Battle of Britain represented that over the course of months. Um, we're protected by two very wide oceans. Um, the people, the Americans who are exposed to attack would be those who we send into the theater of war or those who are already there. 
Um, and that's simply not the same as the horrific consequences of an actual world war. So I, no, I've spoken to 20 not, somethings, not, kids, 20 somethings who are afraid they're going to bring back the draft. Trump is going to get us into a war and that Iran is going to send brigades into the United States and blow buildings up. Play that out for me. What what would because I obviously don't see that happening, but Americans do. And that kind of hand wringing. I, I just don't see I don't see any basis for for that. I mean, Al Qaeda failed to do that uh, with all of the resources and at their command. ISIS failed to do that with all the resources at their command, including control of a territory the size of Florida. Is Iran um, operating at it, a disadvantage? There's no reason to think that Iran would do any better. It, it, this is this would be an entirely asymmetrical war where we would we would attack them and they would have to defend themselves and and they they don't have any kind of weaponry that could actually reach the civilian population of the United States. They just don't have it. I mean, I I did have classified briefings when I was in Congress, and I will tell you that the public information is correct. Uh, the, the public information indicates that um, their missiles um, could barely reach most of the Middle East, uh, much less populated areas in Europe. They have no bombers to speak of. You can go to Wikipedia to verify this much. Their Air Force consists almost entirely of fighters, which are useless for bombing. Um, and uh, they have no effective way to blow up anything uh, on any scale uh, where there's a civilian U.S. population or even a European population. What they would do in those circumstances was they, they, they'd certainly close the Gulf. You could expect that in, in, if, the, if the war got to be a hot war, they would close the Gulf immediately. The sanctions that we are putting against them are intended to cut off their oil exports. If we were in a shooting war with them, they wouldn't be able to export oil under any circumstances, and they would make sure that the rest of the Gulf couldn't do that either. So you'd see an immediate stop in oil exports from Iraq, from Kuwait, and from most of Saudi Arabia, and gas exports from Qatar. That would be the practical immediate consequence of the war. It would be economic, not military. Um, and that, that's for starters. I mean, you know, at that point, they would systematically try to pick off whatever Americans are within reach. The 5,000 U.S. troops in Iraq would, in, in essence, become hostages to them. Uh, they would attack them relentlessly and kill as many as they possibly could. You'd see the same treatment of the U.S. embassies all around the Middle East, including especially the one in Beirut, where they have plausible deniability, and so on. So there, there would be consequences, but we're not talking about World War III consequences. We're talking essentially consequence equivalent to the consequence of the war in Iraq, um, except for the fact that Iran is substantially larger and more powerful and uh, better defended than Iraq ever was. Is Iran operating from a disadvantage when it comes to asymmetrical war because they're not a failed state? Seems to me Al Qaeda was stateless. ISIS was uh, only effective when they were stateless. The minute they set up this caliphate, we were able to defeat them because we knew where they were. Isn't Iran operating at a disadvantage because we know exactly where Iran is so that if an embassy is taken and hostages are taken, I don't mean to sound insensitive and jingoistic, 
but we know who to attack and where to attack. Isn't that a disadvantage to Iran? It depends on how we would try to attack Iran. Um, you know, the, if we tried to invade Iran the same way that we uh, took over Kuwait from the Iraqis, took back Kuwait, the Kuwaitis would say from the Iraqis, same way that we we took uh, we invaded and occupied Iraq. Uh, if we tried that against Iran, Iran would have very substantial defenses, um, much much more serious than anything that we've seen since the Vietnam War. Um, and, and you know, in those circumstances, they would uh, definitely put on quite a showing, regardless of whether we knew where they, they were or not. Uh, because it's much easier to defend territory than to take territory, particularly mountainous territory like Iran. Um, but if it's simply a matter of punishing them, which is all that Donald Trump ever seems to have in mind, he just wants to bully and punish people, uh, so those opportunities are there, and they would have a great deal of difficulty. It would be entirely asymmetrical because we can send missiles to them. They can't send missiles against our civilian population. We can bomb them. They have no practical way of bombing us back uh, or bombing really much of the neighborhood back, even Israel. Um, they, their missiles probably would be pointed at Israel, which is extremely unfortunate. But and they're also they funding Hezbollah. They also fund Nasrallah in Lebanon, who runs Hezbollah. Doesn't Hezbollah have a lot of missiles pointed at Israel? Yes, and uh, completely surrounds the American embassy in Beirut. Yes. And how wise would it be? There are. No, go ahead. How wise would it be for somebody like Nasrallah, who runs Hezbollah? He's, I guess, in southern Lebanon and parts of uh, Syria now. How wise would it be for Hezbollah to start firing missiles into into Israel? Well, to be specific, uh, they control, they have de facto control of essentially the entire country other than the Christian part of it, which is along the coast. They, they don't occupy all of the rest of the country, but they're talking about Lebanon. You're talking about control. Yes, Lebanon. (laughs) They have control of a very, very small part of Syria, only the part that's adjacent, uh, to their territory in Lebanon and even, not even all of that. But to answer your question, uh, it's safe to say that we can expect that uh, if the United States attacked Iran, then Hezbollah would attack uh, Israel with missiles. It's almost inevitable. And and the Israelis, uh, despite the fact that they're working extremely hard to try to counter that, uh, would not have any effective defense to thousands upon thousands of missiles. They can knock down low-grade occasional missile attacks from Gaza pretty effectively these days. But that's not the same as slotting uh, the, the major advancements in, in missile technology that Hezbollah has implemented, thanks in part to Iran. And is Hezbollah an arm of the Quds, the of Iran? Does Hezbollah get its marching orders from Iran? No. Um, Hezbollah has uh, uh, full self-governance. Um, it's not simply a puppet of Iran. That would be a mistake. It's an ally of Iran, but not a puppet of Iran. That would be like saying, does England get its marching orders from the United States? Really? No. Okay. I, I mean, true. England makes its own decisions. The UK makes its own decisions. Okay, because we were led to believe 
that Suleimani was orchestrating all of Nasrallah's activities. That's hyperbole. I, I, I think that's extreme hyperbole. I mean, Hezbollah actually predates the Iranian, uh, current Iranian regime. Okay. It was, it's been around for longer than them. But I mean, Hezbollah was a major participant in the Lebanese civil war from 30 and 40 years ago. So that, I mean, there's, there's no reason to think that it's simply a puppet of Iran, particularly the, the current regime. So if we go to war with Iran and Hezbollah fires missiles into Israel, and as you said, they're going to hit and do damage, does the United States then fire missiles into Lebanon to get Hezbollah? Or do they say, we're going to punish Iran for providing those missiles to Hezbollah? I mean, uh, the scenario we're talking about is the United States attacks Iran and Iran persuades Hezbollah to attack Israel. Yeah. Is that yeah. The scenario we're still talking about. Yeah. Okay. In that scenario, Israel will be more than Israel can certainly take care of itself in that scenario. It doesn't need the United States to launch any missiles at Hezbollah. Israel would very likely invade Lebanon, uh, reoccupy large parts of it and possibly push all the way to the Syrian border. Uh, so I, I think you can expect that and, and, in order, in order to prevent any further attacks, Israel would essentially occupy large parts of Lebanon the same way that it did 30 years ago. And um, if Israel were to go to war with Iran and hold Iran accountable for the actions of Nasrallah, Hezbollah, how does that play out, if, assuming America stays out of it? Uh, Israel would do nothing but make uh, pinpoint attacks, uh, probably through bombers, possibly through commandos um, on Iran, uh, and uh, would be worried about recovering uh, its assets if it did so. Okay. Uh, Iran is far enough away from Israel so that anything other than missile attacks is sort of difficult and dubious. As we discovered ourselves, and you know, when we tried to rescue the Iranian hostages uh, through military action in the Carter administration, right? If it's that far away, you can't count on things happening the way that you planned. Uh, you know, a modern air force like Israel's could bomb uh, targets in Iran, but but that that you know that would be largely the extent of it. Plus, they'd have to be refueled on the way back, and so on and so forth. I mean, you know, again, the public information indicates that, that that would be a logistically difficult operation. They probably need our help um, if they were going to do that, um, as they have in the past. Uh, but uh, regardless, all they could do is bomb certain targets and leave it at that. They, they, they also probably, Israel probably also has the capability to do its own assassinations. Right. Um, through commandos and otherwise, but uh, that's not the same as you know, invading and occupying the country, which is completely beyond Israel's capability. So you became my hero during the invasion of Iraq. You were one of the earliest people to oppose the, the war in Iraq. Here's my concern that, and I, I hate to sound insensitive, if this is not World War III, my concern is that Trump can chalk this up to the killing of Baghdadi, he walks away from this, 
and there's no war in Iran, and things are pretty much the same in Iraq. And then the neocons, the never-Trumpers like Bill Kristol and David Frum, who, you know, they hate Trump, but they love that war in Iraq. They can now spin this to say, you know, the invasion of Iraq was a good idea. That it, it showed Iran that don't mess with America. You know, we didn't rebuild Iraq in our own image the way we did with Japan and Germany. We failed at that. But the Iraqi leadership is no longer in power. We we destroyed the government, killed lots of their people. And so Rouhani and the Ayatollah Khamenei have to ask themselves, do they want the same fate as Saddam Hussein? This is what the neocons are going to say. They're going to say we were right for going into Iraq. Look how we terrified Iran and proved that they're just a paper tiger. Do you fear that? It's a ridiculous argument. I mean, I, I don't fear that at all. I'd laugh at that. That's a silly argument. I mean, for anybody to try to lit, relitigate the war in Iraq 17 years later, to me, is, is crazy. Uh, the, the the war uh, was completely unnecessary. Uh, it was entirely for the benefit of Halliburton. Uh, it, every scam artist in the entire world was drawn to the scene to try to exploit and cheat the troops and the taxpayers. Um, I filed case after case after case in behalf of whistleblowers against them. The, the Wall Street Journal said before I was elected to Congress that I was running a one-man war against contractor fraud in Iraq. Right, right. And then I was elected to Congress and did my best to avoid further confrontations like that and get us out of there as quickly as possible. I, n nobody in their right mind uh, would try to say, ah, see, it was a good thing after all. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. It broke Iraq irrevocably. Um, it led directly to the rise of ISIS, directly to the rise of ISIS. Uh, ISIS would never have been possible except for the United States invasion of Iraq. Um, it has created a, a regional cesspool that will never drain during your lifetime or mine. Um, and that's you know that that's that's the fact of the matter. Um, the, the the notion that we um, have exploited that war in order to intimidate regional powers um, is simply incorrect. I mean, Iraq doesn't think that we're going to invade them. They know we're not going to invade them. Uh, they probably assign a possibility of, as crazy as Donald Trump is. They assign a possibility of that happening it, it's somewhere less than one tenth of one percent. Um, mm -hmm. it's, not going to happen. And if it did happen, it would be a, a most likely a, a great failure despite, you know, the military's best efforts. Um, it's it's a, a big place with lots of mountains, very hard to occupy and uh, full of people with guns, just right. like Afghanistan. Um, and so, you know, the, the notion that we're going to be able to just sweep over it the way we did across the desert in Iraq and defeat them in four days is just completely wrong. We you know, we will definitely put a dent in their military, but that's not the same as having effective control of the territory, as we've now found out over 19 years in, in Afghanistan. So that, that that's just a bad argument. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm just worried, again, that people like George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and Mary Cheney are able to sleep at night because they, they can say to themselves, yeah, we can't occupy Iraq, but we can turn it into a post-apocalyptic hellscape. 
And that serves as a cautionary tale to any other countries like Iran. Don't you know? do what we say. Otherwise, it's going to be a Hobbesian nightmare for you. And uh, I, you know, we bully we bully countries who we perceive as our enemies constantly, and we've been, we've been doing that since the Monroe Doctrine. I mean, the the we we despite George Washington's admonition, we'd stick here and I was in other people's business now for two centuries straight. Yeah, and uh, that's one of the things I always was concerned about when I was in Congress and on the Foreign Affairs Committee. And I, I did my best to restrain the, the military-industrial complex from dragging us into one war after another after another. But but, but all that being said, um, you know, pe- people stand up to that. Uh, and, they, you know, these days, uh, we're not in a, sit- a situation anymore where we can uh, occupy countries willy-nilly whenever we feel like it. Uh, the, the world has changed in fundamental ways, you know, part thanks to the internet and, and for other reasons. But, you know, when I was growing up, we, we occupied the Dominican Republic four times. Uh, I don't think that we'd be able to do that on a sustained basis any longer. And the, you're talking about the Dominican Republic, which is nowhere near the logistical nightmare of, uh, of Iran, an occupation of Iran. So, uh, yes, we, you know, we, we, we take this approach with people, do what we say or we'll kill you. And sometimes uh, that works, but generally speaking, it doesn't. Okay. Could you spare a few more minutes? Sure. Go ahead. Okay. Thank you. So you bring up George Washington's farewell address. He warns Americans to beware of foreign entanglements. Treaties, agreements lead to war because they're Byzantine and they're ripe for deception. Once you start signing agreements that we will invade Poland, if Germany invades Belgium, there's it's just ripe for deception. And next thing you know, there's a full scale war. And so there's been since George Washington, this isolationist strain in our country. But you're a Democrat. I'm a Democrat. And that isolationist strain seems to come from those who believe in limited government. States rights often is synonymous with isolationism. So do you worry that isolationism has such a bad connotation because of the racists who who practice it, the anti-Semites like Lindbergh and Joseph Kennedy, who were America firsters, who were isolationists. Uh, the Democrats, our party, we don't like isolationists. So... Do you believe that America has to be indispensable overseas? I kind of still do. I've been brainwashed to believe that America is indispensable overseas and that if we're isolationists, it will come back and bite us. Okay, I I wasn't, first of all, suggesting that we should be, quote, isolationist. Um, I think that that's a mistake. That's not how I really feel. I think America can be a tremendous force for good in the world. Um, and, you know, it's the same thing is true domestically. There have been times when uh, one can be proud of uh, national political movements like, uh, for instance, uh, the progressive movement, uh, the civil rights movement, and so on. And then, you know, less proud of movements like the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we've, we've got our good side, we've got our bad side, and... Um, as long as we're uh, acting as a force 
uh, for, um, how should I put this? Um, uh, living a life free of fear. Right. Um, the, the four freedoms that, that Roosevelt talked about. Right. Then, then that's a good thing. Um, we, we certainly have a lot to offer the rest of the world. We've created a society where people generally live free of fear and often live up to their potential. Uh, and that's what we should try to do wherever we can. Um, that, that's not isolationist at all. Now, you're, you're mixing together different time periods, and, and I don't think they should necessarily be lumped together. What I do think is that, um, in a sense, the continuity um, has been that uh, a certain group of people in the United States, either on the left or the right, have been pro-peace mm-hmm. uh, and pro-common sense, recognizing that uh, there are other people who always want us to, to try to stick our nose into their business for their advantage. Right. And that's true domestically as, as well as in other countries. Um, you know, in, in the period that you were referring to in the 1930s uh, and also in the 1920s, uh, this, quote, isolationist sentiment was normally on the right. Um, you could make a good argument that in the 60s and the 70s it was on the left and it was called the peace movement. Right, right. Uh, as Muhammad Ali said, I don't understand what the problem is with our uh, you know, these people in Vietnam never did anything to me. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why we're fighting them. And uh, it didn't matter whether that observation is made by somebody on the quote right or the quote left. Uh, but the, 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 the fact is that um, we, war is an abomination. Right. And you, you have to be very careful about when you unleash the talks of war. Just As Shakespeare uh, pointed out. With... With Trump, is it conceivable that he is an isolationist, that he views the assassination of Soleimani as a pinpoint operation and that he really doesn't want to get us into a full-scale war? I mean, you know, Maureen Dowd said in 2016, it's Hillary who's the hawk and Trump who is afraid of the military-industrial complex. That is it possible that Trump will stand up to the military-industrial complex? That's like asking, are my dogs isolationists? <laughs> Trump is simply... God does have a they, sense of humor, though. They, I mean, you know, as time... Pl- if we do not get into a major war under Trump... It's just, it's just projection. People like Maureen Dowd are taking their own mindsets and trying to apply them to somebody, you know, who, who has the, the, the mental abilities of a cockroach. <laughs> I, I, you know, Trump is a deeply stupid person and you, 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 you can't say, well, is he isolationist or, you know, is he, does he believe in human rights or that he doesn't think that way. He, he he simply doesn't think that way. And and people who are capable of higher level thinking shouldn't be fooled into thinking that he does. He okay. grunts. He, he, <laughs> he, he you know, he. <laughs> All right, you, anyway, you, that's that's you get the point. Yes. You, you, you said point. that the war in Iraq was for Halliburton. And, you know, I've heard that it almost sounds glib, but it's true. We had 
Larry Wilkerson, Colonel Larry Wilk, Lawrence Wilkerson, on yes. uh, right. the, on the Ralph Nader show this week, and he said something, and my head exploded. He said, "The purpose of war now is war." And I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "the The military-industrial complex is so large that it's been financialized essentially, and that the, the of course, I mean, yes, and that's almost it goes without saying." But it goes without saying, I, I am so brainwashed by American... I mean, Smedley Butler was literally saying that three quarters of a century ago. Smedley Butler, a general in the U.S. Army, said, war is a racket. Yeah. He wrote a whole book about it. I mean, the, yeah. the, 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 I mean that, you know, even Eisenhower, who was the head of the military-industrial complex before he was elected president, he recognized that readily, that, that yes, there, yes, war is literally an occupation... Uh, for many people, uh, unfortunately, one that often leads to a premature death. But nevertheless, that's that's what what it is, and it's been that way for roughly two thousand years. I mean, you know. But the, do they the admit that to themselves? The, I mean, are they that just, evil? Just a minute. Let me let me finish by saying, you know, Iran once had an empire more than two thousand years ago, and the reason why the original Iranian empire under Persia was created is because they professionalized warfare. They had a standing army, which was a tremendous innovation as compared to the Greeks and the Phoenicians and everybody else in the neighborhood. And that's the way it's been ever since. When you have a standing army, war becomes a racket. Like Mubarak's army in Egypt and Soleimani's army for Iran, they run their self-financing. That's what you're saying. I mean, so, that's that's sometimes that's sometimes the case, but yeah. but uh, I mean, in the, you know, in the United States, uh, we have close to a billion, uh, a trillion dollars a year spent on, on military and and related purposes, and it's been that way for at least half a trillion dollars a year for an entire generation now. Uh, the clearly, when you're talking about a huge part of the U.S. economy, you know, roughly in any given year, four or five or six or seven percent, uh, depending upon what's going on in the rest of the economy, then, of course, people are going to view it as some kind of economic opportunity. And in the case of the United States, we finance it generally by borrowing. We finance mm -hmm. the military by borrowing. Um, in other countries, they finance the, by, by charging it to taxpayers. In other countries, they finance it by having them steal or by owning, quote, state op run enterprises. I mean, the, in Pakistan, for instance, you know, the military's budget comes in large part, but the fact that they own large parts of the Pakistani economy. Right. Um, right. So, I mean, it, it varies from place to place. It doesn't really matter. And what, what matters is that you're creating people who literally make a living from war. Wow. Amazing. And it's hard for Americans like me to wrap my head around something like that. I, I cannot understand that level of evil. And I have to convince myself well, the that interesting even... Thing, the interesting thing to me when I, when I was in, um, in Congress and dealt with the military-industrial complex on a regular basis is that um, in the same way that uh, the Soviet empire, by the, the hierarchy, by the time of Gorbachev, was deeply divided against itself. 
uh, you will find a similar phenomenon now within the U.S. military. There are military leaders like Colin, Colin Powell who uh, refuse uh, to direct a, a war unless uh, we have overwhelming advantages and we're far more, le- we're far more likely to kill than to die. Um, and, you know, you have others who just want to go out there and, and be like boys with their toys. They want to play mm-hmm. with their toys. And uh, if that means that we're stuck on a $4 trillion war, then so be it. And the, that's within the military-industrial complex. And you've got the enablers and the hangers-on outside the military-industrial complex, like the neocons that you mentioned. But there, there actually is a, an interesting uh, lack of a group think at the highest levels of the military. Uh, you have uh, generals, even generals, who say, uh, I'm going to make sure I protect my troops above all. And then you have generals who say, you know, we've got this great machine called the, the U.S. military. We shouldn't let it go to rust. I think Madeleine Albright once said that. What's the purpose of having this military, President Clinton, if we can't use it? Or did she say that to Obama? I can't remember. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, but. That, that 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 exactly is in line with my point. That's yeah, exactly Before, what I'm what I'm trying to say here that 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 that, that you, just because you reach the very top of the establishment doesn't mean that you're obliged to uh, feel or think one way or the other. We still have free will. Here, I'm going to let you go. Thank you for this, and I just I just want to give you a compliment on how unfunny you were today. And I I, I think that sometimes you don't realize how unfunny you can be. Uh, it's a gift. <laughs> you need more courage to be as unfunny as I am. You said something that kind of scared me when Mike Lee came out of that briefing and said, you know, it was a joke. You said, we'll never really know why they killed Suleimani. Suleimani was working with America to fight ISIS. He was killed in Baghdad. I read somewhere that he was reportedly working with the Americans to negotiate with Saudi Arabia on the treatment of Sunnis in Iraq. Uh, the the president of Iraq said that. That's where you heard that. The president of Iraq said that. Who was a tool of Iran. And it's so complicated. Well, that certainly is a matter of opinion. He doesn't he doesn't seem to act like it. But uh, okay. and anyway, the you know the I, I assume we're off now. No, 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 no. no. I, this is this is my last question. This is my, all right. Whitey Bulger, Whitey Bulger, bad guy, bad guy. At the end, we discover he was an FBI informant. So we have no idea who Soleimani was working for. It's such a mess in Iraq. And there's so much money being traded over there, unmarked American dollars we have no idea what cells of the CIA made what deal with Soleimani, do we? Or Osama bin Laden, I, uh, for that matter. I, I actually believe the CIA is very good at what it does. Um, and I have all sorts of reasons to think that. Uh, if you if you go to Wiki, WikiLeaks, you'll see there's a whole chapter on Alan Grayson's uh, visit to Saudi Arabia Regarding regarding what we what happened over there, uh, which by the way I, I I swear to you I had nothing to do with. I was shocked to see that there was a whole write up on my Saudi Arabia. <laughs> but in, in any 
in any event, um, I guess they, they cracked the um, security of the computers at the embassy there at some point. But in, in any event, um, they, I, I don't believe that Suleimani was a CIA agent, if that's what you're suggesting. Um, I don't think uh, we would have killed him if he were. Um, the, you know, the CIA certainly has all sorts of interesting access to all sorts of interesting places, but I don't believe that the leader of the Quds force, uh, could survive literally, um, if he were a CIA agent, that's not generally how this sort of thing is done. So no, I, I think that that's not the case. Okay. Um, now as to what happened, um, you know, the, the, I think the answer is we were trying to hit the other guy in the car. This is a guess on my part. I have no inside information, but the gentleman who was in the same vehicle happened to be, um, the, the leader of the local militia, the, it's called the engineer, the leader of the local militia in Iraq, uh, which was, um, pro Iranian, um, and and uh, the, the U.S. concluded had killed one of our contractors. Uh, so first we lobbed some missiles at one of a couple of their bases, and then we killed the gentleman who was in the car with Suleimani, who was their leader. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that Suleimani actually wasn't the primary target. It's possible that he was just sitting next to the primary target. Um, anyway, if you're going to speculate, and, that would be one speculation. And Trump either got lucky or unlucky. And took credit for it. No, I, I do. Th- I do. Th- I do think that that if if we were trying to kill the engineer, that was calculated. And um, you know, the, you you have to take these opportunities, if you can call it that. I mean, we're talking about murder, but you take these opportunities as they come to you. Um, if I really were going to take a wild guess as to what happened here, um, I would say food poisoning. The guess food poisoning that. that <laughs> No, it was lead poisoning. These farms have lead in them. The, the, um, <laughs> I, if I were going to guess what happened here, I would guess that the Saudis probably uh, informed the United States that they had set up a meeting with Suleimani and with his sidekick, the engineer, um, who was the one who we had just been fighting over the past several days. The, the engineer apparently organized the attack on the embassy of, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so anybody who organized attack on U.S. embassy, we're, he's, they're definitely in our sights. So I'm guessing the Saudis set up this meeting. Uh, they had information about where he'd be and when he'd be there. Uh, so, you know, he was in a place where he was, he could be attacked by drone without, uh, you know, cro- crossing into an area where drones are not, not able to operate. Mm-hmm. You know, he was in Iraq rather than Iran. Uh, the two of them were there together in the same vehicle and, uh, you know the, the the forces aligned in such a way so that uh, they could they could take out both of them. Are you but saying Saudi I, Arabia set? On, are you saying they, Saudi Arabia set this meeting up like Salazzo sets up the meeting in Godfather One, knowing that it was a setup, or Saudi Arabia did it with good intentions? Well, I mean, Saudi Arabia is more than one thing. They the there are factions inside Saudi Arabia. Uh, there, there are a certain number of people who would share that s- such information with the United States, and a certain number of people who would not. Uh, all it takes is one. Okay, I so I, I do believe the Saudis probably 
set up the meeting. I mean, this is according to what the Iraq um, uh, head of the government said, uh, that, that that he had basically brought the two parties together. The Saudis learned about the meeting taking place. They knew where he'd be and when he'd be there and uh, and so on. Uh, so I, I'm, it's a guess, but I'm guessing that it was probably information from the Saudis that told us where to attack and when to attack. Um, and, and, and the, the fact that the engineer would be in the same place at the same time was a huge advantage Hmm. Uh, because we, we definitely were not going to let an attack against an embassy go unanswered with that. That would, that would definitely be outside the norms of the behavior we've established in the past several decades. Right. Congressman Alan Grayson, is the author of High Crimes, the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Buy it over at impeachbook.com, impeachbook.com. Go buy this book. It's it's really fantastic. Thank you so much for taking I, I want to ask you a question. I have to ask you this. Why is there anybody left listening to the sound of your voice and my voice who has not bought this book already? I know. I just don't get it. Like, if they listen to the show, right? Yeah. So we clearly have their attention. What are they waiting for? What bell has to ring before every single one of them goes and buys the book? Can you explain that to me? What quirk of human psychology has created a situation <laughs> where there's anybody left <laughs> who hasn't bought the book yet? I agree. Well, hopefully you'll keep coming back until every single one of my listeners has purchased High Crimes, the impeachment of Donald Trump. And here is an endorsement from the Saudi Arabian ambassador to Iraq. This is his endorsement of Congressman Alan Grayson's book, High Crimes, the impeachment of Donald Trump. He speaks fluent Sicilian. Can you stay? That's Frankie Five Angels from The Godfather Part Two. Can you stay on the line for for one second? Sure. And once again, I have yeah, to tell you. Forever and ever, sure. I, I have to yeah. tell you, I know I'm funny. You know that. You've seen me perform at your benefits. Nobody is unfunnier than I am. And I cannot tell you how unfunny you were today. I... My compliments. Thank you. My hat is off to me. <laughs> Stay in line one second. You called in your backup econs now, see if we can get some more brain power in this We thing. got one here. Roger. Fly it in, Go ahead, Cole. Uh, he's, never mind, he's straightening up a little bit. Okay. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good, so if we need... Uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have our CS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing.
You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. On Thursday, the House voted 224 to 194 to limit Donald Trump's ability to wage war against Iran. Meanwhile, Speaker Nancy Pelosi is expected to turn over the two articles of impeachment to the Senate. For more on this, we're joined by Mark Savasco. He is Congressman Ted Lou's chief of staff. Everything Mark Savasco says does not necessarily reflect the opinions of Ted Lou, but they do reflect the opinions of the David Feldman show. Welcome back. Glad to do it, David. Happy New Year. Most importantly, tell me what your cold situation is. Do you have the cold? I'm currently cold free. Uh, Did you get uh, it? Some, I, I had a cold earlier in December. Uh, which lasted for a couple of weeks. I feel like everybody in my office has been uh, out at, at one point or another over the last, you know, six to eight weeks. And, and then we had a wonderful bout of stomach bug, which worked its way through my house, uh, you know, over New Year's. So that was great. Okay. Speaker Pelosi yesterday said this joint resolution, said that the vote, the 224 to 194 House vote, limiting Donald Trump's ability to wage war against Iran. She says it's not a joint resolution. It will not be turned over to the Senate. It won't be subject to Donald Trump's veto, but it does have teeth. How much teeth could it have? Well, it's a, yeah, it's a good question. It's um, uh, certainly one that, uh, uh, you know, parliamentarians and congressional scholars uh, can can debate and sort of fight over. There's no clear cut blueprint for this kind of stuff. Um, the main reason, my understanding is the main reason for, um, you know, doing it the way we did it and not having it be a joint resolution and, and using the concurrent resolution. Um, and if this, if this gets too wonky, just stop. No, you can um, never get too wonky for yeah. this show. Okay. Um, basically, there are a couple of practical reasons for why we would do it this way. One is the goal is to craft a concurrent resolution in a way that allows it to be privileged in the United States Senate, which, as we all know, is um, controlled by uh, the Republican Party, if it's a privileged resolution in the Senate, they will have to take it up. So unlike, uh, you know, a potential joint resolution or, you know, any other sort of, um, you know, uh, House bill that we would send to the Senate that they can summarily ignore, um, this would uh, force them to do it. Now, we still need a ruling from the Senate parliamentarian on that, but it was crafted in such a way and, and with guidance from our our friends in the Senate so that hopefully this is something that they, they will be forced to take up. The other reason, and again, it's somewhat somewhat technical, but there is a, um, a parliamentary procedure called a motion to recommit, which is essentially the minority's last right to, um, to amend a bill. Often what they will do is uh, we did this when we were in the minority, and uh, they, of course, are, are, are better at it than we are, uh, as they are with a lot of procedural stuff. But th- you come up with the most sort of politically uncomfortable thing. And sometimes it's not even a germane thing and it's meant to sort of kill the bill because it would, it, um, uh, you know, it, it, change, it could change the nature of the bill and then the parliamentarian in the Senate would, would rule that it's not even, it can't even be made Well, does, does Pelosi so, want yeah. this vote? She doesn't want it taken up in the Senate or does she? No, we do want this taken up in the Senate. Sure. Yeah, we, we would, we would like the Senate to vote on this. The U.S. Senate should, um, 
should should speak up on this, um, just like just like members of the House should. Um, and they would reject it. Just, and if it got passed in the Senate, he would veto it. Trump, right? Well, so again, as a as a uh, concurrent resolution, it actually would not go to the president. Um, it's essentially a sense of Congress. Um, uh, and so there are look, there are examples of uh, according to the Constitution and certainly in line with uh, the 1973 War Powers Act, um, the president needs to get congressional authorization before initiating hostilities. That's just that's the way our, our founding fathers set it up. Um, I would think that a concurrent resolution from both the House and Senate, if it were to pass the Senate, um, essentially saying we are not we are actively proactively here not giving you authorization to um, to go to war with Iran would be enough to convince the administration um, one that they certainly if they did want to go would have to come and make the case and get a uh, uh, what's called an AUMF an authorization of the use of military force uh, or declaration of war if, if it were that if it were at that level um, at the very least they shouldn't be. Um, they shouldn't be doing anything without congressional authorization. Um, again, a lot of this stuff is sort of somewhat untested, um, but I think that's, that's sort of the main point here, um, which is to get members of Congress on the record defending our institution, defending Article One powers, and the ideal that um, uh, that it's Congress that that's explicitly given the right to uh, to declare war. Well, um, is, is and, it when, uh, when Roosevelt, the last time we officially declared war was December 8th, 1941. Was that the House of Representatives and the Senate or just the House of Representatives voting to declare war? There, it would be the House. House and Senate takes takes an act of Congress. Uh, right. So both both bodies would have to a declaration of war. And theoretically, the House of Representatives and Senate could declare war. And if the president doesn't want to go to war, he would still have to. Correct. If they were to override a veto. Um, yes. I mean, that would be. Yeah. Another sort of, again, sort of untested hypothesis. That I'm not quite sure how that, that yeah. works, given that the executive branch um you know, obviously would be in charge of, of, of the operations of a war. But yes, I mean, technically speaking, the president has to enforce laws that he doesn't agree with. That's uh, that's the way our system's designed. And with the War Powers Act of 73, a president is allowed to invade another country for like two months before he has to get approval from Congress to continue it. Right. That's can, right. So, yeah. So can, there, there is this conflict. I don't want to make it seem, I mean, look, we can talk about it in sort of absolute mm-hmm. terms. And, you know, again, the founders were pretty clear about which branch of government, you know, determines whether or not the United States is going to war. But they also put in the president as the commander in chief of the military. Right. So there is a bit of a um, there always has been a bit of a push and a pull. I think some of us would would argue that uh, for certainly the last 50 years, maybe longer, um, Congress has slowly been ceding that authority to the executive branch. And really, I mean, point in case, as you brought up, World War II is the last time we actually declare war. You know, since, you know, after that, there's there's these um, authorizations for the use of military force. They're more controlled, you know. um, So are we uh, operating? uh, It seems to me, and this is a little confusing, 
There was a resolution passed in 2002 after 9-11, a year after 9-11, that authorized the Pentagon to conduct military operations specifically in Iraq. And as I understand it, that authorization for use of military force is still applicable. So quick point of clarification, and I, I, if I, I think these are the right dates. In 2002, there was an authorization um, passed to uh, commence hostilities in Afghanistan. And no, then there was an no, additional it was Iraq, 2002. 2002 was Iraq? Yes, because it was right before the midterms. Daschle was the Senate majority leader. <clears throat> and they the war because the war started in 2003. So maybe it was 01 for Afghanistan. Yes. Two for yes. Uh, Iraq then. Okay. Right. So so we have two current um, two current authorizations that are that, that still that are still uh, uh, still exist, still in effect and that are you know often used to justify um, any number of range of, uh, of military activities that still go on in the Middle East and even even other places for that matter, North Africa. So we've been um, in a permanent state of war since 2001 with these war authorizations, and the president doesn't need Congress's approval to to wage those specific. Well, is, uh, that's right. But this is one of the one of the real um, problems with uh, the, the, the current AUMF says their structure. It's, uh, some of us have been you know talking for a long time about. Um, uh, you know, uh, getting rid of these and reauthorizing them if necessary, but but not having one of the main issues here is the sunset, right? I, I think any good law, not just an authorization for the use of military force, but any law should probably have a sunset, right? Do mm-hmm. it five years, do it at ten years, do it at whatever. For for use of military force, probably should be shorter than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the War Powers Act, when it was first enacted was actually meant to rein in the executive a bit. It was, it was to allow Congress, again, the war-making power in our government, um, it was allow, to allow Congress to control geography, to control actually even to some extent tactics, um, or at least what was acceptable, right? Like, so we could say, you know, only, you know, uh, you know airstrikes, not, not ground troops, right, what have you, right. and to control time. And with these two AUMFs, um, they were they, they they were not given any any period where they would end. There's no sunset, so uh, they just sort of existed, you know, ad infinitum. It's politically difficult for members to vote them down, get rid of them, um, and it's politically difficult to vote to authorize new strikes. And that's the main reason that they were, I believe, anyway, that they that they continue on the way that they are because sometimes there are difficult decisions that need to be made. Um, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not even sure that I'd really want to be the person who has to make them, right? Where it's, where you're choosing between two really bad options. Maybe you've got imperfect information and you have to decide, am I going to take out some bad guys to try to prevent a bad thing from happening? And is that, you know, pros and cons and weighing all of that. Um, what Congress has essentially said over the last certainly 20 years since, since these first authorizations were, were passed is we don't want to have to make those decisions on a regular basis. They're politically sticky. They're difficult. They can be used against us. And so we've given this open-ended, you know, authorization to the executive branch, and we're going to let them execute our, you know, uh, prosecute our wars and, and, and move forward without having to, to chime in from time to time. Yeah, I have a, I think I, that's a real problem. Yeah, yeah, I, I have a bone to pick with uh, the Beltway and everybody who reports 
on Washington, when they refer to it as the AUMF, that's the authorization to use military force. And most Americans really don't understand or remember what the AUMF is. And it's important to remind them that there are two, we're operating under two authorizations to use military force, one in Afghanistan, one in Iraq. We have been in a permanent state of war since 2001. It's legal. And I guess the reason Donald Trump killed Soleimani in Iraq is because of the second AUMF, the second authorization to use military force in Iraq. It would be legal for him to kill Soleimani in Iraq, but not Iran. My um, understanding from the public reporting, I actually haven't seen the administration's justification um, uh, for taking out uh, Soleimani because they have classified it only uh, select members of Congress are able to actually see uh, their classified justification, which, again, they're required to do under the, the War Powers Act. But my understanding from reading some of the public reporting is that um, it was in part, in part they claimed the Iraq AUMF, um, and in part they claimed just simple Article II powers to defend um, uh, U.S. personnel, right? That, that's this whole idea of imminent, whether or not there was an imminent threat that can be, um, you know, that can be proved. Uh, you can, you know, again, public reporting out there that uh, from from members of Congress who uh, listened to the administration's classified briefing, um, uh, who, who didn't seem convinced on the imminent nature of it. I was not in those rooms. I can't tell you what what evidence was presented, what wasn't. Uh, but um, but it seems like certainly, and 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 some Republican senators, for that matter, were not particularly impressed. One other point on the AUMF that I think is just important for your listeners to understand, um, we are quickly approaching, if we haven't already crossed the threshold, of people, men and women, being sent overseas to fight in a war that was authorized before they were born. Yep. That is a real disgrace. Uh, that should never be the case. We, we should not have a situation where Congress has ceded that much authority to the executive branch and has not taken the time. Our men and women in uniform, again, whether or not Americans agree with the particular, you know, missions or operations that they are on, uh, they they have a very serious job and they put their lives on the line in many instances. At the very least, Congress can do its job and reauthorize these things from time to time and and say out in public and in the open. We Yes, we agree this is a national security issue for the United States, and we want to continue to put men and women in harm's way. Or no, we don't. But they should make the decision one way or the other. That's what they are elected to do. Um, if our men and women in uniform can do their job, members of Congress should, should do theirs. And how commonplace is it for our soldiers to do more than three tours of duty in Afghanistan? Don't we have uh, I, soldiers I, doing five, six, seven tours of duty? Yeah, I, I don't have all the stats. Uh, my fingertips on that. But yes, there there have been over the years uh, stories, especially during some of the, 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 the surge periods where we had, you know, 100,000 troops um, in Iraq or in Afghanistan. Um, uh, yeah, where people were doing four or five tours. It's, uh, yeah, it's incredible. And in Vietnam, you know, if you did a second tour of duty, it was unusual. But we had a draft. Well, yeah, we had a draft right. there was a draft then. then. Right now, you've got a scenario where 
you know, essentially one percent of the population is is uh, is, is fighting our wars. So right. um, most Americans don't have a direct connection to to someone who's who's making that sacrifice. Right. Talk to me about the White House conferring with the House before the strike. Who should Trump have told about the assassination before it took place? What is he obligated to call the? Is it the Gang of Eight? Does he have to gang legally? Br- right. What is the Gang of Eight, and is he constitutionally or legally obligated to tell the House of Representatives and the Senate about airstrikes before they're acted on? It's a good question. There's no real, you know, a lot of this stuff is custom and yeah, these are, these are just norms that are sort of out there where it just makes sense, right, that you would want to tell House and Senate leadership about a major military operation. But it's not something that's, that's defined, you know, explicitly in that way in, in the law. So it's, it's just another norm that, that this president seems to not, not, not really uh, worry too much about um, about following. But generally speaking, the Gang of Eight, a bipartisan group, would definitely include the Speaker, the Minority Leader, likely the Majority Leader as well, the uh, Senate Majority Minority Leaders, and then the Intel Chairs and Ranking Members. So the House approved the NDAA last month, a $750 billion defense spending bill. Some members of the House of Representatives try to tack on some kind of ban against using any of that money to fight in Iran, but that didn't make it to the final bill. What is the NDAA? And we ha- I-, I wish we could stop coming up with shorthand, like the a- right. AUMF and the NDAA. It- it's so confusing and almost purposely so. So, we, we, the, the the Pentagon is funded for 2020. They got their $750 billion defense bill passed. But uh, there's no add-on that prevents that money from being spent on fighting in Iran. Right? Right. So let me, yeah, I can, let me break that down a little bit. I, and I, I tend to agree with you on the the alphabet soup that becomes yeah. uh, not just the pen, not just the Pentagon, but 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 the whole federal government for that matter. But uh, the Pentagon in particular is is notorious uh, as someone who's received a lot of a lot of briefings um, and uh, and watched a, you know, sat through a lot of powerpoints uh, from Pentagon officials. Um, yeah, it can be it can be a bit overwhelming. So the NDAA or the National Defense Authorization Act um, is an annual bill. Uh, that that we pass through Congress that comes from the authorizing committee, so the House and Senate um, Armed Services Committees. And I think I discussed this in a, in a previous podcast, uh, but I'll, I'll review it quickly here. So we've got sort of there's sort of two buckets of of, of um, uh, statute that we're talking about here. One is authorization, and the other is appropriations. Mm-hmm. So you can think of it this way: you know, the authorization is kind of like um, uh, the authority to do something and the appropriation can only sort of um, can only fill up the bucket that the authorizers have, have provided. So you, you may have a grant, let's take it out of the military completely. Let's say there's a grant program for homeless puppies. Um, the, the committee of jurisdiction would authorize it for $5 million. Um, the appropriators can choose to, to fund it up to that cap, right? They can fill that bucket. It's a, it's a $5 million bucket. They could fill it all the way up. They could fill it halfway up. They could fill it zero the way up. 
the author, so, you know, the authorizers have priority, but the appropriators have the checkbook and they ultimately determine how much, you know, in terms of resources is allocated uh, to, to which project. Now, to paraphrase Mario Cuomo, I think what you're saying is a, a, a authorization would be poetry. Appropriations would be prose. Sure. So, yeah, so, something like the, the uh, yeah, the financial or economic version of that. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the NDAA, that. is that of, uh, appropriations or yeah. authorization? No, so that's the authorizing bill. That's the bill that goes through the Armed Services Committee. Uh, that is the bill. So now the, the other advantage, though, to this is that, um, or the other difference, if you will, is the appropriators are not supposed to uh, authorize in appropriations bills. They so, sometimes sort of get away with it. And of course, okay, so hang on for one second. Spend money. Is yeah, hang on sure. for one second. Hang on for one second. So the House approved a $750 billion defense spending bill in late December of. 2019. Was that an appropriations bill or an authorization bill, or was it the same thing? I'm not sure which uh, which one you're reading. We, we passed an appropriations bill in December. It's confusing because we also passed the, the NDAA in December. So, um, uh, so you, we, we have NDAA passed a delay this year. So there has been, so there is an appropriations bill for the Pentagon that went all the way to the White House. It was signed, and the the Pentagon is fully funded now for 2020. Correct. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, how much power... This is great. This is great. How much power does the House of Representative, Representatives have when it comes to defunding a war? You know, we're always told that the Speaker of the House is the most important position in Washington, D.C., because she controls the purse. Can Nancy Pelosi, can the Democrats turn off the spigot if there's a war going on that the House of Representatives doesn't approve of? Can they defund a war without the Republicans in the Senate? It's a good question. So, one, to be clear, in order to to, to do something like that, you would obviously need to have a bill that passes the House and the Senate. All of these bills pass the House and the Senate um, in order to gain the force of law and, and frankly, be signed by the president of the United States. So, so why do they say um, the speaker, why do they say the House of Representatives controls the purse? Because spending bills start in the House? Is that what, how, why? Yep. They, they, they initiate in the House, yeah. They initiate but, in the right. House. Can, can the Senate... Right. Can the Senate initiate a spending bill? Well, and again, not to be too, not to get too overly uh, technical about it. I mean, technically, no, but but there are functionally there are ways that that we have in the past sort of gotten around that. In other words, what they might do is uh, create a shell bill, is what, what we call it. So a bill that the House has already passed and sent over to the Senate. The Senate could hypothetically amend that bill by striking everything that was in that bill and inserting, you know, their new appropriations bill and sending it back. That is one way that the Senate can kind of get around it. But I don't want to confuse like that's a real like insider parliamentary thing. The basic answer is in the way that sort of the way it's sort of drawn up and the way it's supposed to work is the House is supposed to pass appropriations bills first. They send them over to the Senate. Uh, They they either they pass their own bills or pass our bills uh, or, or we conference them. 
together. That's the traditional way. The Senate could pass its bills. We'll pass our bills. We conference them together. And, of course, the staffs are talking, you know, throughout the process. The goal is to try to keep these bills as close as possible uh, from the beginning so that it's not like you're showing up on, you know, uh, on day one to try to um, – conference two bills that have uh, like completely different i mean they're okay so so going back to defunding going back to defunding a war theoretically theoretically uh could nancy pelosi defund a war by not introducing a spending bill for the pentagon In other um, words, if there was an illegal war being waged by Donald Trump, but Nancy Pelosi is Speaker of the House, and mm-hmm. we're against this war, theoretically she could stop the war by not introducing a spending bill for the Pentagon. Is that correct? Theoretically, yes, that's correct. Um, I think practically speaking, it's, it's and politically, very difficult Um you know, you just look at, I mean, look, we had some of these conversations during the Iraq war. I mean, we got to a point with Iraq where you had a number of members who were um, pushing to uh, defund that war. The, the problem with defunding a war is it gets very, um, you know, very sticky, very fast, because it's not like you're, it's not like you have control of the House of Representatives of, of, how an orderly withdrawal of troops would would happen. But can you, you dictate how that money is spent? Yeah. Like, like we talked earlier that uh, you, you told me sure, before you the, could have a rider. Yeah, you could have a provision in the bill that says none of this money could can go to, to X, Y, and Z. I mean, you could you could be that explicit about it um, again, just politically, especially once you already have troops in theater. Uh, I think it becomes much more difficult to say, you know, no more troop, you know, no, no more money for, for the troops who are, are already in Afghanistan. I see. Um, but, but hypothetically, you are correct. I mean, I, you know, that, that is, the, that is the power of the purse. It, it has, we have never even gotten close to doing something like that. Well, uh, we kind of did. My knowledge, but. The Boland Amendment during Contragate, there was a, a resolution passed that no money would be spent on giving uh, support to the Contras in Nicaragua who were trying to overthrow the Sandinistas. So Oliver North sold weapons to Iran and used the proceeds to violate the Bolin Amendment and support the Contras in Nicaragua. But right. that's that's an example of a specific prohibition of money being spent by the military, the Boland Amendment, I think. That's right. Or or Look at the, and you know, again, completely different topic, but <clears throat> something that's also a political lightning rod and talked about a lot. You have the Hyde Amendment uh, in, in, the, in the, the health title, uh, the HHS bill, that um, doesn't allow for any public funding of abortions. Right. right? So there's another, another example of, a, of an instance where Congress has sort of line item, line item one thing and said, you can't, you can't spend any money on this. Okay, uh, this is fantastic. I wish we could do this every week, and it it infuriates me how complicated it is and how we don't know this stuff. And it's our money. This is our money, and they've done a great job of hiding the process from us. Lobbyists. Uh, Colonel Larry Wilkerson was on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. He said something that just blew my mind. He said, the purpose of war now is war. 
that there's so much money in war that we fight wars now for war, for the purpose of war. It's like the medium is the message. War is the purpose of war. Lobbyists. How blatant is the lobbying in Washington, D.C. for war in the lead up to a possible war against Iran? Are there people from Boeing and Raytheon wandering the halls of Congress pushing for war? Are they that blatant and saying this is good for our economy if there's a war? Do you see that? Uh, it's a, uh, the short answer is no. Uh, there, there's not. I, I don't. Um, meaning, no. There's not. It's not that blatant. Um, uh, you know, in, in 15 plus years doing this, and and a lot of that time actually focused on national security policy. I've never had a lobbyist come in and say, "Vote to get us into this conflict because it'd be good for business." Right. Um, it's it's more likely they would be coming. It's much more likely that they would be um, advocating for their company's product um, as an alternative to something else. So mm-hmm. it's, it's it's usually like a you know a scenario where Boeing is trying to replace a you know a, a whatever a, a, an aircraft or a weapon system. That we're already, you know, that, that we've already got that that maybe a different a competitor, you know, creates uh, and manufactures at this point. So um, usually they're taking shots at each other, not taking shots that uh, or not advocating for, you know, uh, for, for a particular conflict here or there. I've, I've never had that experience. But, but look, it's a real. It is a. It would be disingenuous to pretend like that's not a real phenomena in America that that has. And seriously considered for a long time. I mean, we're, we're, you know, the supreme commander of the Allied forces in World War II and and, and Republican president and on his way out, uh, Dwight Eisenhower warned against the military-industrial complex and um, and all that came with it. I think he saw some of that. Uh, so yeah, that is that is a real concern, and um, uh, we'd like to see. Um, I mean, I think a lot of these companies now have uh, do have a lot of um, are trying to diversify a bit and do have a lot of other um, a lot of other uh, projects and, and, and things that they're working on that, that aren't so tied to uh, Pentagon spending. Um, but look, for the last however long, you can go back decades, uh, hundred years, um, uh, providing the U.S. military with weapons is 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 good business and it's pretty steady work. And the the spending, if we're going to spend $750 billion on defense in 2020, that's not the entire budget. Aren't there other funds included, not included in that $750 billion? Kind of well, off the I'll books? You, well, it doesn't include uh, the care that we give to our veterans. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so that's a whole separate, you know, Whole, whole separate department and, and and budget and and arguably and and again some of us have been fighting to ensure that money that we spend for the VA and, and nobody's arguing that we shouldn't spend it but that it shouldn't count it as national security spending right that we shouldn't sort of throw lump that in with the other social welfare programs it's not it's it's defense spending as far as I'm concerned uh, there are others there are other you know the, for example the Department of Energy handles. Um, our um, our nuclear uh, weapons, at least uh, some of that, um, you know, modernization and development. 
Um, but uh, but no, mo- yeah, most of the, the the Pentagon budget is is in in the defense bill. But we still can't audit the Pentagon, can we? I've never read an audit of the Pentagon. No. Okay. Before you go, th- fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for this. Sure. I, I really appreciate this. Is Nancy Pelosi, is the speaker, going to walk the articles over to McConnell? Well, um, we've been sort of hearing, you know, hearing uh, dribs and drabs about what, uh, you know, what the timeline is going to be all week. Um, I, I do think that the uh, the situation with Iran uh, uh, has, uh, you know, maybe uh, delayed that or, or it certainly uh, uh, impacted uh, some of the decision making, even if it's just a matter of bandwidth for the speaker in her office. But uh, I do expect it to happen soon. Um, I think it's it's something that um, you know it's it's something that you know ultimately um, needs to happen. Uh, but uh, we, um, I think, you know, the delay has 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 been a, a net good thing. I think it's kept it in the news. Um, I think it has given us a little bit of time over the break. You know, we got the statement from Bolton on Monday. We got these new emails from the Pentagon uh, showing that they were concerned about the freeze on aid to Ukraine. I mean, these are significant developments um, that we wouldn't have, wouldn't have had if we hadn't, you know, hadn't held the articles. And um, I think also it's just shining a light on the fact that uh, the Senate needs to, needs to ensure that there's going to be a, a fair, you know, a fair process here. But look, ultimately, for better or worse, and I guess a lot of us would argue worse, um, you know, the, the United States Senate is controlled by Republicans, and and uh, uh, Mitch McConnell is the majority leader of the U.S. Senate, so he, he gets a lot of say in how this how this works. And unless we get four or five uh, Republican senators um, to stand up to him, it's going to be really hard for us to impact their process there. That's just the reality of our bicameral legislature and the way it's set up. So, And what is your understanding of the polling? Do the American people prefer the articles being delivered or do they prefer to delay this until they can get some concessions from McConnell? You know, I don't know if they, I don't know if I've seen anything about whether or not they've been asked about it being delivered. I do know that there was some recent polling that shows that 71% um, uh, of the American people want a fair process where witnesses are called and where documents, you know, where there are subpoenas for documents, et cetera. So that's, you know, seven in 10 people who, who've been asked about that, uh, you know, agree and believe that we should have a, um, uh, a fair process where Donald Trump is allowing his top aides to testify, you know, in a Senate trial. So, and I think it was something like more than half, 55% say Trump was treated fairly, um, in the House uh, by by intelligence and, and judiciary, uh, which led to the articles against him. So uh, I, people, the good news is it doesn't seem like the vast majority of the public or even anywhere near a majority of the public is buying what the Republicans are selling. Um, and, you know, it's very disingenuous the way that they, they sort of the way they would like to frame this for the American people is <clears throat> the House had a ter- it's OK if we have a biased process in the Senate because the House, which is controlled by the dirty Democrats, had an unfair and biased process in the house and you know rubio will say well we should just have the exact same information the exact same witnesses that the house has right. the problem with that sort of that sort of mindset is that it's you're essentially making it two impeachment processes or two trials um in each body that's not the way the system is designed impeachment 
is essentially, for lack of a better analogy, is the filing of charges, right? It's the indictment. Mm -hmm. Um, The Senate is the trial. They, they, They literally have to swear an oath to be objective jurors. A new oath, an oath above and beyond the oath that they take as United States senators at the beginning of the Congress. At the beginning of an impeachment trial, the chief justice of the Supreme Court will oversee a new oath that they are going to be impartial jurors. You already have U.S. senators, including the the, the majority leader, coming out and saying he's not going to be fair. He's not going to be unbiased. He's conferring with the White House every step of the way. He's not going to do anything they don't want him to do. by all counts, their process has been, uh, or, or their lack of process at this point, but the process they, they, they seem to be outlining um, would be far less fair and, and bipartisan uh, than, than, than our process was in the House. And the onus wasn't on us to do that. You know, prosecutors, when they're you know, handing down indictments, aren't, aren't, you know, aren't required to be, um, you know, to be necessarily neutral arbiters, right? We're supposed to be, you know, uh, uh, getting at the truth and, and then presenting that to a jury. The jury's supposed to weigh all the evidence uh, they can get. So, uh, you know, look, I, I do, I do think it's, I do think uh, that the American people are, are are hearing some of that, and I do think they want to hear from top aides. Bolton saying that he would come to the Senate puts them, I think, in a really tough spot. I mean, it's really hard to say. <laughs> no thanks. We don't want to hear from your you know, from this direct witness on this really important issue, Uh, especially when House Republicans spent, you know, the entire process on our side complaining about the fact that, you know, they were yelling about hearsay and yelling about not not getting direct witnesses, you know, whenever we'd have like our academic witnesses or others. Well, here's your opportunity. You know, here's the the former national security advisor. Here's a guy who has direct knowledge of what happened. Um, How can you say that you don't even want to hear what this guy has to say? I think that's pretty disingenuous. So, right. We'll, so you, we'll see how it unfolds, but I expect soon uh, for the articles to be transmitted to the Senate. Right. In the uh, the Iran War Powers Resolution that was passed Thursday in the House, three Republicans voted with the Democrats. Matt Gates of all people, although he's been pretty consistent mm-hmm. on foreign policy, Matt Gates hasn't he? Uh, yeah, in Syria, well, Matt Gates is not my. I, I'm not going to go. Stu- I'm not going to go campaign for Matt Gates down in Florida. But I will give credit where credit is due. I, I do think he has been remarkably consistent on on this particular point. I mean, he, yeah. he is, you know, uh, yeah, he, he is, yeah, he, he is consistent on, on on congressional authority for for war, and and that is, you know, at a certain level commendable. Yeah, we had Massey, and then don't forget, so we had the three Republicans, and we also had Justin Amash, who right is maybe more conservative than all of them, uh, but who is now an independent because he's in favor of impeachment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and the, and the Republican it, party is the Donald Trump party now. So it is, the, it is the Donald Trump party, but when it gets to the Senate, it's 51 votes to determine the, the rules of the impeachment trial. If you are able to get Mitt Romney, Murkowski from Alaska and Susan Collins, on board, at least Bolton testifying. Is that enough? Is the math there then that McConnell? I think you need four. You need four. Yeah, isn't it? I think it's, it's 53, 47 right now. So you'd need um, you'd need four Republicans because then it's if it was just those three. It'd be 50, 50. Pence breaks the tie. So we don't get it. So I think we need four Republicans. And that presupposes at- Tester and Manchin are going to for Democrats. And, yeah, but we would hope that we can we can hold the line on our side yeah. and then maybe pick off the ones you mentioned, potentially Cory Gardner, who's up for re-election in a tough spot. 
and look, there, there, there may be others, right? I mean, it looked like Mike Lee and, um, and, and, and Rand Paul were not too pleased this week uh, with, uh, with how the administration approached uh, war powers. Um, uh, so you never know who's going to speak up and, and, uh, and, and, and finally put their foot down and, and, and demand that they not be treated like, a, you know, uh, like a, some sort of a lower branch of, uh, of the government. So, um, uh, and, and truly, I mean, if they don't like the way war powers is going, um, I can't imagine, you know, it's hard to square that circle with how he has treated, how the president and and his administration have treated Congress when it comes to um, oversight, right? And when it comes to uh, complying with subpoenas and and, and sending witnesses and and the like. So um, uh, I would like to think that there might be some Republican senators who will, uh, you know, who will stand up and at least, at the very least, even if they're going to vote to acquit the guy, at least demand a fair process where we get witnesses and um, and documents, et cetera. So, um, we'll see. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I, I'm not really willing to put, uh, all of my faith in, in Senate Republicans doing the right thing. Um, but, uh, but I do think we do a disservice to the process and to the country, frankly, when we sort of write it off. I mean, I see this in the media all the time where it's sort of this foregone conclusion that McConnell will get his way in the Senate or that he'll be acquitted. Um, let's not let them off the hook. They have, this is This will be a tough vote for them. They need to, you know, they need to look themselves in the mirror and decide whether or not they are going to, uh, you know, hold this president accountable or whether or not they're even going to allow a fair process in their, their chamber. The dignity of the Senate is on the line. So, are you suggesting uh, that, that McConnell would prefer Pelosi not walk the articles over? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Certainly, that is certainly what Mitch McConnell has said. He said that this week on the House floor. He sort of made a joke of saying, like, I don't understand the logic of the speaker here. You know, she's, you know, trying to hold up something that we don't want, which is the impeachment of the president. So, you know, to, in order to get her way. And so I'm not going to acquiesce. But based on sort of how hysterical the president has been over all of this, I'm, I'm not sure that um, – you know, I think Mitch McConnell has a pretty good poker face. I'm not quite so sure that the president uh, feels the same way or is even uh, or is nearly as good at pretending he does. Uh, I don't think they want this hanging out there forever. Uh, I do think the president, you know, in his own mind, wants his his uh, his day in court, so to speak. And um, and look, every senator now is going to have the choice of whether or mm-hmm. not they want to be loyal uh, to the president or to the Constitution. And right. um Right. You know, we're going to be able to we're going to be able to run on that. We're going to be able to show a contrast in 2020 between the party that defends the Constitution and, and believes that nobody's above the law, even a president and the party that doesn't. And, Fantastic. Uh, the American people are going to get to choose. Thank you. Mark Savasco is Congressman Ted Lou's chief of staff. Everything Mark Savasco says reflects the opinions of the David Feldman show but not necessarily the opinions of Congressman Ted Lieu. And if people want to follow you and Congressman Ted Lieu on Twitter, how do they do that? Uh, they can follow the Congressman at Rep Ted Lieu or at Ted Lieu. Uh, and I am at M. Savasco. Fantastic. Stay on the line for one second. Thank you so much. Sure. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump.
Let us now go to New Hampshire, where Citizen Bacon is standing by. He's covering the New Hampshire primaries for the David Feldman Show. Welcome, Citizen Bacon. Hello, David Feldman. How are you tonight? You've been very busy. Who do you have yeah, for us tonight? Yeah, I, uh, I have too much for you, Dave. Too much, but we don't have time for it all, so I don't know what we're going to do with it. Okay, so we're just going to start out with just a in the past, we got to hear Tulsi sing. Um, I have a clip of, uh, of um, Corey telling a joke, but we, we haven't gotten to that yet. But so I'm going to bring this is going to be Amy Klugerchar, and she's going to name all the states of the country in order. Really? Yeah, and which is so peculiar to me because she is a, a senator from Minnesota. There used to be a senator from Minnesota. Who could draw the freehand the map of the United States, putting all the states in it? Do you know who that is? I'm going to guess uh, Walter Mondale. No, Hubert Humphrey. No, you know who he is. He was on Saturday Night Live. Oh, oh, Al Franken can do that. Yeah, he can on a chalkboard. He can just draw the outline of the United States and put all the states inside. And then, oddly, Amy Klobuchar can name them all in alphabetical order. Can she name them in order of their admission into the union? I don't know. No one quizzed her on that. Um, Okay. Yeah. This is Amy Klobuchar naming all 50 states in alphabetical order. Yes. We're with an incredibly diverse slate of candidates. I didn't even know there were people from Virginia. Maybe I'll try every state. Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Crossing, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, North Carolina, North Carolina, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, Texas, Utah, Vermont, Virginia, Washington, West Virginia, Wisconsin, Wyoming. Okay. Yeah, just so, you know, there was this. Yeah, I saw, I've seen her a lot. It's the first time I've seen her do that little trick, so I thought that was kind of neat. It's not something she does all the time. You know, I just thought I'd throw it in. Yeah. Um, I should mention, yeah. without violating a trust, that David Bacon can not only name all 50 states in alphabetical order, he can tell you the age of consent in each oh, state. Yeah. Yeah. Should we and mention name that? the breweries. And name the breweries. I mean, uh, the you, any t- okay. What do you have for us after Amy Klobuchar? Very impressive. Very impressive. Yeah, it's just kind of neat. Um, so, well, we had, a, we had a little interview with a New Hampshire guy, but we cut that for time. So we're just going to move on to Amy. This is going to be after this event. What, what is this passive-aggressive BS? Like we're cutting no, this I, for time. I'm, I'm just saying I had another clip there that was a good interview. With you're, Amy you're, and you're, you're, tur- you're playing the victim and you're turning the audience against me. You're making me seem like the harpy who's trying to emasculate I, you when all I'm trying to do is emasculate you. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, I just have, Dave, I have so much stuff. You know, I, 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 you know, I, I don't I know. know. I know it's you do, but so my, my, on, on Tuesday's show, we'll go longer. Yeah, okay. I mean, is, I, that, is yeah, that fair? Yeah, we, I, whatever works. I mean, I again, I just, I, it's, 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 it's overwhelming how much. Yeah, but I'm when getting. you do that, I'm going to get emails from listeners saying, "Why are you being mean to Bacon?" 
Well, I mean, yeah. I, why are you being mean to Bacon? Because I'm threatened by you, and I feel like I'm losing control of my show to, to somebody who I don't particularly care for. <laughs> don't particularly care for me. That's so I mean, you've waltzed in, you play the victim, you, you're so innocent. Meanwhile, you're the biggest part of the show now, and I feel like a supernumerary. Well, if I'm the biggest part of the show, you wouldn't be putting me on last. I put you on last. Oh, now, oh, oh, you don't like your billing now. Now you don't like your billing. I'm only reacting to what you say. I'm only reacting oh, to what you say. Oh, this is just devolved into... Oh, my God. It, it started off, oh, you're my hero, David Feldman. It's just such an honor to change your oh, wait, bedpan. Let me, let me get, oh, my God, look at these sheets. I can't believe I get to touch his bed sores. And now it's like I can do what Feldman does. <laughs> yeah, I'm setting up. Yeah, I do. I actually, Well, you'll hear. You'll hear later. I've got people who are like, yeah, I'd love to do another interview with you. And, you know, I mean, maybe we'll hear that. I don't know. Maybe that's the time, too. Yeah, well, this is America, baby. I got to cut you down to size. I got to put you on last. I got to tell you that we're short on time. I know. This is I how know. capitalism I works. I need, you, need all, to be, like, you need to be a little off center with me. You need to be brooding about whether or not I like you or not. Well, you know, I might, I, uh, you know, Tulsi and I are getting to know each other. So they, I know she's good with, um, oh, who's the pod? What's that? I don't know if it's very popular. Jimmy Dore. Some podcast. Jimmy No, Dore. she goes on, she goes on a different one. Oh, Joe something. I don't know. He Rogan? Okay, I guess. Joe Rogan? Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll talk to her and she'll get me on his show. I don't know. <sighs> but anyway. Whatever happened to blind, stupid loyalty? Whatever wow. happened to whatever happened to gratitude for, you know, whatever happened to thanking me for all the times I don't hit you? <laughs> wow, yeah. I'm not even. I'm not even. I'm not even going anywhere. Okay, with that. Right, so you got so, okay. You got more Amy. What do you got? Okay, so th this was that. There was this. Um, uh, yeah, this is there was this big event in New Hampshire. It was a, like for college students. It was called like the College Convention 2020. They apparently do it every four years. Um, I didn't even know what was really going on until I saw some of the candidates were there. A bunch of them were there. So that, that's where Amy did that thing. This was the first time Amy took questions live from the audience, from the college students. She always does the uh, fishbowl. I've complained to them so many times. She finally took questions. Anyway, so this is after the fact. She did a little interview with a New Hampshire guy. We won't be hearing that. And then she was outside, and there were other people, <laughs> other people around her. And um, so there, they, uh, someone got a couple questions in about the war. And you will hear me ask a unrelated question or try to once again. You would have heard me also do that earlier about. But we won't hear that. Okay. So this is just a quick thing about Amy talking about the war. And when you say Amy, for us laymen, you're talking about Senator Amy Klobuchar. Um, I believe that is her name and title. Okay, yes. we're not the cognoscenti like David Bacon. So, okay. The, the condescente? Cognos You're the condescente and the cognoscenti. Oh. Here we go. Amy, Senator Amy Klobuchar. Purely for American interests, or do you feel that he has political interests? Uh, you know, I I hope to God uh, that that wasn't about his political interest because he literally 
putting people's lives at risk uh, in our own country and all over the world. And that's one of the things we've got to figure out from this briefing. But is there any inclination that he ha is doing this for political purposes? Uh, one of my problems with him is when you look at the pattern of the, you know, impromptu um, summit, right. which wasn't really a summit with Kim Jong-un that um, produced nothing. You think about his uh, tweet that he was inviting the Taliban to Camp David that got a whole bunch of news. But as it turned out, the people negotiating in Afghanistan, the Ghani government and the Taliban, didn't know anything about it. Um, so you do see this rash foreign policy decision that seems geared toward getting attention. And again, I, I hope that's not what happened here. Uh, right, Taxation without representation. Shouldn't 16-year-olds be able to vote? Was that you asking whether or not 16-year-olds should be allowed to vote? That is correct, yes. Good. Was that, that was the, oh, somebody sounded like you, but that wasn't you earlier asking if it was a political move as opposed to uh, a military no. move. No, that was someone, because I had asked the same question earlier and they kind of just denied me and then I tried to get it in again because she made some comment during her speech thing. She was talking about 18-year-olds and voting and stuff, so it seemed like, oh, this is an appropriate time to talk about, well, freaking what about 16, you know? Yeah. Did she make eye contact actors. with you? She doesn't really, uh, yeah, she kind of, she just blows me off because I'm not freaking CNN or ABC or NBC, you know? You should go and yeah. watch Alexandra Pelosi's HBO documentary where she went around and followed uh, Carrie and Bush in 2004. And, mm. you know, she wasn't really a reporter, but you should watch right. this and see the way they interacted with her and how playful they were. Granted, it's Nancy Pelosi's daughter, but still, you right. know, if somebody's on the trail and asking questions, they should be playing with you at the very least. Okay. Uh, clip F. What is Clip F? Okay. So Clip F, when I was down in Manchester, I used to hang out in Manchester a lot more when I was part of that artist collective. And I remembered when I was down there, oh, my gosh, there's this Iraqi guy who I kind of know. So what a better time than to talk to him than right now. Because he and he'll t he was in he was a uh, he 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 was in the, he he joined the he came to America and he joined the service and stuff at some point he was a, he did some translating work for uh, the United States. How so old is he? he? Was in the, oh, he's got to be fifties, uh, you know, something like that. Okay. Um. So he's been in Manchester. For, he'll tell you all the stuff. But um. So I just thought I'll, I'll just get a quick thing in. He was in a hurry to go. But at the end, and you'll hear this, he's like, I'll sit down with you and talk more if you want. So we'll see what you think. And then if you want me to talk to him more, I can go talk to him more. OK, this is David Bacon talking to an Iraqi immigrant. Right. <laughs> yeah, this is David Bacon for the David Feldman Show. And I'm down in Manchester at that uh, college uh, convention 2020. And when I used to come down to Manchester all the time, I used to go to this place called, what is it, Spice War? Spice Center. Spice Center in Manchester. And I remember the gentleman there. Um, oh, well, you're probably better telling your story than I will be. So um, what do you, you can say your name if you want. Or, uh, uh, my name is Tamam Mohammed. Uh, I've been living in Manchester since uh, 1999. Uh, I joined the military in 2010, end of 2009, and I stationed three years in Iraq. I was volunteered to stay that long in Iraq. Right, wow. Yeah, so and when I done the military, I went, came back to Manchester. I started my own business. And you did translating work, I think. Part it, of my my job was an interpreter. Yeah, right, right, translation. right. Translation. Right. Yeah. 
and then you've you've you, you're like a small business success. You've had a whole bunch of different stuff. I know I've come here since. Gosh, yes, I, yeah, I do some other stuff. I do real estate. Uh, right. You have a car thing or something. I do, like yeah. Yeah. But, you know, know. these things. Because there was an article about you that I happened to read one time, and of I was course, like, of course, of course. I was like, oh, yeah, I yeah, know yeah. who he is. Oh, yeah, my yeah. gosh. Oh, yeah, I used to flip uh, houses, candles, and right, right, I right. have some properties, renting them, and uh, yeah, I, I go to the auction, buy cars, and resell oh, them. Oh, yeah, that yeah. one, it's like Saturdays or something yes, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I drive past that, but. Because nice. I, I, I sell antiques, so I go to auctions too, but I don't oh, do cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just, what I was thinking, like, oh, my gosh, you know, so, you know, at least a lot about the area and stuff, and now there's a, gosh, we just like assassinated a guy in Iran, yes, yes, which, yes, yes. oh my gosh, like I know Iraq, there's a big difference between Iran and Iraq as far as military power and stuff. I don't know. I'm, I'm not trying to make you feel in fear. Are you there? Oh, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Well, because I have to dominate you, but we, we, we killed Soleimani in Iraq at Baghdad airport. Okay. Right. I just, you said, did I? you said we killed him in Iran <clears throat> and oh. I'm hanging on your every word trying oh, I to thought I said, yeah, trying to find something I do wrong. I have to. Right, right. Well, the difference is it's just an N and a Q. I mean, the, you know, mm-hmm. are you drinking? Yeah. Are you drinking? Um, why? Just curious. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Let's get back to your interview. It's great. It's great. But I'm just trying to work on your self-esteem. Oh, you, yeah, I'm not, you, you can't. I'm sorry? You, I don't think you can. I don't think you can, you know, I don't. I'm, I'm just trying to wear it down a little. I'm just trying to wear it down a little. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, and then I go talk with people and it just, oh, it just boosts me up. It's so, you know, it's so invigorating talking to all these new people. I like, so, I know, I know. You, know, you, you can beat me down a little bit, but uh, they'll just raise me back up, Dave. Okay, you're one of my bitches. And oh, I know. Wow. And so when you go out and you deal with the Johns, they, you know, they, they love you. I interviewed you. a John today. I okay. interviewed a John today. All right. Let's so go. Funny. Let's go back to uh, your interview. No, if you had any thoughts about that or. I mean, about the association to that guy in general. Well, I still have contact with cousin, family, my mom, brothers who live there. Right. Well, like most of the Iraqis. Oh, because they assassinated an Iraqi guy yeah. too, an important person the, too. The, the thing about the Iranian things, people there are so excited because they don't want the influence from Iran to take over Iraq. That's, that's what happened. Right. So the Iraqi in general are so excited about killing that guy. Okay. But killing Iraq, that's a problem because now what they say is the media, Iraqi government, and the Iraqi people like Iran and Iraq are going to have a problem in, in, in Iraq. They gonna, they, they, their fight going to be in Iraq. Right. So the Iraqi, they're going to pay the price. Right. Economy ways, security ways, and so many different like uh, kinds. So that's the only problem. They didn't appreciate they get that guy with Iraqi leaders right. in Iraq. Right. They have no problem if, you get, if they got killed somewhere else. Right. So that's the, the whole issue. It was issue. the fact that it was the, the Iraqi guy, of course. Yeah, because there. Iran going to do something. She's going to have a reaction. Right. And right. when she got, they, they're going to do it in Iraq because they have so many militia work underneath them. Right. They're right, going right. to use them now. Right. So that's right. what will happen. That's, oh, I see. That's yeah, that yeah. The, the, the biggest problem. That's the easiest place for them yeah, to, yeah, to that, do anything. Yeah, yeah. Even most right of the government because they need the support. When, when the ISIS took over, like almost... 30% of the Iraqi land. Right. They got support from Iran, from coalition forces. So most of the militia got so much support right. financially, military from Iran. Right. So Iran has so many arms now in Iraq. 
Right. These guys, they're not going to be quiet. Right. They're going to do whatever Iran going to tell them to do. Right. Like Iran, they're going to be more smart. They're not going to do it directly by Iranian military or forces. Right, 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 right. They're going to use someone else. Right, right, right. But so it's more hidden in a way. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you don't know. So the, what the Iraqi do... Like something happened in Kenya or something? At the yeah, that, yeah, see, that's the first. That's just the start. Right, exactly. And no, then exactly. They, they, they threat they're going to do more stuff. Right, and, right, right. They're going to hurt more people, specifically America. Right, of course. So that's the thing Iraqi, that's why they concern. Say, okay, this all the problem going to happen in Iraq, because most of the U.S. forces in Iraq right now. Right. So Iran yeah. want to go do something against U.S. Right. It's going to do in Iraq. Right, right, and, right. And they have the foundation to do that. Right. And so many militia work for them. Right, or right. Even most, some of the government, government or government in Iraq, they work for Iran. So, right, right, right. So it's a good environment for the Iranian to do whatever they want to do against the U.S. there. Right, right, right. Yeah. Wow. Well, I don't want to, I thank you for your time. I don't want to take too uh, no, much time because I know you're, you're, you're hurrying out of here. But That's fine. But yeah. if, if you want some other time, just let me know yeah, yeah, ahead. Yeah. I can't sit with you and, yeah, we talk more detail. If you yeah, want. that would yeah. be super. I would, I would love that. Yeah, of and course. It's of great course. to see you again, and yeah. I've always loved your store. And the, your your uh, uh, pitas are like the freshest sure. I can get anywhere. God oh my, oh my gosh! Hey, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate so it. What was your name again? Tamam Muhammad. And we're at uh, Spice Center, Center Spice in Manchester, Center. Yep. and it's uh, it's the best. Okay, thank, thank you. Very you. Much. That's his restaurant. It's like a, it, there is a small little restaurant, but it's more like a supply store to get, you know, uh, he has like great olives and, you know, all that kind of stuff, all kinds of uh, Middle East food. And it's his place? Yeah, it's, it's his place. Uh, yeah. He, he had it for a while. He sold it to someone else. They tried to expand it. They went too far. They closed it down. He bought it back. And then he does some other stuff. He's great. I mean, he uh, there was a, there was an article about him in the paper years ago, and I was reading it, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's the guy I see all the time when I go to that store. Mm-hmm. I didn't know he was a veteran, you know, a veteran, and and was a translator and all this stuff. And sometimes, like when I after I stopped the interview, like he's like, oh yeah, like I think it was I can't remember if it was Gene Shaheen or something. like other people in New Hampshire who are political people, like go and talk with him. So I was like, oh, this is beautiful. And he makes the pita bread there. No, he actually brings it up from like Boston or something, but it's just, it's just boom, you're getting it like the day it was made down there. And they just, there's a person that brings it up. So his stuff, it's really good. What's the name of it? What's the name of the place? It was called Spice Center. I like the way you pretend you can't remember the name of the company that's giving you a kickback on my. That's a good feint. You know, Good. I'm not that sophisticated, Dave. Yeah, I, you know I, I, I don't suspect a thing. No, it, does, it sounds like it's great food. It, it really does. I'll have to keep yeah, that in mind if we go up to Manchester. Okay. Yeah, he, he's awesome. Yeah, so, if, you want, if you want me to talk, yeah, absolutely, talk to more. absolutely, right, right, right. great job, right, right, right. great job. And, and so the other thing is, he's talking about how Iran is going to attack in Iraq, and that's the morning of the day that Iran. I t- attacked our bases in Iraq. So right. he's like telling me that in that morning, which was crazy. And then later, the next clip, which is going to be Tulsi's gaggle later that night, all the questions are going to be about the attack. Okay. Now, did Tulsi, who recognized you, who wanted to talk to you? Okay, so I, I got to the Tulsi event and it was it was already because I came up from the uh from Manchester, and the Tulsi event was in Northfield, so that's like an hour away, let's just say, uh, more or less. And so 
45 minutes. So when I got, I got there a little bit late. She had already started, but I don't need all the stuff. I, you know, so she was already asking questions anyway. So it took a while to do the gaggle. And then it was all like all this war stuff. And I'm, I don't, I didn't know that that had occurred. You know, I don't. That, that they had home. fired on the right. two bases in right. Iraq to get right. even with the assassination of Suleimani. Right. So I had no idea. And there were three of the, uh, 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 Beatrice, Nicole, and uh, Julie, who are all like in beds for NBC, ABC, whatever, different companies. So they were all there, and then they started just asking. Tulsi like came out, and the first thing she said was, "She, I'll just make a statement about this stuff." So she's just talking about the war, and I'm just standing there. I'm like, going, "Okay, there's something going on. I'm just gonna, even though there was more than ample opportunity for me to interject and ask a question, I just stood there and just taped it and let the people who know what they're doing." Ask these questions because I knew nothing about them. But when did so, she recognize you? I'm getting to that. Oh, I'm sorry. So I, I'm sorry. I know you're trying to hurry me. No, I'm um, no, I'm no, I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm setting the scene. So she, so she, I was already in a circle with her, and I asked no questions. So mm -hmm. she left the thing. I chatted with the reporter people a little bit, and then when I left. I went out, there was a, like a van there or something. I didn't see her. And I was walking, leaving the place to go to get to my truck. And she like called me over. She's like, Hey, wow. I mean, she didn't rec remember my name, but she called me over to like talk. Wow. And, and I was like, Hey, I, I mean, I wanted, I, I, I thanked her for like, it's really cool that she's in the race yes. because she was also an Iraqi vet. Yeah. Talk about this stuff. Yeah. So I was like, oh, my gosh, I am so happy that you're in the race. Like, we held hands. It was, you know. And then wow. I like, it was like, okay, I this is such an opportunity for me to say, hey, I'd love to interview you. You know, I didn't even pull out my tape thing because it was like we just had all this war talk. Well, all this it's stuff. interesting. Like, I have planted a chip inside your brain, and I have a recording of your thoughts no. when Tulsi okay, held, held your hand. Here. That's I'm not even sure what I'm not even sure what that is. That's that's the sound of David Bacon your brain touching What's happening? Tulsi Gabbard's hand. That's what you're thinking. That's your reaction. I I don't know what that sound effect was, but it's the, it, it's not a sound effect. It's Pretending you don't know what that is, that's David Bacon holding Tulsi Gabbard's hand. So, you know, again, I quiet, feel like quiet. I, Show some respect for your inner well, monologue. I've already I've, I've apparently already heard it. So why hear it again? Because we're short on time. OK, so oh. this is. Tulsi's gaggle. This is before this is before she went over to you in the parking lot. Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. She's married, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know her husband too, yeah. Oh, can you can we turn the chip off inside Bacon's brain? I'm, I'm running short on time. Stop David, calm down, okay? I know. I know. It's Tulsi Gabbard, and she, she 
to remember you. I get it. I get it. It's a big thing. Yes. That's a horse. It's you, Bacon. Oh, it's you. And now let's you listen. Bacon. It's you, Feldman. Okay. It's you, Bacon. All right. Yeah. Clip number G. Well, not really a number, but yeah. Clip. Hey, it's pronounced Iran and Iraq, not Iran. <laughs> oh, I see. You you can correct me, but I haven't got it. You're like my wife. Ah, hang on. You mentioned your wife, and now here's my inner monologue. Because when you're out chasing the candidates, who do you think is chasing your wife? I can't hear you. What? I'm too excited thinking about how while you're busy in Manchester, um, inside your house. And by the way, you're frightfully low on moisturizer. I've been meaning to tell you. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't I don't I don't buy or use those products. So, you well, know, you, anyway. must have, you probably brought your own. Probably brought your whatever. Own. Whatever. Okay. I, I like this dynamic. I like the idea. See, now I'm yeah. the alpha. I like the idea that I'm sending you on these foolish t errands to track down the candidates. It's just a plan. Yeah, exactly. So that I can bed your wife. I like this. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I think this, Yeah, and I think it endears me to the audience because they're rooting for you. Oh, and, okay. But now I think I switched it. I flipped the script, and they're rooting for me really to cuckold what? you. I'm cuckolding you. Yeah. I'm sorry? If you need that to boost your email, no worries. Don't worry. Oh, you're breaking up. And I sense condescension. <laughs> All right, this is clip letter G, correct? Yes. Well, on one show you called him a clipping, which or, which was insane. So I don't know if that's true it's, or not, it's a yeah. clipping. We 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 yeah. yes, we don't yeah. like to yeah. intimidate the audience with shorthand. Yes, it's a clipping. Clipping numbers. <laughs> Wait, number? What's that again? I'm sorry. Clipping letter G. There we there go. You go. That's fantastic. Yeah, wasn't that good? Oh, wow. That was great. Okay, let's go to clip number H. Tulsi Gabbard. Um, Wait, what, I want to start out with commenting on, on what's happening right now. Uh, even as we're awaiting more information about this uh, attack that occurred on Al-Assad Air Base, uh, I think it's clear to point out this is exactly what I've been warning against. Uh, Trump began with taking this act of war, and it's very quickly escalating. We're seeing one retaliation after another, this tit-for-tat increasing, needlessly putting our men and women in uniform in harm's way. We need to get our troops out of Iraq and Syria, because the longer they are there, the more likely they are at risk and the more likely that this escalation of retaliation will continue, digging our country deeper and deeper into this quagmire of another endless war, this time with Iran. Congresswoman, um, 
Given the strikes in, in Iran tonight, um, it looks like they're... In Iran or Iraq? Sorry, in Iraq. My apologies. Yeah. Um, Trump's national meeting with his National Security Council, there are a lot of vacancies right now, a lot of acting positions, a lot of positions vacant. What is your response to the lack of permanent roles in the administration right now? Uh, I think there's one person who is responsible for this, and that's President Trump. He is the commander-in-chief. So there should be no finger-pointing at anyone else. He has chosen to surround himself with neocons and warmongers, people who've been wanting to go to war with Iran for a very long time. And they have exactly what they've been working towards. Ultimately, President Trump is serving as commander-in-chief, and he alone is responsible for where we are. And he alone must take the actions necessary to get our troops out of harm's way in Iraq and Syria and to begin to de-escalate this situation to prevent our country from entering headlong into a war with Iran that would be far more devastating than anything that our country has seen in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Congresswoman, tomorrow Congress will be briefed and then they will vote on a resolution. The House will vote on a resolution of whether or not to limit the president's authority in Iran. What is your understanding at this moment of how you will vote? What possibly could the Trump administration say to convince you to not vote no on that? Uh, I'm headed to Washington early tomorrow morning uh, to join in and listen to this intelligence briefing that we'll receive, I think, early in the afternoon. Uh, And we're waiting to see what the language will be in Congress, but Congress must act in order to uh, prevent Trump and his administration from continuing to escalate this war. That's the bottom line. Congress should have acted a long time ago. Uh, As I've said earlier, I worked with the Armed Services Committee to include a provision in the National Defense Authorization Act that President Trump has already signed into law that would have prevented this administration from taking military action against Iran without congressional authorization. Leaders in Congress stripped that provision out of the bill. We are where we are. Congress must act immediately and in a bipartisan way in the interests of our country and our national security interests to prevent further escalation of this war with Iran. You are in a unique position. You are the only Iraq war veteran who is running for president currently. Um, You also um, have previously deployed and you're still active duty. Can you talk to me a little bit about the human um, toll of the attack today? Um, in Iraq, a place where you've served. And um, uh, I'm just curious. I mean, I, I don't think um, your your group has been um, called up for active duty, but can you just talk to me a little bit about the price of war and how the personal effect on you? Yeah, like I can tell you, walking in here tonight and starting to see the alerts of this attack at Al-Assad Air Base uh, brought, black, brought back a flood of memories from the time that I served in Iraq in 2005 during the height of the war, where in our camp and in many other camps, we received daily mortar attacks, daily rocket attacks, uh, constantly putting our troops at risk. Um, I just checked my phone and I've got a flood of messages from friends of mine who I deployed with, uh, some who are still serving in the National Guard or reserves or active duty. uh, And Honestly, they're texting me saying, what the fuck wow. is going on? <laughs> yeah. She's gone full beta. Those of us who have served there understand exactly. very clearly uh, the serious ramifications and the cost of what is happening here 
and the fact that we do not need to be here, nor should we be as a country in the position of waging yet another wasteful, unnecessary war. And if I could just follow up on that, you spoke with the Privé family tonight. Yeah. They were the last couple that approached you. Um, I noticed it was a bit of an emotional moment. Yeah. They shared part of their story with me about their son's deployment. You've met with a lot of military families. They show up to these events. What's going through your mind in that moment? Just the incredible sacrifice that our men and women in uniform make and that their families make. And as we hear a lot of politicians uh, speaking with toughness and bluster on television about what we have to do, the vast majority of them have no idea what it means to serve in harm's way, nor do they understand what these moms and dads and husbands and wives and children are going through as their loved one is called up and sent overseas as they're questioning, what is this for? These are people and their families who've committed their lives to serving our country. A lot of people don't understand what that's like. When you think about what would you be willing to give your life for, your entire life, this is how special the sacrifice is and rare that our troops and their families make, which is why it is so critical that we have leaders in Congress and a commander-in-chief that understands that and that respects that and makes these decisions honoring that sacrifice and not needlessly throwing it around like it's worthless. And that's what we have today. That is exactly what's going on. That's her appeal. There. Great job. Uh, oh, there's more to hear, but I'm listening to her and I'm thinking, I was a little dismissive of her. My listeners kept yeah. saying, give her a chance, give her a chance. And then right after he kills Soleimani, right. you start hearing from Tulsi and you realize there's a big segment of our population that has had it with these endless wars. And perhaps somebody like me, who isn't, uh, you know, only 1% of this country serves in the military. Not right, me. Right, right, right. So right, right. it's an abstraction. And my biggest concern right, is Medicare. No draft. I'm sorry? Because there's no draft anymore. Right. <clears throat> and right. Medicare they, for they all is away. my they, issue. Yeah. But right. if but you're... people have. Yeah, but if you're committed to putting an end to these endless wars, right. Tulsi speaks to you. And so this oh, is... Oh, let's go back to this. Great job. Seriously, great job. Thank you. In the wake of tonight's news, what does the Commander-in-Chief owe the American public and the armed services? Making decisions about when and where our military is sent into harm's way that serve our national security interests. You know, for, for me and so many other people, we volunteered to join the military, uh, motivated by the attacks on 9-11 to go after and defeat those terrorists who attacked us on that day. Didn't hesitate to volunteer to deploy to accomplish that mission. Our men and women in uniform are not uh, afraid of going and fighting the battles that must be fought, but those battles must be battles that actually work towards ensuring the safety and security of our country. The lives of our troops should not be squandered needlessly in fighting more wasteful regime change wars, 
uh, wars that actually undermine the national security interests of our country. And Iran is final question. If there's retaliation for the first two waves of attacks tonight, that they have a third wave prepared to destroy two other sites, how can America de-escalate this situation right now? By exercising leadership. By exercising leadership. That's what a president and commander-in-chief is supposed to do. Not further escalate the situation by saying, well, they did this, now we've got to respond, and then they're going to respond, and we're going to respond bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then what? We find ourselves years down the line continuing this escalation of tit for tat and seeing the deaths of countless numbers of people, American lives and people in these countries who are suffering because of yet another needless, wasteful war. Exercise leadership to de-escalate tensions to sit across the table, to begin negotiations, to be the adult in the room and actually lead in the interests of our country, setting aside selfish interests or political interests, actually lead in the interests of our national security and the American people. Congresswoman, can I just I know, ask question. one follow-up to that? Um, there's been a lot of talk of whether or not politicians consider this to be an assassination. But at the heart of that question is really whether or not the United States was reacting in self-defense to an imminent attack. You've studied a lot of international humanitarian law. Do you think that the United States violated international law? I'm not an attorney or an expert in international law, um, so I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, what I have been focused on is this was a violation of the Constitution. The president should have come to Congress, period. That's what the Constitution mandates. And the inexperience and lack of understanding of national security and foreign policy is very clear in this president very carelessly making a decision that has thrown our entire nation into a war that never should have happened in the first place. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, yeah, great job. The, yeah, the I mean, you can see why I didn't ask a question. Yeah, but, you know, you know she is yeah, I, the same way Bernie is consistent on income inequality. She is consistent on keeping us out of these wars. Right. And uh, she should not be uh, dismissed. She's a, right, ser exactly. she's a serious candidate. So, right, right. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. last question is for an unserious candidate. He's a Republican. Wait, question. question? Last question? What? What did I? Oh, did I make a mistake? I don't. Well, I don't know. You said last question. Last I clip. I meant first. last clipping. Oh, clipping. Oh, Are you? God. You're not drinking. No, not drinking. no, no. You don't no. drink. Yeah. I'm getting a contact high from you. Well, you used to get high too, so maybe you're maybe you. I don't know if you're smoking pot or something. Uh, I don't you know, I, I, I give you a compliment. And you just eat me up. Okay, Joe Walsh, running for yes, president, okay. Republican. So now we got rid of the serious stuff. This is what some people like. Okay, so the first thing to say is, so this is Joe Walsh. This is at that uh, campaign twenty uh, convention 2020 uh, college. Uh, anyway, so there's a lot of college students. There's a large group of um there's 27 college students from uh, a school in Virginia. There's a bunch of kids up from Louisiana. And the kids ask unbelievably good questions. So what I did is I, I had his whole uh, thing, and I just edited down 
so you've got a couple of the really strong, really, you know, good questions for him. And then you're going to hear me interacting with him a little bit. And then you're going to hear a guy at the very end telling me that I can't interrupt him anymore. Okay, good. This is David yes. Bacon. And, uh, let me, Sorry, I want to, before we start that, I have to just give a shout out to Jeremy from the UCS, the Union of Concerned Scientists, because he's probably listening. I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to play your clip. Um, we're short on time. Hopefully next time we can get your clip in, Jeremy. And, you. and, and whose fault okay. is it that we're short on time? I don't know. You, you apparently have so many amazing guests and, and talk to them. So that's why. Are you with my wife again? <laughs> we have time for this. We have time for that. Okay. Just want to remind you, it's still my show, David Bacon. Yeah, well, it's 2020. I mean, you know, <laughs> everyone will open their eyes. <laughs> it's still my show. All right, this is, okay. this is Joe Walsh. Okay. Um, my name is Andy Cantor. I'm from Newburyport High School in Massachusetts. Um, in your April 2019 interview with the New York Times, you stated that Mr. Trump is a racist arsonist who encourages bigotry and xenophobia to rouse his base. Yet, you have tweeted in a quote, I have a right to say blacks are lazy. Cool. Additionally, on June 19, 2014, you used the N-word in a tweet. You then defended the speech as provocative. Finally, you shamed Trump for his bigotry, yet support the border wall, and on September 15, 2019, you stated, I thought Mexico was going to pay for the wall, and as the daughter of a Mexican immigrant, this is very important to me. How is this speech different from Trump's rousing speech, and are you aware of the impact that your words have on ethnic and racial minorities? Absolutely. Great question. Thank you. By the way, when I, tweet, when I tweeted that I thought Mexico was going to pay for the wall, I was making fun of Trump's lie that Mexico was going to pay for the wall. I have always been, let me just be really direct, I have always been obsessed with the issue of race. White people and black people in this country tend to be, especially my, my generation, older than your generation. I don't know what it's like for your generation. I bet it's better. But white people and black people, my generation, hesitate to talk about race. They're afraid to talk about race. And oftentimes, if a white person talks about, white people are afraid to talk about race because they're afraid of being called a racist. So we create this dynamic in this country where we don't talk about race because we don't want to be called a racist. I started a podcast about a year ago called Uncomfortable Conversations. I'm a white guy, I do it with a black radio host from Chicago. And once a week, we get together, white guy and black guy, and we talk about really frank things. Like how come white people and black people look at police officers, cops differently? Can black people become racist? He and I had a big heated argument about that. I'm interested in getting this country talking about race. Oftentimes, as I talked about this or tweeted about it over the years, there were some times when I went over the line and said things to be a little too provocative. So I'm just, that, that's my rationale. I can't explain anything Trump says because Trump doesn't believe in anything. 
Trump doesn't care about anything. If Trump can get reelected by throwing brown people or black people or white people under the bus, he'll do it. With me, it's a serious issue that I want people talking about, and sometimes I went too far trying to do that. Thank you. Yes, sir. You've talked a lot about your own history, about um, your own interest in race tonight. Uh, in 2016, you called Obama a Muslim as an insult. You furthered the idea that the first African American president was not, in fact, born in this country. No, no, Unless no, you no, have. No, yes, no, you absolutely no, have. No. In I'm 2017, okay. Thank you. In 2017, in 2017, you also referred to Stevie Wonder as another ungrateful black millionaire. Um, with all of your racism, why do you think that doesn't automatically disqualify you from running for president? Wow. Um, never, ever, ever have I been a birther. Ever. And oh, by the way, we have a birther in the White House. Never, ever, ever have I been a birther. Period. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm just going to be straight with you. I have tweeted out 100,000 times in the last six years. About 100,000 tweets. Because I've been at the front lines pushing issue after issue. And if you looked at my 100,000 tweets, my friend, you're going to probably find 100 or 200 tweets that you're just going, what the hell was Joe saying? And then you know what you and I'd have to do? Out of my 100,000 tweets, you'd have to sit down with me and we'd walk through those 100 or 200 no. tweets. And you no. know what I'd do? I'd say, well, that one was stupid. I apologize for that one. But here's what I meant when I said that one. It's like I beat my wife here, once this year. And again, I don't know how many times you've tweeted in the last six years. Oh, hold on. Okay. Okay, fine. That's great. Okay. I can, hold on. Hold on. I know. I'm giving you I'm giving you my history. And you either like it or you don't. But I have been an outspoken leader from my viewpoint in the last six years. So I've tweeted, hold on, I've tweeted a lot and I've said a lot of things. And the best I can do is walk through everything I've said and apologize for things that need to be apologized for. And I close with this. And explain things I've said. And again, man, I, I, am, I am so obsessed with the issue of race. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and oftentimes I push the envelope because I care so much about it. And oftentimes I say things I, re I, I regret because I care so much about race. Yeah, that's not good to care that much about oh, race God, the way you care about it. But the racist oh, okay. things doesn't make you... No, 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 but, but, but this is what I was going to say. I had a question. You care about answer, race, but if you're racist... I was going to go with the question. Raise your hands. Raise, raise your hands. When was the last time you heard Donald Trump apologize about anything? Raise your hand. We're not here seeing him, though. No, We're no, seeing no. you. Hold on, hold on, hold on. No, hold on. I mean, it's I, uh, No, I'm saying it. Listen to what I'm saying. Hi, my name is Patrick, and I'm from Massachusetts. Hey, Patrick. So you said earlier that you want to help the needy. Uh, and you've made a lot of comments about helping the needy as far as college goes. So what do you plan on doing about the rise of the homeless population, and would you consider doing something along the lines of housing first? Yeah, it's a, look, look, again, I, I, I was about to say I'm a Republican. This is why I'm a Republican. 
Uh, generally, I'm a conservative because I believe. Look, guys, here's the deal. Um, when Republicans and Democrats fight about issues, they're really fighting about what should government do to help fix that issue. I, I don't know of any Democrat in the country who doesn't want us to have the best schools in the world. I don't know of any Republican in America who doesn't want us to have the best schools in the world. Betsy DeVos. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> you know it. It's true, though. No. No, hey, thank you, my friend. Thank you. Appreciate the shout-out. I know her. You may not like her viewpoint at all. I've got some problems. She doesn't want any can good I, public schools, though. Go ahead, sir. Let me address the question. Thank you. Um, but I know for a fact that Betsy DeVos wants us to have the best schools in America. What Just not public. Why? What? Come on, man. Shush. I don't want another word out of you, please. Wow. I don't. I know. I've, I'm answering a question. It's all good, sir. Okay. But if you, you say something that's not true, I'm going to make a comment about it because you're lying. Like the president that we have. I'm going to answer the question. Um, but so, so, just, so just know that it's too easy to say Republicans don't care about this and Democrats don't care about that. Um, my opinion with any issue like that, homelessness or literacy, is the same. I want Washington, D.C., if they do anything, to give me the money to give local people and states who know better how to deal with the... Great. That was great, Bacon. That was well, great. He's from... Huh? You're breaking up. What? Oh. You're breaking up. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not doing anything. All right. <laughs> what, what happened? He froze? No, 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 no. No, I was just saying he's very charismatic and he's kind of fun. He always is having a good time. He's and an I actor. Imagine, he studied with yeah. Lee Strasberg at the Strasbergs. Really? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's kind of like what you hear about people talking about Trump, like in the back room, yeah. when they're like, oh, he's kind of fun. And it's the same kind of thing. Like, you get a vibe from him and an energy. But I can counteract that a little bit. Like, you know, I see a similarity, but it's like, oh, he's just, oh, he's, he's I don't like him at all. Yeah. But, um, you know, and, and the kids, those questions were great. Amazing. The questions, the questions were just great. And there's, again, you know. Perhaps in the future, we'll hear a lot more of those kids if we get to play the tape. But I have tons of stuff of them, like, pounding Bill Gardner, who is the New Hampshire uh, uh, Secretary of State, about why New Hampshire is the primary. And there's a whole, like, thing about this. There's some NHPR podcast called Stranglehold, and, and Bill doesn't really give them a, a sit-down interview. So I have all this stuff on that. Okay, but, okay, you know, okay. We're, it, great yeah. job, as always. Let's Let's – end this because um, the yep. show is too long today. Yeah. You'll come back Monday night for Tuesday's show, and we'll try yes. to give you more time. Okay, David Bacon, great job as always. Stay on the line for one second. Oh, hey. Yes. Feldman, I got one thing. So my daughter was like, hey, Dad, at least let people be able to contact you. So I have a way for people to contact me if they want now. Okay. Okay? So 
I have a new uh, Gmail account, and it's called. It's so if you want to ask me a question or tell me something, give me advice, what or criticize me, whatever. Um, you can email me at davidcitizenbacon at gmail dot com. Great, citizen. I think Larry Fisher came up with that. Citizen David Bacon. Citizen ba- yeah, so that's, yeah, I could have just done it, but it's David Citizen Bacon. So okay, yes. David Bacon, stand on the line for one second. Great job as always. Sure but we're we're short on time. We're just we just I know. Do, we I would have given you more time, but I we could have got a whole clip in. I, I just, still my I show. Right. Still. <laughs> No, I, I we're just the show is too long tonight. <laughs> Not so long that I can't no, alpha dog you. Yeah. We just don't have the time to get to those other clips. But I want to, okay? I know you do. I can tell. All right. We'll get to them. We'll try to get to them Monday if I have time, okay? Yeah, I know. I know. Oh, okay. maybe I think I have another call. Now, hang on. I, I need to talk to you. But just what I have one final thought. I got a whole bunch of stuff. There's apparently there's a we, New Hampshire now has a non-licensing. I interviewed the trans rights person all about that. You got Booker about that. It's too bad. Got a whole bunch of stuff about Bill Gart. I'm sorry. Yeah, we're just short on time. Stand the line. Oh, for I, know, one I, know, I know. I know. We got the 27 kids from Virginia. Uh, Trent Spinner, the our guy from Politico, he didn't give me an interview, but I don't know if I should even set that up because, you know, doesn't, I don't know, there's no It's time. an embarrassment of riches and there just isn't enough time in the show, Bacon, <laughs> to get to all of them. I know. Maybe I'll try I to know. find time, uh, Monday night for Tuesday's show. Okay. But this show is just booked. It's just booked. It's solid, packed entertainment. Okay. All right. All right. Stand the line. I, I mean, one, just, I just want to remind you of something. Mm-hmm. You're sure? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I feel so mad. My show, Bacon. It's my show. <laughs> You're not taking oh. it away from me. It's all I got. This is all I have. You've got it 10 years. Is it time to pass the baton? <laughs> <laughs> the Olympics are coming up soon, can't we? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> all right. Stay on the line for one second. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self actualized hump.
here we go. Let's go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by. From 1992 to November of 2017, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Besides being an ordained minister, he is a lawyer and he is a minister in the United Church of, let me see if I'm pronouncing this properly, Christ? Correct. And the author of many books, including Piety and Politics. Yes. Well, how about the second one? Uh, God and Government, 25 Years of Fighting for Equality, Secularism, and Freedom of Conscience. Perfect. You pronounced everything correctly. Including secularism. So secularism. Why are, you not, why are you not on the uh, all-time Jeopardy! champions round that's going on this week? The GOAT? The greatest of all time? Yeah. Um, why aren't you on that? I, I I know a very bright woman who was on that, and I I expected she would win, but she said that the difficulty for her was once you get to chime in, you know, press the button so that you can give your answer, there is a human tendency to lift your thumb a little bit before you press down, and that's fatal. You can't do that. You have to just press down. I see. Yep. I'm always okay. surprised by how poorly people like Anderson Cooper and Wolf Blitzer did on Celebrity Jeopardy versus somebody like Louis C.K. How can somebody right. how could somebody like Anderson Cooper, who went to Yale and Wolf Correct. Blitzer, how can they be that ill informed? Don't you think it's the depth question? They're deep on some issues, but they don't. Do you think Wolf Blitzer goes to the movies? Do you think Wolf Blitzer watches television, knows anything about music, knows anything about sports? I'll bet he, I bet he doesn't. It's hard to be a renaissance man like you. Yes, it is. You're a like renaissance what? man. I try to be. Yes. And by renaissance man, I won't do that joke. I was no, going to say, ahead, do no, it's it would be disrespectful to you. Okay. Well, then don't do it. I, I'm fighting every urge, Reverend. Okay. Everything. I'm fighting everything. Everything. Well, Ricky Gervais, did he hold back? Was he funny? What did you think of Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes? Uh, normally, I'm glad you asked, but normally I'm not a Ricky Gervais fan, but I thought he absolutely did a spectacular job on the Golden Globes. And, you know, He's uh, he's a pretty liberal guy politically, but it was the right wing press and right wing comedians who said, oh, look at how he took down Hollywood. Look at how good he was. And a lot of uh, more liberal observers of that evening said, well, this was it was unfortunate that he that he was so harsh. Now, as you know from past conversations, I don't like when people insult other people's appearances. Right. So some of the jokes I didn't like for that reason. But on the other hand, if you're Martin Scorsese and you can't take a joke from Ricky Gervais about your height, mm -hmm. uh, I think you'll be able to slap yourself in the face and get on with your life. But the rest of it, and the basic premise here of making fun of the fact that celebrities 
were actually friends of Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, arguments about uh, sweatshops. The, many... hmm? the sweatshops that Apple relies the sweatshops. on. Sweatshops. I mean, I think hmm. these are right on. They were clever. They were tough. They were hard, and they needed to be said. And I here's agree. a guy who was able to say them. When he talked about Netflix, when he talked about the length of the event, three hours, couldn't I just have come out and said, Netflix, you pretty much want everything, goodbye. Yeah, yeah. That's, I thought those are fair digs. And I thought I was quite impressed with the comedy of Ricky Gervais that night. I agree with you. I agree with you. Okay. 100%. A lot of people... I spoke with, didn't think he was funny, didn't think that, I thought the jokes were well written, they were mathematically correct, and they were biting and mean. The only criticism I have is that he was telegraphing the cruelty and, you know, telling us yeah. that he was being dangerous as opposed to just <laughs> telling the jokes and letting the chips fall where they may. I prefer a comedian to say horrible things and then act surprised that people are offended. <laughs> to me, that adds another dimension that, you know, the guy missed, you know, he doesn't understand why everybody's upset. To me, that's funnier than, you know, saying, shut up. Shut, you know, anyway, I agree with you. <clears throat> okay. What's well, a great starting point that we agree about this? Yes. Now, the cold. Everybody has this cold, and it's a very deceptive cold, because when you get it, you say, oh, it's not that bad. It's definitely not the flu. I just feel a little blah, but it lingers, doesn't it? It does. I mean, mine's been hanging around for three weeks. Mine, too. Yeah. Mine, too. Be and careful, folks. Possibly. Yeah. What if you listen to this podcast, should you worry that you will catch the cold that the two of us and perhaps some of your other guests have it also? Do you believe it can be communicated over the computer, over the radio waves, or is it safe to listen? I think we're spreading some kind of sickness. I'm not sure it's the cold. Yeah, I think we are. Yeah. Probably not the cold. But it's not an STD either, so it's okay. I speak for yourself, Reverend. <laughs> I this is what I find so frustrating. It, it's a very mischievous cold. It's it you know you you go oh I feel good today. You go outside and suddenly you want to take a nap and just collapse. <laughs> so are you taking yep. anything for the cold? No. I think you have to take things. I believe that there are drugs and zinc products, for example, that do, in fact, if you take them right away, you lessen the severity of the cold. But my cold was already, I, I was not at a place where I was walking distance to a drugstore. So I didn't get, and I didn't take Zycam, I didn't take any zinc Um at those critical couple of days right, right when the cold begins, and then it's too late. Right. I do drink a lot of tea. Normally I drink coffee, but I drink more tea, and uh, that seems to be helping. I don't really hear that you have a cold. Do you hear that I have a cold? Well, uh, if you make me laugh, I start coughing. 
So really, yeah, I'll try to be quite sober. Before so. we talk about Iran, Bernie, yes. Bernie Sanders, yep. all of a sudden the Democratic establishment is terrified that Bernie Sanders is going to go all the way. I'm hearing talk of a brokered convention, a third party run. What do you what do you think about Bernie? He's leading in Iowa, New Hampshire, nationally. He's in second place behind Biden. Biden is down to 29%, Sanders at 20%. But uh, Biden doesn't look like he's going to win Iowa. He's in third place. No, he doesn't. He's in uh, second place in New Hampshire. What do you think? What do you think is going to happen? I think Bernie's going to continue to go up in the polls, and I think he's going to surprise a lot of people by the strength. Even if he doesn't win in some of these earliest uh, primaries, I think he's going to do spectacularly well. And I think you're absolutely right that the, the Democratic establishment is petrified about what might happen. Elizabeth Warren, I was just talking to a friend of mine in Texas who was a Bernie fan. I said to her this afternoon, you know, I had a flirtation with Elizabeth Warren, but I've backed off. I've gone home to Bernie. And uh, she said the same thing. She said, I was kind of interested in Elizabeth Warren briefly, but now I'm back with Bernie where I belong. And I think there are a lot of people in the same position. Now, an interesting couple of things are happening in polling. Uh, one, nationally, those ad buys uh, that Mayor Bloomberg has made are definitely having an effect. He's getting five, six percent. Uh, he's done a lot of ad buys in uh, Super Tuesday states and in California, and I think they're paying off. And surprisingly, Tom Steyer, in a poll released uh, just today, a Fox News poll is actually coming in in second place in South Carolina. And I don't understand that at all, because I don't think Tom Steyer's issues are of much interest to African-American voters. He is spending a lot of money there. But that's I think that could turn out just to be an outlier, not because it's a Fox News poll, because they're probably no better or worse over the last few years than any other pollster. But it's just, it, there are quirks in a lot of polling, and I think this may be one, because I don't see Tom Steyer uh, coming in second or even third in a place like South Carolina, do you? No, I don't. Gary Hart, the Colorado senator, who has yep. since retired, and he was a front runner in 84, to get the nomination, although it went to Mondale. Then 88, he almost got the nomination. Then there was some monkey business. He was George McGovern's campaign manager in 72. And a lot of ex-McGovern aides are warning that Bernie Sanders will be a reprise of George McGovern, that there'll be this massive blowout for Donald Trump. Is that fair to compare Bernie Sanders to George McGovern. And by the way, George McGovern, one of the greatest Americans of the 20th century. Absolutely. And I think but I don't think that comparison is remotely real. I think you have an enormous antagonism to, uh, against the, our current president. I think that the 
you know, Tom Daschle, of course, was the chief of staff for George McGovern. Tom Daschle was like the second person I met when I came to Washington. Um, but Daschle became much more of an establishment Democrat also. Mm-hmm. And I think lost his connections to the, the edginess of someone like McGovern and his campaign. I remember I lived in Boston at the time. I remember bookstores in Boston who sold a paperback book in the week before the election called How George McGovern Won the Election. And, of course, it was it was all fantasy and turned out to have no connection to the actual uh, data on election night. But there was a sense that George McGovern could have done more. And I think the other difference is it's hard to underestimate the catastrophe that George McGovern had with picking Tom Eagleton as his vice president. Remind us who Tom Eagleton was. Tom Eagleton was a a guy from the Midwest, a a senator, very, very fine guy. But he had had some uh, electroshock treatments. And at the time, and even today, but at the time, this was considered a horrible thing. And why didn't he disclose it, which he should have? But it just sank the campaign. Yes. And and McGovern just never. I still have my McGovern Eagleton buttons, yeah. uh, but uh, that's about as far as it went. Well, Thomas Eagleton is the author, I believe, of the War Powers Resolution. I believe two years later he authored uh, the War Powers Act. That's, that's correct. So let's talk. Correct. Let's talk about. Do I get any credit for that? Yes, you do. In fact, I wrote down a credit, and the next time I, I see you in the unlikely event you, you, you buy me dinner or something, I'll, uh, I'll give you a couple of chits. Oh, thank you, because that was a pretty good segue. That's a very good setup. Yeah, you, you brought up Eagleton. I did not. Yep. And then I went right to the War Powers Act. So he wrote the War Powers Act, and then Nancy Pelosi on Thursday passed a resolution that has no teeth and kind of suggests the War Powers Act. It's a War Powers resolution, but not quite telling Donald Trump to stay out of Iran. But I don't think Donald Trump needs to be told to stay out of Iran. I don't think he wants this thing to escalate. Do you? I wouldn't be surprised if it escalated. I think in because I don't believe that he's concerned about the escalation. Because if there is an escalation, he will, of course, blame it entirely on Iran. He will uh, he will say, we tried to work with them. They rejected our approaches. We got rid of the terrible deal. He, he lied about so many things when he announced that they were not going to, in the middle of this week, that they were not going to escalate. We were not going to escalate the conflict there. And he said, you know, the, we got out of the Iran deal. It was terrible, which it wasn't. And it's almost expired anyway. But, of course, it really doesn't expire till 2030. And he said, and by the way, all of these attacks on our air bases, uh, there, it was all done because we gave the Iranians so much money. And that's one of the talking points of the Republicans. But it is a complete lie. All that happened during that period when uh, Barack Obama was negotiating the deal, he did agree to unfreeze assets that were not ours. They were Iranian assets and then make a payment that 
we owed them, the, the nation of Iran, from back in the mid-1970s that we never paid. So Barack Obama did give that money, which we owed, unfroze assets, most of which were not even in the United States. So, But he, he wants to blame Barack Obama for right. everything. And right. Barack Obama has a lot of things he ought to be thinking about and trying to explain to himself. But that's not one of them. Yeah. As I, as I understand it, before the Shah fell in 79, Iran had purchased something like, I don't know, $1.3 billion worth of military goods. And then the revolution took place. So and they took our hostages. So the United States never made good on delivering the military hardware to Iran, even though they paid us. Uh, something like $1.4 billion for it. So we technically either owed them military hardware or had to return that $1.4 billion. And I guess Obama, as part of the deal, gave the Iranians $1.7 billion plus some interest. Like there was like $400 million in interest. Sure. But we did owe Iran that money. Of course we did. So, and, uh, you know, I mean, we didn't pay. Donald Trump understands the idea of owing people money and then not paying them. Yes, he does. So I, I would think that he would have a certain sympathy toward that. Yeah. But it's another example. He, the guy just lies about everything. He lies about the nature of the provocation. Now, uh, in in a, a speech uh, on Thursday in Ohio, he's suggesting that this imminent threat that we needed as the basis for the assassination of Somani was uh, based on a threat against our embassy, which is an interesting fact to be kind of throwing this out three days after the event. But I don't believe him. I mean, I think this is what happens when you lie about almost everything, small things, big things. Then when you try to make a statement like this and say, trust me, there are very few people of any political persuasion who honestly believe they should trust him just because he says it. Right. Now, you say he wants a war. I say he wants a pinpoint attack on Soleimani like they did with Baghdadi, get in, get out, claim victory, run on it. I mean, he can run on killing Soleimani if this doesn't turn into World War III. I don't think it turns into World War III. I think I agree with Maureen Dowd. I don't think he's the hawk we think he is. I think he's an isolationist from the Lindbergh school. I, you know, it would be nice to... To think that he has that kind of a uh, a defined philosophy of foreign affairs, but I don't think he does. I think he has multiple ideas in his head. One of those rare instances where he can hold two ideas in his head. One is the, we have to show them who's boss view, and the other is, but my God, we don't want to end up in one more endless war. But I don't think he has a specific idea. I don't think he knows enough about the region. He, I mean, he never even heard of Suleimani before last week. He he was asked about him on a uh, in a radio interview months ago. He didn't know who he was, didn't understand 
what the relationship was between he and other he thought uh, Kurds meant region. Kurds got the Kurds and the Kurds mixed yeah. up. He, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, so so we so we can't give him too much credit for being an expert on the region. But I think that were something to happen, were for example. There are more evidences developing as as we're talking about the fact that the airliner that was shot down the same night of the uh, rocket assault on our military bases was a deliberate act by Iran to shoot it down. That is going to fester, and that's the kind of thing where if people start to say, well, my God, why did that happen? Look at how terrible the Iranians are. We always knew they were bad people. Then I think there's a lot of pressure on him to do this. And the other pressure, I think, comes from one John Bolton. John Bolton, of course, has always thought that the War Powers Act itself was unconstitutional. John Bolton... I mean, I didn't know him well, but I off and on over 30 years, he's to encounter him a lot here in Washington. He's always wanted to find a way to take out Iran, mm-hmm. always. Now he's in a position where he has the president willing to take certain steps toward that. And if John Bolton has anything, we can talk about this later, has any uh, axe to grind or leverage to pursue in regard to impeachment, he knows that the president is getting on, on his side in regard to how tough to be with Iran. Right. John Bolton hates uh, Iran. Yeah. Neocon. This yep. is the man who said you could share off the top 10 floors of the U.N. and the world would be better off. Real yes. men go to Tehran. So did he kill Soleimani so Bolton wouldn't testify against him in the Senate trial? Yeah. <laughs> I would not. Well, I, again, I think that that's perhaps giving him more credit for strategy than he's demonstrated in the past. But I'm sure that it has crossed his mind that to the extent that he can keep John Bolton more happy, no matter what happens with this effort to get he, Mulvaney and others to testify in any Senate trial, John Bolton will be more on his side, knowing that he took this very hard, direct line stance earlier this week with assassination. That's what John Bolton wanted. Former White House spokesman Sarah Huckabee Sanders was on Fox and Friends yesterday morning, and she said, and I quote, I can't think of anything dumber than allowing Congress to take over our foreign policy. They can't seem to manage to get anything done. I think the last thing we wanted to do is push powers into Congress's hands and take them away from the president. Does she honestly believe that only the president can declare war? Is that what our founding fathers wanted? No, our founding fathers didn't want it, and it's not what the Constitution says. But I have so little uh, faith in the uh, Whiz, wisdom of uh, or the whiz Huckabee Sanders or the whiz that, the what or the whiz or the whiz yes I I, no, I don't think she has any idea what the ramifications are of that sentence that you just quoted from Fox and Friends she's on Fox and Friends with uh, sympathetic weirdos she thinks she can say anything she thinks that when. The subtext of what she says is 
this the Congress doesn't do anything. It's exactly what her former boss, Donald Trump, says about everything. He ignores the fact that there were 385, 386 as of today, bills passed in the House of Representatives that simply sit on Mitch McConnell's desk and he does nothing with them. So they're not doing nothing. They're doing a lot. They're doing a lot about every issue, about health care, about the environment. But she knows that she might as well keep her former boss happy. She may as well keep all the Fox and Friends viewers happy by saying something that diminishes the achievements of the Congress and also says, and by the way, our president, my president, is so good, he's the person who can run foreign policy in every part of the world, and damn it, they should not let the Congress mess with his brilliance. Yeah. Because he is, and she, I know, believes this, she is a man chosen by God to run America. He is a man chosen by God. He is. Yeah. That's what she thinks. Yeah. And so when you look at somebody like, you know, Kellyanne Conway, lawyer, when you look at these people making their case for Trump, they're really, in their mind, serving the law, not the country and not morality. They're operating under the assumption that every person, including the president, is entitled to a defense. And this is what concerns me. Are you a lawyer, Reverend? Of course. Okay. Half the Senate is made up of lawyers. And I, I, have, a, I have a problem with half our senators being uh, made up of lawyers. I have a problem with Qu Chris Cuomo being a lawyer. And, you know, what's his name? Uh, Ari Melber or whatever his name is. You know, when, right. when people present themselves as lawyers, that's supposed to suggest that they're smarter than we are. Ralph Nader has said that places like Harvard Law School should be called Harvard Lawless School because it teaches, you know, putative officers of the court. I would assume you have referred to yourself as an officer of the court, right? I do. But when you go to law school, you're taught how to flout the law, how to nibble around the edges of what is legal and what is not. So you have half our Senate trained in law schools. Do you think, having gone through the, the ministry and you, you've studied religion, you, you're an ordained minister, right? Right. Is there a problem with how lawyers are trained to think? Don't you think there's a problem when half our Senate is lawyers? Don't you think because lawyers are now writing laws interpreting laws, enforcing laws, the way they're trained, eventually morality is eclipsed by being smart and figuring out what you can get away with. There, there are too many lawyers. Well, there may be too many bad lawyers, that is, lawyers who do just what you've described. But a lot of people, and certainly a lot of the lawyers that I work with or that I hired over the years, were people who were dedicated to the proposition that law ought to be connected in every way and in every case with justice, not with the technicalities alone, but with what is right, what is morally right, and what you can do within the law to achieve that goal. And, you know, there's a movie opening about 
uh, my friend Brian Stevenson. I, I got a big award with him a few years ago. And he founded a death penalty organization in the South. He maintains it today. He's a, a top-notch litigator on the death penalty. And he wants to make sure that justice is done by using the law to achieve that end. Is and there I, a difference think, between justice and morality? Well, you, you can have justice, but it's really hard for me to believe that you can have justice that is somehow not connected to morality. There has to be a moral compass that says this is what is just. I mean, if you're going to take children away from their parents, you're going to put them in cages, you're going to let them die in a cell uh, of a of a disease that you're watching go on, a flu or something that you're watching uh, on a surveillance camera, you've got to know that is morally wrong. So it killing Suleimani. It's ki killing. Killing, killing Suleimani. Could that be justice but still immoral? Could it be justice but not but still immoral? I th yeah, I think you could. Um, is it a war crime? I think what happened to Suleimani probably is a war crime because you cannot take out someone under international law who is essentially running a country. You cannot assassinate that person. You cannot target that person from, for death. If That's, we're at war with the country, if we were officially at war with Iran, would it be a war crime? That's a good question. I'm not. I don't think I know the answer to that. If, you, but certainly that would heighten the possibility that it would not be a war crime. But I. But I do. Here's something that troubles me in the last few days. One of the things that Donald Trump has shifted his position on, although I don't think he's shifted it in his heart, is the idea of can we go after under these circumstances cultural sites, religious sites in Iran. Because it is clear, George Bush even b believed this, that you can't go after cultural sites. You can't target mosques, for example, or religion. Hello? Hello, hello. Significant buildings. And when I think, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, you said target uh, mosques, and then you kind of disappeared. But you're back. Um, I'm back. No, but I, you see, when most, I think when most Americans hear this, when, when they hear him explain, as he did for about a day and a half, that he didn't see anything wrong with going after those cultural sites, I don't think Americans actually, even when it comes to American cultural sites, really care much about the culture of the country, the history of the country. And I think you can, you can look at this in a couple ways. Have you ever been to the Alamo? Yes. In Texas? Yes. If you go inside the Alamo and you look out and you try to imagine incoming Mexican troops, what you can't because no. there's nothing but fast food restaurants outside of there. Yes. We, we have despoiled that. The Grand Canyon, you've been there? Yes. The Grand Canyon periodically becomes a subject of a debate Republicans and libertarians say, why don't we allow construction on parts of the Grand Canyon? 
because then there could be a hotel and then you could ride your mule down to the bottom of the canyon. You wouldn't have to go so far because there'd be a hotel right there on federal lands. That, to me, is a demonstration that too many people in this country have absolutely no interest in the preservation of the natural beauties or the cultural icons of the United States of America. So when you hear about it, as, as Trump said, I'm paraphrasing slightly, said, you know, they can shoot at our people, but I guess we can't even blow up one of their buildings. Right. People right. resonate to that. They, when, when you hear somebody say, well, but international law precludes this and blah, blah, blah. I think it falls on deaf ears for a lot of people in this country, and not just Republicans. I think there are a lot of Democrats who say, you know, those, those buildings, maybe they're pretty. I'm sure there are enough photographs of them that we don't have to go take another one. Let's just look at the photo. If we have to blow up the building itself, go for it. Has any American leader ever been charged with war crimes other than, I guess, Colonel Callie, right, <clears throat> during Vietnam, right? But it, it never gets up to the Pentagon. Yeah, Callie was. Yeah. Nobody, nobody above uh, William Callie, right. to my recollection, has ever been charged with a war crime. And never brought there before. There was the Go ahead. I said there was the possibility that uh, Diane Feinstein and uh, others, Feinstein and others, uh, could have gone after war crimes in regard to torture during the Bush administration. Uh, she chose not to do that. Uh, she chose to uh, issue a, a kind of bland report about uh, how torture happened uh, during that period. And uh, and I think. And now Gina Haspel is the head of the CIA. She was the one who was That's a, right. a case officer destroying evidence or looking the other way when <clears throat> our CIA was war waterboarding, waterboarding, Boarding. but yeah, whatever they yes. call it. Yeah, well, you know, if there are no consequences to what you do, then you get rewarded, as Gina Hassel did, with a better position in another administration. If you don't hold anyone accountable for the bad things that they do, they get a very clear message. You know what? I can do it again. And even if I don't want to do it again, I can be rewarded in some other way. And she has been rewarded and now runs the CIA. Because it's good for the country. That's how they rationalize it's, it. Of course. No retrospect. And we can rationalize You know, if John McCain hadn't said, by the way, you get terrible information when you torture people if he hadn't said that in a very public way i don't think bush would ever have agreed to uh in principle say you know we're not going to do that not that we did it but we're never going to do that again so how upset have you been uh, since the third of january when Soleimani was targeted do you think we're overreacting i in talking to so many friends, the fatigue has set in. They are, they just feel we're doomed and there's nothing to stop Trump. I don't see it. I don't, I don't see this march to war. I've been wrong on everything, but I don't see his wanting to be a war president. 
or are allowing it. Yeah, but I, I tell you, that worries me. But what worries me more is the seeing him march to the finish line on election day and win re-election because of that he's managed to get over what's going on in Iran. He's managed to, he just has an easier job selling the positions that he takes, like this one we've just been talking about on, on uh, sacred sites and cultural sites. I mean, when you hear Nancy Pelosi talk about this, he's, I, most people just scratch their head and go, wait a minute, if we, if we could do this and all it would destroy are a couple of mosques, a, a minaret or two, why wouldn't we do that? And just saying, well, international law prohibits it is not enough of an answer for most people. I came to know, you know, uh, we used to do like, used to do a lot of television interviews. And if you just wanted a little clip for something, you know, it would be like 20 seconds or, you know, or do you want 30 seconds? And uh, if you said something like, well, this is prohibited by the First Amendment to the Constitution. For most people, you aren't saying anything. It denotes absolutely nothing because it's just it's just word. It's just some phrase that people use that doesn't have any meaning for most people. You have to say it is important that people be allowed to speak freely and this law or this decision violates that. You have to drill down and explain it very clearly, very succinctly, or you might as well not say it at all. What do you say to people who maintain that Mark Esper, he's the defense secretary, and Mike right. Pompeo, who's our secretary of state, they are apocalyptic Christians who want a war in the Middle East because it means the second coming of Christ. Do you honestly believe Mike Pompeo believes that? You know, I, uh, I'm i not sure that I do. I think there are certainly, there are plenty of people, not just uh, kind of crazed pseudo-theologians. I mean, there are people in government who do believe that it is necessary to have a final apocalyptic battle between good and evil in order for Jesus to come again. There are certainly people in the military, in the State Department, at reasonably high levels who would say that and who would agree with that. And I think it's a real danger that people just, you know, people... Do they really believe that? Do they really oh, yeah, believe absolutely. that? I absolutely believe that they believe that that there is a reason that bad things happen, that there will be an end of history, and they, they might differ over the details, but that they do believe that the Middle East is central to the coming of first the Antichrist, and then a battle might go on for seven years, maybe longer, where the Antichrist will battle and will eventually be defeated so that we can bring the kingdom of God back to earth. And is that oh, a... Absolutely believe it. Absolutely the, believe it. The The book of Revelations, it's also in the Old Testament. There's been prophecy of end times and the Messiah coming. Sure. There are a million different versions of end times. But yep. the the book of Revelations and the rapture... 
and the stuff happening in Israel where you need the Jews to establish the, the temple again and red cows. Is that an American idea? Was that invented in the United States, this kind of Yeah, pretty Armageddon? much was invented in the United States. But they, they go back, and then they go back to the book of Daniel. That's a, in the Christian Old Testament. you got to go back to Daniel to get some of the most inflammatory uh, pieces of when information. When you say Christian Old Daniel. Testament, can't the Jews get credit for the Old Testament? Daniel? wasn't? Isn't that just... I was referring, yeah, but I was referring, I was trying to be really polite here and refer to it as the Christian because uh, so many of my uh, Jewish friends uh, say, uh, wait a minute, there's only one testament, so don't, so you should clarify it, New Testament for Christians, that's why I did that. But isn't Daniel, why wouldn't you call it from the Old Testament? Because then some people, perhaps not you, would have said, well, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, but it's it's the only testament. There is no New Testament. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. I perhaps. Oh, so, so I should be offended by somebody who refers to the New Testament. Yeah. Unless they say Christian New Testament. Oh, then good. I got a new thing to... I got a new thing to be outraged about. Thank you. Let me write that down. Write, write this on your wrist. Yes. And so next time you have a conversation with anybody, or for that matter, when you do stand up or something, you can look at your wrist and know what to be irritated about. So when somebody is talking about the the second book, they, they, in order to respect me, they should refer to it as the Christian New Testament. Not the New yeah, that's Testament. The I, that's the way I do it. And I respect you and I... Well, thank I you. I didn't you. know. I didn't know that I well, should be offended by people who say the New Testament. But I'm getting sick and tired of this, of people <laughs> referring to it as the New Testament. <laughs> thank you. Well, now I've given you evidence. I've given you arguments. I've given you reasons to be uh, passionately angry and outraged. Next time anybody has the audacity to use that phrase in your presence. I'm menaced and threatened, and I will not stand for this anymore. I'm Don't tired of it. Thank you, Don't Reverend. Stand for it. Thank you. Thank you. Before you yeah, go. You know, I bet we're kind of running out of time here, but I would like to make an observation about why I believe the Democrats uh, are, as we speak, about to completely lose the argument over impeachment. Yes, go ahead. I was so, going to ask you about that. Uh, I think Nancy Pelosi was right to hold these articles of impeachment for as long as she has. I was very disturbed today when I heard that uh, she was thinking about turning them over uh, to the Senate, at which will begin the Senate trial of, uh, of Donald Trump. And I say that because there is nothing to be gained. First of all, there is no requirement that she turn these over. If she simply holds them, uh, she won't have the displeasure of seeing a, a really a sham trial going on. Right. So many members of the Republican Party have already made it clear they don't think there's any impeachable offense. This is all pro forma, and they're going to... Uh, not vote to convict him, then he 
and his uh, supporters, like uh, the ever-exciting uh, uh, Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, and others, will say he's been vindicated. Mm-hmm. They sh- should hold them. She should not listen to Chuck Schumer if he insists that they be sent over. He's been demanding witnesses. He's been demanding these witnesses appear in the Senate live. Uh, I've never understood what he expects to get from them. Uh, John Bolton, Mick Mulvaney, does he expect these people to, A, uh, tell all that they know? They won't. They'll simply, uh, as is their right, exercise their rights under the Fifth Amendment, not to speak, not to potentially incriminate themselves. And even if they do speak on some matters, why does anybody think that they, they will tell all of the truth? They will spin the truth. Nothing good will come of those witnesses. They will be completely useless. And I doubt, frankly, that they'll even get them in the I, first place. I, Democrats will blow the whole thing by giving these articles of impeachment. They should hang around, think about other articles of impeachment. I wish they had done some additional articles, for example, about emoluments. Of course, you can't call it that because that's another word that has no meaning for most people. But you you say he's benefiting financially from other countries while he's the president of the United States. That is wrong. And then they should say, and by the way, he was paying hush money to one or two adult film stars to cover up the fact that he was having an affair. You don't have to know anything about the law. You just have to have a nascent sense of what morality is to know that even if you could maybe uh, forgive an affair, you know it's wrong, and you know it's wrong under the circumstances in which it appears that Donald Trump conducted those affairs. And then to be to hush money it, to pay someone that lie about the affair, that just goes to the core of what people who just they don't know anything about the law or the technical definitions. They just know there's something rotten about a married person having an affair with someone in pornographic films and then covering it up so that his wife, who happens to be pregnant at the time, doesn't learn of it. This, and it's, and it's, just, a, it's an illegal campaign contribution, what the National Enquirer did by catching and not releasing sure. that story. That is legally a contribution in kind. And against the law. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. Besides being a lawyer, he is an ordained minister in the United Church of. Oh, dear Christ. Perfect. I did it. I did it. I wrote down a note that says, give Feldman another chit. In the unlikely event that he ever buys dinner for you again. Oh. I just wrote that down. When are you coming to New York? I'm actually coming uh, to New York next week, next Wednesday. Well, maybe I will take you out for dinner. Well, let's look into that. Okay. 
Uh, have you ever been, you're a man of the cloth, I will take you to churches. Churches Fried Chicken. That's very interesting. I, I know there is a place called Churches, and there's also a Churches Fried Chicken. Yes, I I'll hope take, you're taking me to the better one. They're, they're both, I don't pass, unlike you, I don't see any difference. Okay. <laughs> Stay on the line. For- I shall. Okay. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump. Let's go to Tucson, Arizona, where Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is standing by. She's an animal behaviorist who teaches Animal Conservation at the University of Arizona. She has two great books out, Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships, and Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with Try-at-Home Lessons from the Wild. Go to jenniferverdelin.com, sign up for her fantastic newsletter, get it delivered into your inbox. Her blog is uh, just so well written and it, they're quick hits. They're fun to read about eating together, how animals eat together, how animals sometimes get into a rut just like humans. And there's a tribute to Sweet Pea, Senor Button's sister who mm-hmm. passed away two years ago, September 21st. Yes. Yeah. How is Senor Button's? Well, you know, I think he listened to the show last week, <laughs> uh, you know, where we discussed where he would begin eating um, me should I die on the 47th floor of an apartment. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so two things about that. Number one, I think he listened to the show because yesterday, um, you know, please don't judge me, but I was sitting on the floor uh, eating dinner off of my coffee table watching TV. Oh, hang on for a second. <laughs> Is your kitchen sink there? Don't people eat over their kitchen sink? How can you have a kitchen sink on the floor in front of the towel? That's a great invention. No, no, a, a coffee table. Did I say kitchen sink? No, no, no. But I, I just figured everybody eats over the kitchen sink. So. Oh, yeah. No, I was watching TV and, and, and sitting on the floor with my back against the couch, and he was sleeping on the couch. And then suddenly I felt teeth on my head. Mm. And so I, of course, I thought he must have decided after our conversation that he would taste test me. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and could he start at the head, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, so, so that's the first thing. And the other thing is I, I, I said last week that mountain lions don't really scavenge, but I'm incorrect about that. So I wanted to update our, our listeners. One on mountain lions and then two on the situation here in, in Arizona. So uh, it turns out of all the big cats, uh, really mountain lions do scavenge. <laughs> so I was completely inaccurate on that. Uh, when I you say that- scavenge, if there's like a dead human being or a dead animal, they'll look at it and go, what the hell? I'll eat some of this. Yeah. So even though they're do- hunters, they don't need to scavenge. 
That's correct. But in general, right, a lot of animals can be lazy. Uh-huh. Now, a lot of predators are wary of eating things that are already dead. And there was a study out in California, you know, out in uh, Santa Monica Mountains. There's some mountain lions there. And and they're pretty intensively studied and radio collared. So they did this experiment where they put deer carcasses out and were looking to see at what frequency mountain lions or other animals scavenged those those deer carcasses. And of the mountain lions that they had radio collared, about 45% of them actually uh, scavenged a certain portion of the deer carcasses, right, depending on where those carcasses were placed in their territory and if they encountered them. And so not every mountain lion will scavenge. But, for example, uh, I talked to a colleague of mine who studies jaguars and other big cats, and she, you know, let me know that bobcats will never scavenge. Mountain lions will scavenge. And I was also incorrect about where Buttons would start to eat me first if he was smart. Uh, they would go, like, I learned that all, all, uh, big cats for the most part will go immediately for the organs, the heart, liver, kidneys. Hmm. Those contain the most nutrients. And subsequently learned that in, in many places in the world, where there are big cats in captivity, they are malnourished because they're really only fed muscle meat and are not given uh, the organs, which contain most of the nutrients uh, and vitamins and minerals that they need. So, one, I've learned that Buttons is taste testing me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, that, in fact, could he reach through my skin and get to my kidneys <laughs> or right. my liver, that would be the first place he'd go. And that mountain lions do scavenge. Uh, more often than other cats. And what we've learned about the mountain lion situation uh, here in Arizona was it looks like that gentleman, it was a male, was a murder victim, most likely, who they haven't positively identified the body. Can you refresh was- our memory about this story? Because they had a, they killed, the state ended up killing several mountain yes. lions because they feared that, because the mountain lions scavenged this murder victim, the mountain lions developed a taste for human beings. And you told us that, that doesn't happen. That That's right. That's right. And there still is no empirical evidence that if a mountain lion scavenges off of, and by empirical, you know, no data that supports the idea that if a mountain lion scavenges on a food item or body of something that is normally not on its diet, say a cattle or a sheep, uh, that they uh, will start hunting, that that makes that item now on their on their diet, mm-hmm. right? So uh, opportunistically feeding on something doesn't make it then decide to hunt and kill it. Of course, it didn't kill this person, so there's no evidence to suggest that uh, the mountain lions were responsible for the death. So they did not learn that they can hunt and kill this particular species being human. Now, what I did find out, so what happened was there were three mountain lions that were killed because they were discovered feeding on, on, on the remains of a, of a person and they did not respond fearfully when they were, when they were, the police officers were attempting to, you know, try to get them away from the body so that they could retrieve the body. 
Mm-hmm. So this is their, was their justification for killing the three mountain lions. Um, it was a mother and two young mountain lion cubs. Uh, so they were not babies. They were roughly about a year old, potentially. That's what I've, that's the, the sort of general information that I have was a mother and her offspring. And so, um, is there a problem with mountain lions? Are they, they're not being, they're not endangered and they're not a threat to the environment. They're, aren't they endemic to North America? There's Yes, they're very important predators in the ecosystem. Uh, they are not endangered and in doing more research uh, for a different, um, you know, for for uh, being able to speak about this publicly, I discovered that since 1890, there have been less than 100 confirmed fatal mountain lion human uh, interactions. So what this means is that, you know, given the proliferation of mountain lions in our environments uh, across North America, there are very few um, fatal interactions and of course, we don't know uh, how really, accurate those reports are. Well, those are less than 100 confirmed authenticated fatalities because, right. of course, because mountain lions scavenge, they sometimes get blamed for things that they didn't do. Right. Uh, right. And so so that's one. And most of the conflicts are not fatal. Most of the interactions that happen that are not positive are not fatal. They, you may be injured, but not fatally. And they are not a result of them hunting us, but they might be the result of other things, uh, which I covered last week, like right. stumbling upon a mountain lion eating. Uh, it, I, I find it more, um, it makes more sense to me that the mother and the cubs wouldn't leave the food source and respond fearfully to people because they, oftentimes mountain lions, you know, consider something theirs and they won't necessarily uh, run away from a a potential food source, especially if they're hungry. Right. So I think that the reaction was mostly for public perception. The problem is that, that these kinds of cycles where we react in this way, perpetuate a, a perception of danger between ourselves and carnivores. And there was a a recent study just a few years ago that showed, in fact, people are responsible over half the time for any negative encounter with a large carnivore, whether it's a mountain lion or a bear or uh, a wolf, that it's people's behavior that puts themselves at risk and their unwillingness to modify their behavior. So how how do we meet a mountain lion? Well, so one thing is that certain times of day, you know, twilight and, and early morning are the most likely times where mountain lions are active. And so avoiding behavior, you know, hiking out at this these times is important. Never leaving children unattended. So the idea that you could take a, a – because mountain lions may see a small child as a potential prey item for okay. sure. Okay, so – Small children should never be left unattended in any uh, park area for any reason, whether it's a human predator or a wild predator, right? Even if you don't so, like the kid. 
Well, well, you know, then you have a, you know, the dingo sold my baby yeah. uh, kind of situation. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you know, and oftentimes. But, but the, it does suggest that mountain lions do have a taste for babies, which is, you know, not the baby's yeah. fault or human's fault. Mountain lions, you know. They, they, they don't have a taste for babies. They have a, a taste for small things they can catch. Okay. Okay, and so it is it is like driving fast without a seatbelt. When somebody speeds and isn't wearing a seatbelt, we tend to hold them responsible for their accident. Okay. But right? you know, the mountain lions aren't totally virtuous in this. But they aren't they're not engaging in immoral behavior. If we want to preserve wildlife and we want to preserve areas and then we want to go outside and enjoy them, it's our responsibility as the cognitive species here to modify our behavior in ways that keep us and other animals safe because their thought process isn't the same as our capacity for thought process. Who wins a fight if if a, a mountain lion attacks you? Mm. Who wins the fight? Sometimes people have won the fight, and sometimes mountain lions have won the fight, and sometimes it's a draw, and we both agree to back away. Wouldn't the so, mountain lion instinctively know to just run away from a human if it starts punching back? It depends on the situation. So I actually happen to know someone who's young teenager went wanted to just go 10 minutes up, up on some cliff rock to take some photographs. And the mother said, okay, because, you know, it, he wasn't that far away. Well, he immediately called her once he was up there and was hysterical because there were two young mountain lions clearly stalking him. Hmm. And she said, okay, scream, because she couldn't get to him, right? So she started uh, running attempting to get closer to her son and he started screaming, but the kind of screaming he was doing was not the get away from me screaming. Right. It was right. The hysterical, I'm about to die screaming. Right. And she said, no, don't scream like that. And he, uh, she said, are there any rocks around you? And he picked up rocks and was throwing the rocks at the, the, Younger, they were smaller, so they had to be younger, which is often what will happen is, I said this last week, it's younger individuals tend to be the ones that may try to hunt people. They don't know any better. And they're also hungry and they're not very good at, you know, what they're doing. And the mother and, sees <clears throat> a threat to the babies, so she gets in the act. She could, or yeah. in this case, my suspicion is uh, the mother was watching to see if her, you know, kids are learning properly, um, or watching to see what's going on. I have no idea what is in the, the mother mountain lion's mind, but this boy, uh, and I say boy because he's 14 and, you know, not very large person and, uh, or tall. And so he started throwing rocks and they were unfazed. They were, and he was sort of encircled. One was in one direction and the other one was off to his side, which is definitely a problem. And right. running would have not been a great choice. So he didn't run. He was throwing rocks and one rock hit the forehead and, and he heard the crack. Um, and the, 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 uh, young mountain lion shook its head and they, they ran off. Okay. So, so, and then he 
was able to safely retreat from right. the situation. Now, should those mountain lions be killed? No, because he went into an area where mountain lions live alone. Uh-huh. And these kinds of things will happen. He was very fortunate, but I would say that just like we wear seat belts and we follow speed limits and we wear helmets when we ride bicycles, you know, for smart, uh, you know, sometimes things will happen. So there are things you can do to mitigate your risk. We are more at risk from African bees, Africanized honeybees here and rattlesnakes and javelina than any threat from a mountain lion. Okay, let's let's because we have limited time. I wanted to ask yes. you about medicinal plants oh, and yeah. how animals use medicinal plants. But first, when you talk about scavengers, do mountain lions or cats use animals? Uh, other other kills? Do they ferment them? Do they bury them and let them cook for a while and then come back to them? Because I always think we ju- we're just saying that. Mountain lions like fresh kills. Now we're learning that they, they're scavengers. Do they kind of cook the food too? Bury it and then so, come back for it? Well, it's, it's really interesting that you asked that. So the study that was done in California that looked at the scavenging rate by mountain lions found that there was a pretty big range of number of days, anywhere from, you know, three or four days to like three weeks where they would continue to, um, consume because we always assume that food that's been left out, meat that's been left out for a couple of days, is rancid and poisonous. But actually, it might be more nutritious and even healthier. I don't know if that's true, but uh, they ate, they scavenged off of things that were fresh all the way to maggot infested. Right. So this gentleman disappeared in early December and this carcass that the, the body that the mountain lions were found feeding on was several weeks later. Now one either thinks the man was held captive for some period of time or that the body was dumped in Pima Canyon and, and over the course of a few weeks, the mountain lions discovered the body mm-hmm. and the fact that it was a few weeks old was irrelevant to them. But do they now, bury do they bury meat and let it cook a little underground before they eat it? They don't bury well say so they sort of cover food but not for the purpose that that I think you're suggesting where okay. it can ferment more to hide their food uh from uh, from competitors. So mountain lions that say take down a deer will often drag the deer to a preferred feeding location and loosely cover it with dirt, leaves, right? They, uh, to some extent, to keep it hidden. Okay. Let's talk about medicinal plants, because last week we were talking about how dolphins use the, the puffer fish to get high. But yes. there are animals that can identify plants for their medicinal value? Yes. So it's a really interesting, the way you phrase that is really interesting because one of the big challenges in, uh, ethnobotany, uh, which is, or, or zoo pharma, zoo pharma, I don't know how to pronounce the last part. Yeah. Uh, is, is, is the animal aware 
of the medicinal benefit to that particular plant? Or are they just eating things in their diet and some of them happen mm-hmm. to alleviate a kind, an ailment, right? Because we can't ask a chimpanzee, do you have an a upset tummy? Is that why you're eating <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this plant that we know alleviates nausea? Right? We, mm-hmm. we, so some of the studies have been able to track their diet and the frequency with which they might eat certain plants. And so something being in the diet versus I only eat that thing really rarely given its availability might imply, and if that plant has a medicinal property, would imply that they specifically chose to eat it that particular day or time because they were experiencing some kind of symptom. Now, there's been lots of studies uh, since the 90s that are showing a variety of species. A lot of them have focused on primates, so spider monkeys, chimpanzees, gorillas, shifaka lemurs. All of these species have been found to have a, a roughly about a quarter of the plants that they eat have some kind of medicinal purpose. What's fascinating is that in those areas where they've done these studies, they've also found a correlation between the indigenous local communities using the a subset of the same plants for the same medicinal purpose. Wow. Wow. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's incredible. So essentially what they're finding is that local residents – are utilizing the same plants that these animals are using for exactly the same condition. So is this like condition. when you say you, I have a gut instinct, does that come from when I crave a certain type of food, that's my body saying, look, you should eat some oranges because you need vitamin C. If you're craving something, it's your body telling you you need more vitamin C or you need niacin, have some wheat. Well, this is such a fascinating area of, of to discuss because on the one hand, I, I agree with you and I think that many people who are in tune with their body, you know, your body might crave something because you're iron deficient or like you said, vitamin C deficient. What we're also learning is that, you know, the, the gut instinct, so there's this vagus nerve that goes from your gut right to your brain. The what nerve? There is the vagus nerve, you, V-A-G-U-S. The vagus nerve that, okay. It goes, essentially from your gut to your brain. And then if it so keeps there, going, you can go to Carson <laughs> City and uh, have sex that you pay for, I believe. But go ahead. I'm sorry. That's a different vagus. So I've heard. Uh, Go okay. ahead. Well, I hadn't heard that, so that's new information for yes. me. Okay. Uh, what 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 we're learning, and we're really just on the cusp. We always hear about this gut microbiome, right? Uh-huh. Your your gut microbiome. I'm on antibiotics right now, which means that there's a battle being waged in my gut. All the good bacteria are valiantly, you know, collapsing um, at the feet of this antibiotic. Right. M- much less the bad bacteria, right? So we hear about this good bacteria, bad bacteria. Well, what we're learning is that your gut bacteria, so it might not be your body needs a particular nutrient, but it might be your gut bacteria like, you know, I think I need a cookie. Right. 
Right. So you should eat a cookie. Or you're right. So so we're learning that the gut bacteria that you have communicate their needs or or influence your thoughts, your feelings, your cravings through the vagus nerve. And because there's antibiotics in your beef, you get fat. This is my theory, because your gut is saying, I need beef for, you know, for B vitamins and niacin and all the things that come with beef. So you eat Mm -hmm. the beef, but the beef contains antibiotics that kill the gut biome that is craving the beef. And I think that's what creates this insatiable need for more beef. It's really interesting that you say that. And I don't know if that's, you know, how true that is. I think that your gut instinct <laughs> right. is is on to something, especially with the relationship between our gut microbiomes and obesity. So there has been several studies published that show a relationship between uh, obesity and a lack of diversity in the microflora in our guts. And this is not just from eating beef though, right? All um anything that has antibiotics in it, so all meats um that are treated with antibiotics, you know, unless it says antibiotic free, hormone free, um you know, well, let, let, me, let me ask you about kissing. Oh yes. Because the <laughs> Sorry, gut, I didn't mean to say it that way. <laughs> okay. The gut biome the gut biome, that's bacteria, not that's right? Yes. And there's bacteria in your saliva. Yes. Is it conceivable that when two people are drawn to one another, it's the gut biome saying, kiss this other person. We smell the kind of gut flora and fauna that we need. (laughs) I love you for bringing this up. Because I have had a theory for a really long time about how our our own individual so we have our own genes our our MHC or major histocompatibility complex genes which are our immune function genes and we we typically are attracted to someone with the most opposite and we all have a signature smell and i believe it is the interaction between our personal bacteria that are all over our body including in our mouth um and our MAC genes that create the signature smell. And we might call it pheromones and all these things. But so a matchmaker, you can actually, if a, <laughs> we could actually do matchmaking by having people, instead of, well, maybe spitting into a vial, but by matching gut biome. Well, so gut biome is one component, but there's also, like, you know, your armpits and other have you ever met a woman that you just love the way she smelled naturally, not with perfume? Sure. Okay. Have you ever met a woman whose smell you were not fond of? Sure. Okay. My guess would be that if you kissed the woman you liked the smell of, you'd like you'd be able to tell if you were blindfolded, and there have been studies that have done this, if you kissed both women, the one whose smell you didn't like, you would be like, mmm, yuck. And the one who you did like, you would be like, hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. And then if you blindfolded yourself and you had those women 
uh, you couldn't see which woman, and there was no touching involved. You just kissed. I've been to those you parties. Would... Yes, I've been to those. <laughs> you would know which one it was that you liked uh-huh. based on the taste. Um, and of course, a lot of other sensory information, but smell is huge. So I always wanted to play, like take your armpit bacteria and there's studies you can participate at North Carolina Museum of Science. They have a study going on about armpit bacteria and, and any course, kissing it, studies. I know, but I wanted to do the kissing okay. study, right? All right. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so they are, uh, you can donate your armpit swab, uh, to the museum, uh, for their research. And essentially, can I what just we send know, a, t- a dirty t-shirt? That, that would be <laughs> I think we need a swab. Oh, okay. Um, and you can't use, you know, we know that antiperspirants kill your, your, your bacteria. Right. So, what I, what I, I, you know, convoluted way of, of getting to our original sort of question is that I think that we are definitely attracted, our biomes, our, our gut biomes and our body biomes, we are like a whole ecosystem of, of bacteria on our skin and, and our mouths and our noses and our eyes and our ears and everything. I think they definitely influence who we're attracted to. And, and there's no way they can annoy you. Once the chemical attraction kicks in, they can have a grating personality, mm. hover over you, criticize, judge you. But as long as the chemistry is there, you're intoxicated. Well, then I would suggest a strong course of antibiotics is in order. <laughs> <laughs> Slip some antibiotics into Give them a piece of beef. You know, so the antibiotics, <laughs> would, the antibiotics would kill the bacteria that is uh, making you attracted to that other person. Potentially. And then it takes, but they can recover their original bacteria if their diet follows a good high fiber, you know, diet in a few weeks. All right. Hang on for one second, doctor. So the high incidence of divorce, <clears throat> could that be attributed to antibiotics? Well, I might attribute it. I, I would need more information. One one thing one could attribute it to is was the woman on birth control when they met? Right. Because we talked about this before. That's go right. ahead. Go, go ahead. Yes, this is because that influences your smell. Like so women are more attracted to men that are most opposite to them in their MHC genes. And of course, we're smelling all that. But remember, our scent is based on sorry, on a combination of our genes and our body bacteria. That's my idea. Okay. Okay. And so when what we do know, though, even if we don't know the mechanism specifically, is that when women go off of birth control, they, well, when they're on birth control, they prefer someone that smells more similar to them in their genes and, when they go off of birth control and they're with that same partner, they may report a lack of attraction. Okay, so let, let me see if I understand. Because you did talk about this before, but now it's uh, you're adding a new layer to it. So without birth control pills, a woman is attracted to her opposite. 
That's right, because the combination of two, so think about it from a evolutionary, you know, fitness kind of perspective. If I have one set of, of, of immune fighting genes and you have a different set of immune fighting genes and we combine those, our offspring will have the broadest protection. Okay, and so the birth control pill then shuts down some hormones in the woman, correct? Yep. Yep. And that changes her craving for genes. It they don't necessarily know exactly how well, it changes it her, her 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 sense of smell, what she her her preference, right. her smell preference. So now because she's no longer in this state of trying to reproduce, her this is the idea that her preference is now for someone more similar. But why? She's more, why would that? Because she's not trying to reproduce. So the imperative of having the most opposite is no longer there. Because you're not ovulating when you are on birth control. And it's So let me ask you that, about this. When people are, when a woman is no longer fertile, uh-huh. she would be attracted to a different kind of man. She or is it be. just the birth control pill? I don't. So our understanding of what happens to attraction in menopause, nobody really cares about women when they're old and can't have babies anymore. So, um, you know, what we know is that people who are more who who are partners and are more similar on their MHC genes have a higher incidence of infidelity, have a higher incidence of of spontaneous uh, uh, miscarriage and lower fertility. So there is a direct link between your preference and your reproductive success. And does the male know the difference between a woman who's on the pill and not on the pill? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Um, you know, males certainly have, you know, preferences for certain physical features, and many of those features occur when women are ovulating. Right. So, um, so higher voice, um, you know, can we train uh, dogs to <laughs> sniff gene sniffing dogs? Let's move well, on. I, this is really interesting. I, well, I, I do want to say, I, I thought you were going to say, can we train dogs to tell when a woman's ovulating? I'm like, I think there are a few dogs out there who know how to do that. Yeah. I didn't but... want to get, yeah. I, I want to keep it, you know, uh, okay. on the, yeah. So uh, before you go, this is as always, there's never enough time. Talk to me. Do we have time to talk about the difference between a virus and bacteria and what that means in terms of pneumonia that may or may not be coming out of China? Yeah. So we, we, I think we definitely have some time. Okay. Uh, what is, what is it? The, Cause you taught me the difference between a monkey and an ape. Okay. Right. The monkey has yeah. the tail, right? Mm hmm. Yes. What is the difference between a bacteria and a virus? And then tell me what pneumonia means. Okay. So I'm not entirely sure that I'm equipped to, you know, give a a whole cohesive answer. I can say, so bacteria are uh, generally, I believe, prokaryotes. Do they have Uh, tails? uh, Well, some of them do. They have, like, flagella, (laughs) you know. and, uh, you know, uh, essentially, um, they are, um, 
viruses are smaller. They're in a whole nother group. So, so they aren't, uh, they're sort of in a, a kingdom of their own, so to speak. And they're not and, airborne, right? Viruses are not airborne. Yes, they are. In fact, the distance that they can travel in droplets is six to eight feet. So personal space, people. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that's why, you know, you get everybody jam packed on a plane and it's just, ugh. and one person is sick. Forget it. Right. Um, now a virus. Wow. So you can yes. sneeze a virus into somebody's face from six feet away. Yes, you wow. can. It'll, it'll travel, um, through the, um, through the air and it can travel that far. Right. So both have both bacteria and viruses can cause infection. Okay. But bacteria are single celled things and they they can live on their own. Right. They can be in the soil. Um, in fact, many nitrogen fixing bacteria are really important for recycling nutrients in, in the environment. OK. And <clears throat> most of them aren't aren't a problem. And we have lots of them on us. Our bodies are actually made up of a lot of bacteria and they help us. Like we were just talking, digest food and and do all of these things, and um, essentially, you know, few bacteria cause infection. Uh, we might know them as strep and MRSA, right? Um, and if you've ever had a UTI and uh, sometimes sinus infections, it's usually a staph infection from your nose from being sick uh, with a cold that weakens the tissue in your nasal cavity, and then. The, the unhappy bacteria, the ugly bacteria that are normally kept in check are like, ooh, nice, fun, party, let's start. Right. And your immune system's already sort of compromised by a cold, and then you can get pneumonia. <clears throat> now, there's viral pneumonia, I believe, and there's bacterial pneumonia. Oh. So, yes, yeah, so the viral, the, the thing that's coming out of China is actually viral pneumonia, not bacterial pneumonia. It is a virus that's closely related to SARS, mm. um, and it's uh, <clears throat> they it started I think with some people that were working in a um, you know in a food market that had all kinds of animals. So this relates back to what we were talking about last week about the transmissibility of viruses versus bacteria from animals to people. So oftentimes bacteria have no problem jumping from person to animal and vice versa. Viruses are slightly different. There are some uh, that can. We talked about bird flu or avian flu. This particular one, they and also they're thinking, may have originated in some animals. It's a coronavirus, which is a virus that often causes colds. And also something called adenovirus is another type of virus that frequently causes colds and, um, and, and other, um, types of, of viral. There are many, many types. And there's about a handful that will swap easily between people and other animals. I'm sorry now, for one mid- second. The, the flu is a virus, right? The flu is a virus. Influenza. Yes. So, and, and a cold <clears throat> can be a virus as well. A cold is a virus. Yes, it's a coronavirus, an adenovirus. Um, there's different types of viruses that call cause what we call a cold. I always so, thought I always thought a cold was not a. I'm so stupid. I always thought a cold was caused by bacteria, not a virus. So antibiotics, antibiotics work on both 
uh, bacteria and viruses? No. Okay. So antibiotics will do nothing for viruses. I see. That's right. why you. So, that's why you need to get a shot. You you need to be vac- vaccinated against a virus, right? Yeah, so that stimulates your um, either T cell or B cells in your body to produce antibodies in reaction to. So then your body says, oh, I've had this disease. Therefore, it is now immune to it. It contains the antibodies. So So if you have the flu and your doctor prescribes antibiotics, it does nothing. It does nothing. In fact, it's it's a major problem. But here's the other problem, distinguishing between a virus and a bacterial infection is tricky because oftentimes the symptoms can be very similar. So initially I had a virus. I had a cold. Then I got a cold in my eye and we thought perhaps it was a bacterial infection, but it wasn't because it had different symptoms. So that was easy to distinguish. But then I, I recovered from the, the cold but got sicker instead of better by day 12. And uh, all my lymph nodes in my face swelled up, which was pleasant. Okay. <laughs> and these indicated a potential, uh, you know, the, the cold left open my, my system. And, and when did send your buttons bite your head? Well, maybe he was just trying <laughs> to crush your skull. <laughs> well, he bit, he bit my head yesterday. So, Senor Botones, you know, uh, was like, I've had enough. I don't know what he was thinking. Maybe, I really maybe don't. he was, you know, there was the evolutionary imperative to get you out, <laughs> get you off I, the, uh, Serengeti. I don't know. I think, I still think he listened to the show and thought, oh, I, I had not thought of this before. Let me see if this is going to be possible. Because she's sick now for two weeks. She might die. I uh, think I he was thinning the hurt. I think he was trying to get rid of the weak gene pool. He was crushing your skull. We're out. We're, we, we, we've, we're all out of time. Before you go, this is so fascinating. And, okay. and, and my doctor said, I'm not going to give you antibiotics. He said, let's see how Dr. Jennifer, if Dr. Jennifer Verdalen survives her round of antibiotics, then maybe I'll give you some. He said, try to just soldier through this because, you know, if I start giving antibiotics for everything, you develop an immunity. The consumer, the consumer electronics show was held in Las Vegas and Mm. they unveiled this new device. It's a vest for dogs. The Japanese have come up with a vest that (sighs) allows the dog to communicate with his partner. And you can now read the vest through a mobile mm-hmm. app, and it'll mm-hmm. tell you if the dog is happy or sad, lonely, excited. This is, I should, I, whatever that, whatever it costs, we should uh-huh. buy this vest because now we know what our dog is thinking. Before that, we had no idea what our dog was thinking, right? <laughs> I'm going to go with your being, um, yes. Y- yeah. <laughs> So, you know, here's I'll I'll try to say one thing that's positive before not saying anything more positive. It's wonderful that we have such a desire to understand the state that other species are in. No, no, it's just we want to sell something. (laughs) We we convince people that they need to have something 
other than their right. own instinct. But they're playing on the emotional desire to understand and connect emotionally with another species, which is great. This is silly. Uh, there's so many dogs have this. evolved to communicate with us without a vest. That's that's vest why they're right. our favorite animals. Well, all kinds of animals. Horses are are known to read human facial expressions better than dogs. So, uh, you know, I think that lots of domesticated animals have evolved ways to communicate with us. What this is really saying is, 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 uh, you know, I think that we are in such a digital age, we're even losing the ability to read other people's facial expressions. I, I don't, and, I don't believe anybody can't tell what their dog is thinking. I, I, I refuse to believe that you can't tell. If your dog is happy or sad, lonely, it's just impossible. Not I to disagree be able to with you. I have seen that. people interacting with their pets that are clearly, clearly are interacting in a very narcissistic, self, self-centered really? way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and so I, but I think that's symptomatic of we are, we're relying on digital things to give us communication. And this is, creating a bunch of, of really incompetent communicators as humans. So you're right. Dogs have evolved all kinds of signals to communicate their state of being uh, and their needs. And, and, and we are, we should be attuned to that. Humans have also evolved facial, micro facial expressions, body language. We read body language more than words, but we are ignorant of 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 our of this and rely on words so we ignore body language and look for words and i think that we are now perpetrating this on other species by these vests which will say basically blue light i think was like i'm relaxed right and mm -hmm. and so we're re but is is the dog actually relaxed we don't we don't know i mean there's body language that implies. Well, but, so they say that the blue light goes on based on the heartbeat of the dog. But what does the heartbeat tell you? What what, what can you learn from well, a heartbeat? Well, right. I mean, heartbeat could could you know say a lot of things. Like, uh, for example, I think they said red light was excited. Well, are they excited because they're happy to see you? Are they excited because they saw a pretty little dog? Oh. <laughs> Are they excited because they're thinking about what will happen later? Are are they excited? I mean, excited is one word, but it has many subdivisions of emotion. And again, simplifying emotion, I could be excited because I'm afraid. I could be excited because I'm I'm you know, happy about something. I could be excited because I'm aroused. I could be excited for lots of different reasons. So, again, I think that we are transferring our reliance on digital information to communicate to other species. And it's really making us less smart. Yep. Yep. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is making us more smart or more smarter, <laughs> more smarter. I think that's what I was trying to say. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin teaches animal conservation at the University of Arizona. She's an animal behaviorist. She has two books everybody should go out and buy. The first one is Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship 
and mating tell us about human relationships and raised by animals the surprising new science of animal family dynamics with try-at-home lessons from the wild. Go to jenniferverdelin.com, sign up for her fantastic newsletter and follow the great doctor over at Twitter. Her Twitter handle is Real Dr. Jen. Thank you so much. I hope we get to talk to you next week. Absolutely, and thank you for having me. I'm getting smarter for being for being on your show and listening to your show. You're getting learned, more smarter. You're getting, getting more, more smarter. smarter That's more my- better and more smarter <laughs> every week. You know, we have like a little uh, slogan: laugh, listen, and learn. I think yes. I think the new slogan is get more smarter. Listen. That's to, right. Yeah. Stay on the line. Smarter. Get more smarter. <laughs> Stand line for one second. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let us now go to the Upper West Side, where Kevin Bartini is standing by. He has two comedy CDs that everybody should purchase, Showing the Horses Who's Boss and the Unintentionally White Album. Go see Kevin Bartini coming, coming to a comedy club near you. Hello, good sir. Hello, sir. How are you? Did we talk New Year's? I've been on some. We did. Okay. Yes, you were very sick, though. Well, I'm always sick. Yeah. How was your New Year's? Uh, what did you do uh, for New Year's? Oh, you went to see a band, right? No, we didn't. We ended up uh New the Year's Brothers. Day. No, we didn't do that. We instead on New Year's Day went to the Knicks game and had like courtside seats. So we did that wow. instead. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Wow. It's pretty awesome. I I got a taste of how the other half lives and I like it. You went to I'm s- not a yeah, I'm not even a fan of basketball or the Knicks. I'm just a fan of really good seats to pretty much everything, especially uh-huh. when they're when they're free. So now the Knicks play golf in terms of scoring, right? The idea is to get the lowest <laughs> yeah, number the of lowest points. score, right. the lowest number of points. Yes, but they actually they actually won that day. They they got the largest number of points. Um, Did you see but, Spike Lee? Uh, no, I saw Turtle from Entourage was there. Oh, Woody Allen? No, I didn't see Woody Allen. Uh, the only celebrity they showed was Turtle. And, uh, what they do is like, they'll show on the Jumbotron at some point, they'll show like clips. So they showed some clips of Jerry Ferrara on Entourage and then in a couple of other movies and stuff. And then after they show it, then there's a live camera right on him and the, the audience, you know, yeah. goes. Cheers. So they did that. And then what they, what, what was a bummer was like 20 minutes later, they started to run another bunch of clips and it was Billy Crystal. And I was like, Oh, cool. Billy Crystal's here. And cause they were showing some stuff from like when Harry met Sally, mm-hmm. but that wasn't that. That was the intro for them to do the kiss cam thing. So kiss that was cam. a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you see cam. any men kissing each other on the kiss cam? Uh, no, they did not 
show any same-sex kissing on the kiss cam that I can recall from that game. Yeah. But I can't be an authority on this, having only gone to one game. And that's, uh, you know, I, so if, if I get to go to see some more, I, I will keep an eye out for it. I imagine they must have that at some time. Okay, we have a lot of stories to get to. We and do. A woman has accused McDonald's of not giving her enough sauce. There's a weed yeah. weed shortage. There uh-huh. is a, a company named Charmin. Please mm-hmm. don't squeeze the Charmin. They're right. trying to ease poop anxiety. The Pope uh-huh. kissed a nun. Carnival Cruise Lines is banning offensive clothing. The people in Florida have delivered another great story. A mm-hmm. mother delivered two sets of twin boys in 2019. And Florida, once again, with the story of the week, a Florida woman has been accused of throwing human feces at her landlord. Let's start off with the woman who uh, accused uh, of threatening McDonald's. Well, by the way, this is just, you know, you just rattled off. We, we've got about seven or eight great yeah. stories from the news yeah. talk. So for anyone who says, oh, everything's impeachment or impending war and there's nothing else going on in the world. Um, excuse me. People in Florida are going to jail over McDonald's sauce packets. They're throwing poop at each other and now they're having babies four at a time. So don't yes. tell me there's not news out there. Yes. You just oh. got to go looking. Was it Florida, the woman who said she's going to get McDonald's sauce by any means necessary? Was that a Florida? Yes, it was a Florida woman. Yes, a Florida woman. Oh, absolutely. What happened? Marie McLaughlin, 19. uh, We can actually package these three stories in these three stages of life for a woman in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The first stage is? The first stage is uh drunken <laughs> drunken hua and so this is 19 year old florida woman uh was accused of threatening to get mcdonald's sauces by quotes any means necessary so here's the story it's florida it's new year's day uh so i, or I guess very early morning new year's day so she has been up partying for new year's eve mm-hmm. comes into um but comes into a rest, a McDonald's restaurant, a 24 hour restaurant sometime early morning. So two, three in the morning goes on in orders, um, a lot, a lot, a lot of food mm-hmm. and through the drive through and, and pays for it. And then asks that for after all of a sudden done, she asked for the dipping sauces and she wants one of each. And now McDonald's now offers like a dozen different types of dipping, dipping sauces. Like, mm. I remember when I was a kid, there was sweet and sour sauce and there was a honey mustard and that was it. You know, those are two types of sauces. Now they have a sommelier who comes out and recommends. Yeah, Yeah, with a big metal bowl and some shallots and Uh some heavy cream and they whip it right in front of you, Mm -hmm. you know. So anyway, no, they've got now they've got spicy buffalo, creamy ranch, you know, barbecue, all this kind of. So there's about a dozen of them. And this this lady wants one of each Mm -hmm. and. Here's where, 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 where she comes into trouble is, uh, she was incensed that McDonald's wanted to charge her 25 cents for every one of these, uh, which is, you know, which is ridiculous. If, if they should come, if you're getting McNuggets or something, you get some sauces on the side for free. Mm-hmm. That is her point. Uh, 
so she goes into the store and, um, you know, starts yelling and making a drunken fool of herself. Um, and then they said she had glassy eyes and slurred speech and, and yelling and, and swearing. So they called the police and, uh, the police came and obviously, you know, what, what the, here's the thing. This was an article from the Daily Mail in you in the UK. And I really think a lot of these stories from the Daily Mail, the, the basic premise is people in America are ridiculous because the headline is that she's threatening to rob a McDonald's and, and they make it sound like that's why she ended up getting taken out by the police. Like you, you, that's not true. You can threaten to rob whatever you want. That's not illegal. What's a, what she, they got her for was, you know, drunken disorderly conduct. And she said so she she's going to get them by any means necessary, any, which is any means necessary. That's Malcolm X said. That. Right. Sure. Exactly. Well. And, and, um, one doesn't think that she was, you know, I don't, I don't know if we thought she was going to get an armed rebellion or get people together or what. Uh, but she, you know, she was talking tough and, and the police took her away. Uh, so that's step one in the life of, of a Florida woman is <laughs> 19. Yes. Out on her own. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's drunk. Obviously, there's marijuana involved. There's no way marijuana was not involved in this with glassy eyes and wanting every dipping sauce. Exactly. So, yes. so she's stoned. It's New Year's Eve, uh, which is awesome because she actually had a reason this time to be drunk and stoned as opposed to the other 364 nights of the, of the year. Exactly. Uh, goes out and uh, makes an ass of herself and ends up spending the night in the drunk tank. So then... After Were there a whole other set of dipping sauces available to her? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they were actually, did I, I think I said 12. There's eight flavors offered, eight flavors. So okay. she didn't get up, ends up in jail. And uh, now phase two of a Florida woman uh, would be <laughs> while in jail. Uh, this always happens while in jail in the drunk tank for the night is when I imagine this lady meets the love of her life. Yes. Uh, Go and, slowly, slowly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they, and you know, they, they hit it off, you know, they have so much in common, both in the drunk tank, both enjoy McDonald's, uh, both blondes with real dark roots. Yes. And, <laughs> and by that and, you're saying that there, she has probably one grandparent who, was no, I, <laughs> is that no, what you're I'm saying? Literally, I'm literally looking at her mugshot. Oh, okay. And uh, you know, I'm just saying it's the holiday season. Touch up those roots. Yes. I mean, you yes. know, party, party. But but she's got a good couple of inches of dark under there. Yeah. Anywho, so are you calling maybe, her Kunta Kinte? That's gonna... <laughs> go ahead. Uh, they meet. Uh, you know, she'll she'll of course meet meet a man. And they'll they'll. They'll finally get out of the drunk tank that morning, head back to his trailer, maybe back to her trailer. But, you know, the the the, the, the romance, the love affair just starts. Right. So now you're in a Florida trailer, you and your drunk tank hubby, and, and things go great. And you're in love. And By the uh, way, I don't, we don't make fun. You know, their trailer parks are very nice. We don't make fun of people who live in trailer parks. No, not for living in trailer parks. No, I, I have friends who live in trailer parks. Right. And I don't, that has this nothing is more, to do. Yeah. No, no. 
Uh, we all have wonderful friends who live in trailer parks. Uh, I'm making fun of the their piece of shit neighbors. Yes. Yes. So anyway, then you fall in love, and you end up uh, procreating, and as as in in a, a proper uh, society or whatever, um, you know, it's Darwin. It's evolution mm-hmm. is survival of the fittest. So you would think the smartest and healthiest of us would procreate, and that would make our species stronger. Uh, yet in Florida, um, they're popping them out two at a time. Right. And so that's what happens in the next story. She is has that twins. They, she has twins, but then she has another set of twins um, 11 months later. I see. So, so, I mean, that is a testament to just how horny a Florida man can be. He can watch this lady's squirt two oh, babies out. Uh, and then right, let's be careful six here. Six weeks later, no, six weeks later, be like, we got to do that all over again. Like, right. this isn't, Irish twins are like, you know, up to 18 months. Florida quadruplets is what we end up with. It's a whole new thing. And these are four babies all born within 11 months. This I would, assuming it was Florida, I, I would seven. think he was fertilizing her in between the twins. Like the first one in comes out, he goes in, uh-huh. oh, pull out, sir. There's another one in there. <laughs> hey, what are you doing in there? Are you cheating on me? Oh, it's another baby. All right, let him out. Yeah, so I'm so, surprised so he weird. waited that long for the right. next set of twins. <laughs> so yeah, she's 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 a uh, a, a now uh, a mother of four, uh, you know, and we wish them all all the the luck. And how can that turn out bad? Uh, having right? how, having right? four babies because uh, I've I've always heard that it gets easier. Like you have your first one, it's tough, but if you have like four right right in the time. If they start taking care of each other, yes, yes, I think is how it does. Like they'll be diapering one another. Yes, uh, there the reason the thing in this the Associated Press is is calling this like you know she'd had a better chance of winning the lottery than giving birth to two sets of twins. Like they're calling it like a jackpot. Like mm-hmm. like they're really getting off on the mathematical probabilities. Yeah, the difference between uh, a jackpot and her vagina is a jackpot doesn't shoot out. As much yeah. as this yeah. woman's her, vagina. Her vagina didn't start ringing and dinging yeah. when she paid off. Yeah. <laughs> there was no flashing lights. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was, yeah. They, they, uh, oh, so that's the second phase of a... That's the second phase of a Florida woman. Right. Uh, right. So this is, we'll, we'll put her somewhere in her 20s at right. that time. So and now, now phase, phase two... Uh, now there's a little break between phase two and phase three because phase three is when the stuff gets tough. When the four raising the four, uh, the four babies is a little more than she can take. Uh, dad, you know, he, he leaves eventually, especially when he reads an AP article on the birth of the two sets of twins. And, uh, we, we hear that the doctor, this is how the, it opens, that the doctor told a Florida woman that she had a better chance of winning the lottery than giving birth to two sets of twins in the same year, in which he realized, you know, he's, he's looking for a woman who can actually win the lottery. Exactly. And, 
as opposed to stick him with uh, four miles to feed. So, so dad would he be really gone. wants to get lucky as right. opposed to <laughs> getting lucky. And, now that, and, and by the way, now that Florida woman has uh, four infants to feed all four, four of those infants all have different tastes and sensibilities. Now it makes sense for her to go back to McDonald's and get all those different dipping sauces. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, Yes. So after feeding these kids a steady diet of McDonald's and, uh, they, you know, they've grown up, uh, and gone their own way, you know, you'd think, well, one is going to Harvard, another to, uh, Penn and another to Columbia, you know, uh, so they're off, uh, Mm -hmm. life's going well. And now all of a sudden, mama is a, is a husk of herself. No, they're, everybody's gone. Yeah. It's just, and now she's just living in an apartment somewhere and nobody's, calling her nobody's you know paying attention to her uh <clears throat> she she hasn't touched up her roots in years and now her hair is uh frizzy and untreated and, and she's starting to show her age mm-hmm. so what happens well you know she doesn't have money she's got a lot of problems she forgets to pay her rent for a couple of months and that puts her on the bad side of the landlord the mm-hmm. landlady and then of course, once you aren't paying your rent, now you're seeing the things in your apartment that are wrong and justify not paying, right? Well, yeah. there's a crack in the ceiling, there's a drip, and, and until you take care of my drippy sink, I'm not paying you and all this. And then, Now, when you say then, her drippy sink, you're referring to what? Um, In this case, just literally a sink. Oh, I but, see. Okay, I thought you... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, the other things, of course, are permanently drippy when you've had yeah. two sets of things. Right, 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 right. That's my fault. Go ahead. It is. Anyway, um, so then, so then the landlady, uh, after all these complaints, actually schedules a time to come to the apartment to take care of some of this stuff, okay. to show up. Nice. Right. Yes. In hopes to get the money. But, uh, the landlady gets there at the appointed time. Knocks on the door and there's a, there's no answer, hmm. you know. So she takes her master key to let herself in as, as she has the right to do per the terms of their lease. And this lady is expecting her. Well, boy, was, was she expecting her? Because as soon as, uh, as the landlady opens the door, uh, Florida woman, um, waiting there pops out and, uh, empties an entire bucket of human waste uh, right on the face in person of the landlady who was just showing up to fix some leaky sinks. Oh, so she did and get the dipping sauce from McDonald's. She got the dipping <laughs> Yeah, she got all eight flavors in one glass. <laughs> but apparently she... Now, here's the thing is uh, this was this was one of my, my favorite parts of this article was when, of course, the police showed up. Uh, the woman, the Florida woman, had two get-out-of-jail-free cards ready to play in ah, her excuse, which was, the first was that the landlady started it by flinging feces at her, mm. which makes you think the landlady was so incensed that she had to, you know, that she didn't answer the door, that made the landlady so angry that when she reached into her back pocket for her key, it gave her an idea. Right. So she reached a little, you know, like a monkey and waited for to get that door open and just came in flinging her own shit. I don't believe necessarily. It's kind of hard to believe, but that was her first excuse. And then when that didn't fly, the other excuse was that 
that the, the woman had meant to fling a bucket of water, but grabbed the wrong bucket. Yeah, that happens a lot to me. <laughs> sure. I, mean, I confuse my bucket of feces with a bucket of water because, you know. You know what? It's something I tell my wife all the time. It's yeah. not that I don't want you to have an open bucket of human waste next to our bed. I mean, obviously, who wants to get up in the middle of the night? Floors are cold. I understand. Yeah. I just don't think it makes sense to also have an identical bucket of fresh water. They should case. be. They should look differently. The buckets. You got to label them. Yes. At, at a, or, or a different color bucket or yeah. something. So anyway, so she fl- she flings uh, the wrong bucket. Um, no mention in the article whether the police were able to find the other bucket of fresh water still mm-hmm. sitting there or not. Um, yeah. She, you know. So anyway, the it, it also sounds like she flew this human waste uh, so hard that there was splashback and the lady got covered as well. Although it sounds more like the. Uh, the, the the landlady did not take this well and uh, kind of physically attacked her and smushed some poop uh, on her. I see. Interesting. So, yes. So um, I think those are pretty good three phases of Florida Woman's Life. Did I miss anything? No, I mean, but, but we should talk about apparently poop anxiety. Yeah. Poop anxiety is something that Sherman uh, has has created. Uh, Sherman. Sherman paper Charmin, you know the toilet paper company i, I just want to mention something because i find yes. this kind of yes uh, sharp we're going to talk about poop anxiety and the consumer electronics show in las vegas and what Charmin is doing to uh-huh. uh, help people with their poop anxiety but in this article that i read they talk about Charmin being one of the all-time great marketing geniuses that they've had the top yeah advertising agencies working for them and one of the agencies was i'm not making this up the ad firm of benton and bowels that's the name of the agency benton and bowels b-o-w-l-e-s they Uh help (laughs) charmin become a household word benton and bowels Bowels. Either it, way, it, it, whether whether it's pronounced bowels or bowls, both. Yeah, both either way. Well either way. Paper. But it, it's spelled. Oh, you I know what? It's it. L-E-S. Yeah. Okay. Bowls. So actually, it sounds better if you're thinking Charmin. You're back yes. on the bowl. <clears throat> well, tell me what's uh, what Charmin uh, has come well, up with. Well, first of all, the everybody you know you know what the brilliant thing that Charmin did in their ad campaigns and everything is they they adopted you know. Charmin is the one with those cute commercials of bears. And so they took the whole common, you know, phrasing of does a bear shit in the woods. Right. And that's their whole campaign is bears shitting in the woods and, and using their toilet paper. So it's a way of saying this is the actual what our toilet paper is supposed to be used for and finding a cute, you know, commercial way to do it. So so, so tell us there's there's this poop anxiety of mm. people sitting on the turlet. Yeah. And not having toilet paper. Yeah. Is that what poop anxiety is? Just the I, fear of running out of toilet paper? I always find it more having to go when you're in a in a public restroom and there's somebody right next to you and that grossness is all much worse. Yeah. Uh, I have no, you know, that's much more anxious than the idea of running out of paper. But 
So yeah, you know, they, they now have a, uh, a little tiny robot with an electric teddy bear face mm. that brings you toilet paper on command. Ah. So I don't, I don't, yeah. It, and it, it's all hooked up to an app on your phone. So because who doesn't have their phone in their hand when they're on the toilet, apparently. Which so is you why you should never app. borrow somebody's phone. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think, also why we've stopped speaking on the phone just in general. You don't want to have to go through that and yeah. wonder where they are. And what yeah. yeah. But anyway, there. so it's an app and you, you hit the button and then this little robot with a teddy bear face wheels up to your door and gives you a, a roll of toilet paper. Now, there's a couple of questions I have. First of all, is this a little... Um, a little robot with a teddy bear face that you have to purchase and have in your home just on the ready? Or is this some sort of an app, like an Amazon drone type thing drops the teddy bear off at your location? And then, well, I mean, if it's a robot, hang on for one second. If it's a robot, yeah, why doesn't it take the extra step so I can continue to text? Yeah. Oh, oh, hey, 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 we're talking 2.0 then. You're getting into the. This, you know, this is, I think this is more of the beta version. And then later, of course, that, that robot is going to have a wiping arm. That teddy bear face is going to have a sharp stream of water that shoots out the mouth. There's going to yeah. be plenty of things happening on there. Yeah. Um, so no, but I'm wondering, does it, does the, do you, do you hit the app and then all of a sudden the Charmin bear robot just shows up? And, but then he has to get into your house. Is he going to tunnel in through a door? Cause if you have to get off the pot to go open a door, this is this. There's just a lot of questions. What about this? What about yeah. this? Yes. Self wiping food. What Self wiping food. Yes. It, you 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 know nanotechnology. We start putting mm-hmm. little tiny micro Charmin pellets in our food, huh. so that okay. as it's passing through our duodenum, it's also preparing. It's expanding. Oh, and it. It, it's self, like pellets. a self clean, it's a self cleaning oven. Yeah, self cleaning oven. And these pellets kind of while they're in your system, they merge together. So they finally push out is one piece of paper that cleans the tunnel on its way. And you poop out a Q-tip and clean your ears and go on your way. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a perfect idea. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, they, they, they have no shortage of awesome ideas at, uh, at Charmin, you know. Yeah. There, there is a solution to all of this. Oh, which is the spare roll uh, under the sink? Veganism. Veganism. You don't poop anymore, or is it just little dried pellets of? It's pretty, pretty clean. <laughs> pretty clean. Well, bear shit in the woods. We know uh-huh. that is the Pope Catholic. Is the Pope Catholic? Uh, I I got to admit. Uh, I haven't checked. I don't keep up on the Pope. I, I'm, I'm still, you know, I have the screener for the two Popes, so I haven't seen, but I'm, I'm guessing great. the new ones is Catholic as well. Okay. Uh, now the Pope, uh, 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 a week ago smacked a woman. Yes. You read about yes, that, right? I did. Saw that video. That was a New Year, New Year's Day thing. That's, you know, uh, I mean, granted, she did burn his meatloaf. But. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, I, you know, I looked at the first time I saw the, it's interesting. You look at that video. Yeah. He has obviously never been with a woman. The way he smacked right. her, 
Yeah. It was very telling, and I like this Pope, but the way he, there was something inappropriate. You should never smack a woman. And the way he did that, it, it's, I don't know. It was, I, it was not nice. Well, I think it was funny that there was, that he ended up having like a cover your ass kind of thing was he was, he did a, uh, during his New Year's Day sermon or something, ended up doing it all about against uh, violence against women. But I, I don't see it as violence against women or, you know, it was incidental that she was a woman. I mean, this is just a person on a rope line who grabbed his hand and wouldn't let go. Yeah, but he did so, that smacking. It that was yeah. that was that was an involuntary reaction on his part. Yeah, and it was well, very I, telling. I think I, I think who came off worse is his security detail who was just standing there. The fact that this lady grabbed him and held him long enough that the Pope had to hit her, and they hadn't jumped in. You know, I think once doors were closed, you got the Pope cursing out a couple of guys. Like, where yeah. the fuck were you? And yeah. that's that's what you want is you want the Pope using some salty language and really losing the shit. On and so he um, explained he he hit her because he loves her. Is that what he said? Yeah, basically, you know, that or, you know, uh, she wouldn't <laughs> listen, whatever it was. <laughs> sometimes, Marie, sometimes. I don't know. I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but only moments earlier, the Pope's favorite soccer team lost in a really close one. Oh, forget, forget the mass on Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> Ladies, do not show up in Vatican Square. <laughs> uh, so anyway, but now he's got a bit of a sense of humor about it. Uh, the Pope, um, now is the other day was walking another line of, uh, uh, of people, uh, and, and before I get into that, but the other thing with this woman grabbing him, right? Yeah. And him slapping him. The thing that my problem with is him slapping her, her hand away like that, like it's so inappropriate and like crazy. Like you're the Pope. Like this is literally your job is, is all you have to do is stand there and, and let these morons literally touch the hem of your garment. Right. That's the whole job. Just right. they're, they're climbing over themselves on New Year's Day just to see this, you know, octogenarian virgin, uh, walk by and, and she grabs hold of one second. Do we second. know if he's a virgin? Cause you, you can have an active sex life before you take a out. Yeah, you don't have to be a virgin, do you? Well, I think uh, I, I I would imagine. You, you think maybe he had a little rumspringer in his in his early days? I thought you. I thought once you take a vow of celibacy, that's it. Yeah. But, you, but you can. Yeah, but I think if you're going to be on the fast track to pope, you got to get into the priesthood early, right? I mean, I like are all are all nuns virgins. Uh, are all nuns virgins? No, not all nuns and not all priests necessarily. But I, my point is, if you're, if you're the Pope, I, I think you started out as a priest very young and pious and, and chances are would have followed the no premarital sex thing or whatever. Um, oh, I thought you I just get it all out of your right? system. I guess it's, it depends. Um, everybody is different. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I do, uh, I, I do know that the, the Pope lost his shit at just the touch of a woman. So 
Yeah. That's not a good sign either. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, who knows? Look at this, this Pope, he, uh, you know, to make it up this far in, in the ranks of the Catholic Church, he had to look the other way for a lot of things. So, yeah. so what hmm. happened? So, so I guess, uh, a nun came on to so him? this time, a nun, he's walking the line and this time a nun asks for a kiss. Oh boy. She asks him to oh kiss him a cheek. Oh yes. Not and, good. uh. Did he hit her? Right. He didn't. He, uh, you know, he, he, that he made a joke. And he said, well, you don't bite, do you? I will give you a kiss if you well, stay calm. Why would he ask if she bite. bites? She asked for a kiss, not a blowjob. Right? I, I don't, I don't know that he knows the difference oh. or what, but his, yes, he's made an international news for asking a nun whether or not she bites before. He was trying to tease and I think making light of the last instance with the I other see. one, but, uh. So did he know, eat her face? He, he ended up, I guess, Giving her a kiss on the cheek, and and that was the the whole fun story. That's, wow! Yeah, he's he's uh you know hitting one lady, kissing the next. Pope on non-action, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good for good for his pontiff. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We like I like this pope. Do you? Sure. What's not <laughs> What's not to love? Oh well, he's Catholic. I, I love the Pope. But well before you go. <laughs> I say that having been raised Catholic, so Yeah. I, I and I could see if I had to pick another religion. Yeah. I would do Catholicism. Oh really? Yeah. Oh. Okay. I would uh I would go with one that's a little less uh I like the pageantry. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, they got some good well if you like pageantry, then I would go with like just for the show, then I would go with some sort of like a deep Southern Baptist, like with the good big choir and people fainting and and all that. That's some good show. Yeah, that's pageantry. But that's that, what I. Yeah, but you have to participate in the show. Yeah, the Pope puts bit. on a show. It's like well, a see, Broadway I play. I, I wouldn't participate. I would if I went to a church like that. I would be like the Blues Brothers in that James Brown scene, just standing in the back. Until the light hit John Belushi and he danced, but Elwood just stood there. He wasn't going to participate. I think you can just watch. When I was down in in the Carolinas a a year or two ago, we were tempted to go just find a real good southern church and just see what it is like. Uh, I think that would be entertaining, but... um, but having gone through 18 years of that pageantry, it's boring as shit. Well, so, apparently I'm, shit isn't that boring after listening to today's <laughs> show. Kevin Bartini has yeah. two comedy CDs. Excellent job, as always. Thank you, my friend. And people should go buy your two comedy CDs, Showing the Horses mm-hmm. Who's Boss, and yep. the Unintentionally White Album. Do you have any comedy gigs you want to plug? I do on the next thing. I'm not ready to do it but it's something very big and uh very cool and it's um i i really can't say yet because we haven't made everything uh, official on okay. it but uh it's it's going to be in the uh w- well one of the two is going to be kind of in the um fundraiser uh for uh an, an anti-gun fundraiser okay um you know but i yeah, we'll talk about it next I week. I, I, yes, I look forward to that. Okay, uh, stay on the line for one second, Kevin Bartini. Okay. 
You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump. Let us now go to Hollywood, where Liam McEnany is standing by. He is the host of Tell Your Friends. It's a terrific podcast. And you should buy his comedy CD, Working Class Fancy. Let's answer some listener questions with Liam McEnany. Hello, sir. Hey, David Feldman. Hello, listeners. Well, we have so many fans who love to go to the David Feldman Show website. They hit the Ask Me Anything button, and they know that Liam and I will answer all their questions. Today, we're also going to be introducing some of the voicemails that some of our listeners have sent us. If you call 202-670-2752 and leave us a voicemail, if it's relatively clean, we will play it on the show. But first, Liam, you have a theme song. Okay. Emilio, one of our listeners. Right. Loves you so much. One of your toothless degenerates. My what? Toothless degenerates. Degenerates without teeth. Is that Ellen's brother? Toothless degenerates? (laughs) (laughs) There's Vance, uh, Uh who is slightly more famous than me. Uh, And then there's Toothless. (laughs) Who is her brother? (laughs) We're going to talk about. He does a lot of meth. Yeah. Well, uh, Emilio wrote a theme song for you. It was a labor of love. He sent it to me last night. He says, I love Liam McEnany. I look forward to his answering all our questions. Well, let's strike one against him. Well, let's listen to this song that he wrote for Liam. Here we go. Liam McEnany. He was fucking weight, cocktail waitresses two at a time. M C capital E N E A N E Y. Is there anything you can do for me, Mike? Sorry, Sal, not this time. That's fantastic. Thank you, Emilio. Great job. Thank you, Emilio. Did you record that through two tin cans and a string? <laughs> Holy be, shit! Be nice. I've heard I've heard slightly better sound quality <laughs> through the walkie-talkie I had when I was eight years old. <laughs> he doesn't no, have. So- Emilio was great. It was really uh, you literally put minutes of effort into that. He he, he worked very hard on that, mm-hmm. and we should be, we should be grateful for it. I'm not- Hello. Yeah, that was just uh, a needle scrape. Okay. What is this? I don't know. The we trailer have new sound for effects. bad mid-90s comedy? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Well, we David have some voicemails. David Feldman thought he was going to host a podcast, but we'll... Hang on. David Feldman was a comedian, but one day he discovered podcasting. <laughs> I'm walking on sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> That's how those movie trailers usually work. Hey, we have voicemails. Or Emmys and a Peabody. And then one day... Let's listen to some voicemails. This, I don't know who these people are. This comes to us from a listener. If you call 202-670-2752, leave us a voicemail. We'll play it on the show if it's relatively clean. We've never played any voicemails before, and there's a reason. So here's our first voicemail. Are you ready, Liam? 
I'm ready when you are, buddy. This I is can't exciting. Wait. Okay, this is our first voicemail ever. <laughs> I wish I spoke. You know yeah. That's exactly how I expected Bernie Hope Baby Cat to sound. <laughs> yes. Okay. Hi, I live in Las Vegas. I'm a big Bernie Sanders supporter, and I think Liam is a shithead. Anyway, here's my 83 YouTube comments this week. <laughs> what happened between you two? I actually thought before Christmas you two were going to hook up. You know what it was, David? She started emailing me, and I'm kind of not the best at responding to emails. Mm. And uh, I think, you know, once I didn't reciprocate her kind of our, you know, amour, I think is yeah. the word French use. She just kind of, uh, you know, probably felt really rejected and sad and uh, maybe killed herself. I was getting excited by the thought of you two hooking up uh -huh. and then a romance. That, weren't you going to make out with her? Wasn't that like a guarantee? Hey, look, I... I'll tell you what, I promised it. I mean, that was part of the listener contest that she won. That you get to neck with Liam. Do a little necking. Hey, speaking of which, how's your girlfriend? I have a sound of Liam necking with his last girlfriend. Would you like to hear it? Did you, uh, did you send your girlfriend home in an Uber? <laughs> is this that is why you're allowed to podcast now? This is Liam making out with his girlfriend. <laughs> You think you'd be able to afford a babysitter? What's going in there? What's going on? <laughs> All right. Stop. Stop. So anyway, did you send your girlfriend home in an Uber? Is that why you're allowed to podcast now? <clears throat> okay. Here we go. This is our first voicemail. Uh, you know what? I gotta say. That's why I like to start phone calls um, in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> anyway, uh, my name's Lane, um, and I'm morbidly obese. <laughs> and I would l like to ask you to stop having a go at the morbidly obese because we've got far too much outplayed as it is. <laughs> well, that's Lane, who we Lane. had on the show. Oh, Lane, Lane, the, the dude, he's been, uh, he's been, yeah. uh, been in, I think he follows me on Twitter. Maybe he's I follow him. He's a great guy. Back. We're, we're uh, going to make him a regular on the show. He sounds Scottish. He's uh, just not American. No, no, I mean, that's, could be uh, French, could be French, could be German, Australian. It's just not an American accent. Why do you think no, no. he's Scottish? Because he's morbidly obese. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Have you been to Scotland? Have I been, Have to, Scotland? been to Glasgow? No, it's a uh, it's not a pretty town, but uh, there's not a lot of pretty people there either. Are they fat it's, in Scotland? Oh my God! What do you what do you think happens to all those fried meat pies and chips? What you think it goes through their body and magically leaves intact? Hmm. Now, are the Scottish cheap? That seems to be the joke about the Scottish. I would say, are the Scottish cheap? No. Do they live up to the stereotype of being short-tempered, violent, and drunk? Yes, absolutely. Okay. But uh, I would say the Scottish are proud. Uh-huh. And I would say uh, they're ugly. Okay. 
Well, thank so you the, for alienating our listeners in Scotland. It's an island of very unattractive people. Thank you for saying that. I was that. walking through a music festival in Glasgow once, and I was like, oh, this is where America gets all its white trash from. Well, that's not nice. I feel like I'm walking through the Appalachian Mountains. Oh, come on, Liam. I have listeners in, <laughs> in, in Scotland. <laughs> One day I'd like to go there and visit and maybe perform. Are you eating? Stop. What are you eating? Uh, my feelings. Oh, okay. I will say I'll stop. I will say Scotland has the best comedy clubs in the world. In all seriousness, okay. The stand, the stand in Edinburgh and Glasgow are the best comedy clubs maybe I've ever performed in, and they're run by people who love stand-up comedy and really understand it. Okay. And they're very generous to their comedians. They give you hotel and they pay you well and all that stuff. So In that case, let's alienate them so there's no chance that you and I could ever do our show from there. Oh, well, oh, they haven't booked me in a while, so fine. Okay. Let's get to our other voicemail. I don't know who this is. This is voicemail 18. <laughs> We've gotten the last one was voicemail 44. Okay. okay. This is voicemail 18, and they're only three total that I can play. <laughs> so, folks, you got to pick up your game and call 202-670-2752. I need more than uh, what you're giving me in terms of voicemail. Here's uh, Yeah, because we need something family-friendly for a segment that starts with a theme song that goes, he was banging waitresses two at a time. Yeah. All right, here we go. Oh, it's your girlfriend. No, this is somebody. This is somebody sent this. <laughs> what? I, it's, that's, that was number 18. That was the 18th voicemail. That was, this is the quality voicemail that you could. Uh huh. So, Lane, who was morbidly obese, that's that was the 44th voice. I went through 44 voicemails till I got to something that was reasonably usable. This was number 18. And this really picked up their game. Yeah. And this is 62. Are and that's you it. This, 62. This is the sec 62nd voicemail. <laughs> and this is. I, I don't even remember what it was. I just remember thinking, okay, I could at least play this. <laughs> Here we go. Hello, Captain Feldman. This is Randall in Harrisburg. I have a question for you and Liam. I'm wondering why I start sneezing when I pluck my eyebrows. Thanks. Well, that's interesting. That's you a know, real... See, folks, that is a real voicemail. Thank you, Randall. Where Where's he from? Hello, Captain Feldman. This is Randall in Harrisburg. I have a question. Randall in Harrisburg. I would assume that's Pennsylvania, right? I, I yeah, I would. Say. Isn't that <laughs> near all, Three Mile you. Island? Isn't Harrisburg near Three Mile Island? Sounds Where like <laughs> he sounds. <laughs> he sounds like someone making fun of. <laughs> we finally got. Wait a second. We finally fire. We finally get a usable voicemail that's real not lane going back for seconds i love lane but we had him on the show i want to have him back 
He's but, in the buffet lane. <laughs> he's in the uh, yeah the morbidly. He, but this was like a legitimate voicemail that was left with a with a serious the, question. And you're going to make fun of Randall from Harrisburg. You're going to make fun of Harris. Hi, I'm Randall, and I have some corrections for you. For you. <laughs> Randall from Harrisburg. First of all, Klingons were their own race. They're not human. <laughs> uh, second of all, Spock was half human and half Vulcan, but he was raised on Vulcan, which is why he's a famous as Vulcan side. <laughs> Randall is a good listener. <laughs> You know, I like the Last Jedi, but I felt like the right <laughs> I more with John Lewis's original templates. Randall had a legitimate question. He called two oh two six seven zero twenty seven fifty two. He didn't make sheep noises. He wasn't giving me the sound of him and his girlfriend trying to light something that I don't need to hear. I had to go through, what, 62 voicemails to get to a legitimate real listener, and now you're crapping on him. Uh, first of all, uh, in Doctor Who, uh, <laughs> he's the 15th Doctor, if you include the War Doctor that John Hurt played. Some people would include the Valiard, but I say he's the Doctor's regeneration. <laughs> Do you have this cold? You have this cold, right? I, I'm just getting over it. Yeah. Uh. <clears throat> yeah. It's it's. But Tom Hanks had that cold in the Golden Globes. I know. So in a way, I'm on the Golden Globes. <coughs> How long have you had this? Uh, I would say almost a week. I'm two weeks into. I, I I can't have Jackie the Joke Man on because once I start laughing, I start coughing. <clears throat> so you so you're afraid once you get like thirty or forty minutes into a segment, you're gonna start coughing. Be be nice. I was gonna say. I, I love. By the way, I love Jackie. I'm the reason that you and Jackie met. I I absolutely adore Jackie. But I would have well, said on. that. I, I would have said no matter whose segment that would, you were talking about. Just because I, I was going to say I can't. I was going to say I can't have Jackie on because I'll <coughs> laugh and start coughing. I don't want to laugh, so that's why I'm having you on. <laughs> I, just, I just had to say that because Jackie is very sensitive, and I didn't want him to feel like I was actually crapping on him. I'm a big Jackie fan. Well, you did our live show. You were the band leader on our live show. That we did with Jackie. Yeah, I'm. I'm the reason you know Jackie. How? I, I did when Alex Brazil was producing Tell Your Friends. We went out to Jokeland with a couple of other people and did a, an episode out there. Right. You went to his house. Hang on. Can you? Hear <coughs> did you hear me coughing? I have a cough button. Did you hear that? Yeah. Can you hear? Hang on, hang on. Let me. Can you hear this? Is it a button that makes you cough more? Did you hear me coughing just now? No. Okay, it works then. Hang on. Did you hear me calling your mother a whore? Uh, no. Oh, good. We have calling Liam's mother a whore button. So, you, like, sometimes 
in the middle of an interview, people are compelled to call Leah McEnany's mother a whore. And so they've installed a button that blocks that out. It's right next to the cough button. Are you mad at me? No, I'm, I'm just trying to get this joke. I wish you'd explain it a little more. About your mother? About calling my mother a whore. I mean, it's like, I'm sure it's hilarious. It just needs a little more explanation at the end. <sighs> How is, how's your mom? She's good. Good. Did I hurt your feelings? No. Oh. I would be upset if my mom was a whore. If uh, my mom was a prostitute, I might be a little bit offended. Right. But but also, David, I want to know why you're in the business of of shaming sex workers. I'm not shaming them. I think I think uh, me and your very progressive audience want to know why you're so anti-sex worker all the time. Why would I be anti-sex worker? Because you don't tip. Oh, that's true. Oh, that was a I funny tweet, by the way. What's that? You got five stars from your Uber driver. Oh, <laughs> I have a five star rating on like lifetime rating on Lyft, even though I make it very clear as soon as I get in the car that I don't tip. You use Lyft and not Uber. I use both, but I have a four point eight something rating on Uber. How do you find out what your rating is? Uh, Lyft, you can find out. Uber, you have to, or maybe, no, you know what it is? Lyft, at the end of the year, sends its customers an email telling them what their rating is. F you! What? Maybe it's just your the five-star customers. This is what it's come down to? Like, we have to depend now on Lyft and Uber to accept us? That's how corporatized our culture has become? Uh, you're absolutely right. By the way, uh, let me just uh, take a break to remind you all to go to davidfeldmanshow.com, click on the Amazon link, and buy all your products through David's Amazon Associates page. And then we'll send you, at the end of the year, your, your score from the David Feldman Show. <laughs> and it'll be... And you'll also get a score, customer rating score from one of these slaves in their warehouses. Well, that's what's happening in China. They have social scores now. <coughs> Did oh, you yeah? know that? No. Oh, yeah, that you get points for being a good citizen, and it goes on some kind of card. And uh -huh. good citizens, they, they get special privileges. They, they, really? board, they board planes earlier. It's a combination of your credit score, your legal score, and in China, if you have a good score, they're perks. Also in China, they have a brand new kind of disease they can't quite identify. Really? Yeah, it's I forget. Pneumonia. The, it's a pneumonia, but it's a new kind. They're not it's sure what it is. It's a new pneumonia. It's the new pneumonia. It's not the old pneumonia. It's the pneumonia. I'll tell you, this, I'll tell you how bad this pneumonia is. The P is not silent. <laughs> no, the P is uh, bloody long. Supposedly that's, that's a good way to die, pneumonia. Really? Yeah, fluid in your lungs. Oh, yeah, that's a it's, great way to die. They say it's a sweet death. I'm being serious. No, no, I'm being serious, too. There's a there's a meat market, and I, forget, I wish I could remember the town, but there's a meat market that is so filthy that it spawned a new kind of disease in China, and they have to do all these... Uh, they have to do all these, uh, what do you call them, to, to keep, what do you call it when people are uh, quarantines? They have to do all these quarantines now. 
to keep people from spreading the disease throughout the mainland? Well, <clears throat> it's it comes from sleeping with pigs. And I well, don't mean your third wife. Oh, hey, oh, hey, folks. All right. Uh, by the way, before we start. Yes. Happy Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. Today is Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. That's right. What did you do to honor uh, law enforcement, David? Uh, committed a couple of crimes. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I was talking to Jim Earl today, and he takes Law Enforcement Appreciation Day very seriously. He, talk, he donates money to the PAL, the Police Athletic League. Okay. He goes up and gives the cops a pat on the back, tells them what a good job they're doing. We need the police in this country. We do. We, we absolutely do. do. We do. I support the police because they're good. I. I let's are you on. saying? Are you saying that because you want your citizen score to go up? Yes. yes. All right. First question comes to us from Dr. David G. from Las Vegas. This is a doctor. His zodiac uh. sign is irrelevant. He's coming to us from Henderson, Nevada. He's a 25-year-old general practitioner, never Trumper. He wants to get new laws passed to ensure that we never elect anything like Donald Trump ever again. This is a 25-year-old general practitioner, a, a doctor. Uh, you ought to get his information and set him up with one of your daughters. Okay. I, probably a... the infected one. Since you... <laughs> <laughs> is, that what, is that what you were saying? <laughs> well, which one? <laughs> Why you dated more than one? <laughs> I uh, does a never Trumper mean he's a Republican? Well, never. Isn't Trump that who the never Trumpers are? I don't. I'm, know. I'm asking a serious question. I don't know. Here's okay. his question or comment. I enjoy your show, especially that you are a quantum comedian podcaster. You go beyond time and space, and your shows last for five to six hours. You go into details with your guests. Nothing is rushed. Excellent music also. My question is, at the end of your interviews, you tell the guests to, quote-unquote, stay on the line, and they always say yes. Even Jackie the Joke Man. What goes on during that time? Why is it done? Just curious. Thanks for your time, Dr. I can't give his name out. <clears throat> Dr. Well, no. G from Las Vegas. Dr. G. Soon, so, soon to be a uh, son-in-law. My son-in-law. Yes, he's a doctor. Uh, you, know the, you know the joke? I can't. So uh, what goes on? I say stay on the line. Well, I mean, I don't know what other guests, what happens to other guests, but uh, David usually needs about five or ten minutes to apologize after, after our segments. Yeah. We review. We pray. We, we go over. sorry, we go over the, the conversation, the interview, what was good, what was bad, how can we improve upon it? Sorry I called your mom a whore, and I'm really sorry I didn't tip her after. Yep. That's usually what I get week after week. That's usually the conversation. I think it's mostly gossip. Yeah, we mostly just talk shit about uh, everyone, every everything that we couldn't say about people on the, yeah. on the air. Yeah. Like, uh, we clarify and... 
David gives me the update on his girlfriend app off the air. Uh, and we, we crap on Alex Brazell. We we crap on Alex. It's always funny because then I bring it up the next week. Like he, <laughs> like he wasn't expecting me to just immediately gossip to the entire audience about what I know about his love life. And what what does my girlfriend look like? Uh, well, last again, week she have, last week she was a brunette. She was, I, I think she she's was, got black hair. Oh, now she she's has black probably, hair. She's probably a little older, so she dyes her hair black. Is my guess, long okay. and straight. Does she have be... long fingernails? <laughs> no, she's not Nosferatu. Oh, okay. That was is she that was two weeks ago? That was two weeks ago. <laughs> well, at least Nosferatu was willing to suck something. <laughs> hey yo! Hey yo! Hey yo! Did she uh... give it? Give she it to long... me. She has long fingernails, yeah. yellow teeth. Yeah, she sits over a pile of gold coins and just ah. fingers them greedily. <laughs> I like. She's, she yeah. sits in a dark opium den, smart, dark smoky opium den with dark black glasses. Hmm. I like. No, that. I'm gonna guess. I'm going to guess she's like maybe 10 years younger than you, so maybe like 60 or 70. Right. Uh, <coughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I feel like uh, she has good legs, mm-hmm. one of which uh, is still attached to her body. Right. Good. I like this. Uh, and the other one is really nice because it's, you know, polythyrene. And, and what's the sex like? Describe that for me. I, I, I like this. What is what, what? What like what? How does the sex work? Like, With your happens? girlfriend? Yeah, I don't know. It? I walk in, give her fifty bucks, and it happens. Okay, but with me, how does it work? Well, I walk in, give you twenty bucks, <laughs> and it happens. <laughs> no, 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 no. With me, like, tell me how this plays out. Like, I come back t- to the apartment. Is she there? Here's here's what happens. Yeah. You go to her. Let's say you go to. You're going to her place. And where is you her walk place? In. Where's her place? Well, I mean, uh, judging by the conversation you had with the Uber driver last week, do you want me to answer the question? Yeah, where's her Actually, place? Actually, uh, Jersey. Oh, Jersey. Okay, so she's like a bridge and tunnel high hair girl with long. No, no, fingernails? no. She's a she's a Jersey City. You know, maybe 20 years ago would have lived in the Upper East Side, but can't afford it now. So she lives in Jersey City. Has a nice, tasteful condo. Okay. Does she That's own it? Get. Does she own it? She's making payments. Uh-huh. And does she work for a living? What does she do? You know, I don't know. You haven't told me yet. I'll wait a couple of weeks, and then oh, uh, when you've okay. forgotten this conversation, I'll ask. Uh-huh. And then I'll I'll report back to the audience. And, and what's her, what's her uh, ethnicity? Uh, Jewish. Uh, Jewish. Because, oh, okay, that's good. Because you don't, you don't feel like you deserve better. <laughs> that's not nice. Okay. <laughs> this you have low self-esteem, so you're sticking with the Jew. All right, so I, I take the train <laughs> to Jersey City, right? No, no, no. You take Ubers. I take Ubers to Jersey City. I get there. What happens when I walk in the door? Yeah. Uh, Is she glad to see me? Listen. Here's how. Here's how it goes. What happens? You walk in. Yeah. The lights are low. There's yeah. a there's what's she like wearing? Candelabra. What's she wearing? Let, let me get let me get to let me get okay. to. Okay, what's playing on the relax, is Sinatra relax. on the? Hey, I'm 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 painting a picture here. Okay. Trust me. Good. The apartment I, star. 
There's a table laid out with a nice white tablecloth. There's yeah. a candelabra. There's a couple yeah. plates set yeah. up. There's yeah. something, uh, I would say, maybe St. Vincent playing softly on the stereo. But she's hipper than Frank Sinatra. Okay. She's a little hip. Okay. Uh, so maybe maybe St. Vincent, you know, maybe uh, someone like that. Maybe mm-hmm. some khaki king guitar instrumental playing in the background. Uh, and then you walk in and she says, oh, David, so great to see you. And then you immediately pick a fight about something. <laughs> because I can't get it up. No, no, because because you're you're only because you grew up with so much conflict in your life. That's the only that you're way only get it up. You're only able to relate to other people emotionally if there's some sort of emotional, angry conflict happening. In so the we start fighting. Well, you start low-level bickering. Low-level? Yeah, okay. You're not Irish. You don't pick a big fight right away. Okay. And, you, and, uh, and then do we sit down and try to eat like civilians, like adults, like humans? Yeah. Yeah, she maybe she ordered something from the Third Avenue Deli or something like that. What from Jersey City? Yeah. Why are you ordering? You, I got to pay for Seamless to come all the way over from the <laughs> from Manhattan. What are, what are you? You're killing me here. Use your own credit card then if you're going to order from the city. No, no, no. That's not how you. Again, you don't start that way. Oh, you go. You go like this. Oh, Third Avenue Deli. Hmm. And she's like, "Is there anything wrong with it?" No, the food's good. Food's good. Oh, but clearly there's something wrong. No, no, I, 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 look, I don't, I don't want to say, no, nothing's wrong. Well, clearly something's wrong. You're just not telling me. No, I would tell you if there's something wrong. Well, are no, you no, no, hiding underneath the, the couch? How did, this is exactly this conversation. <laughs> I would have, if you, if I knew you were going to order from the Third Avenue Deli <laughs> on the way over, I would have stopped off. Now I'm paying for the Uber to Jersey City. Plus, the extra mileage for seamless to deliver from from third. This is I mean, it's not that I don't you know what? Forget it. Just let's let's change the subject. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. No. I'm glad you ordered from the third <laughs> Avenue deli. I'm, gl- I'm glad you you uh, ordered from the third Avenue deli. I well, noticed I noticed. Yeah. Thomas Friedman's book that I bought you for <laughs> Christmas still on the, the coffee table there doesn't seem to be opened. It's a hardcover book, not a paperback. I got this for you for the holidays. You haven't cracked it. It's I mean, I could probably sell it on eBay as a brand new book. You, you don't like the book? Ah, forget it. You know what? It's a gift. You give. You just give the gift and you let it go into the world and you'll get around to enjoying it on your schedule, not mine. <laughs> let's not let's not discuss it. Yeah, that's pretty much how I imagine your evening goes. And then uh, eventually, I don't know, you probably go out and see a movie. Uh, when are then, we having uh, sex? I want to get to the sex. Describe the sex. Uh, well, you're on her couch. I'm on her couch. Does she have a cat? Uh, you Does make... she have a cat? No. Does she have a dog? No, no cats. It would... No, no dogs. Oh, I like this. Maybe, no maybe dogs, fish. no cats? No animals? Actually... I think she probably does have an animal, but I don't want to complicate this situation. Okay, so I'm on uh, the couch. You're on the couch. Uh... 
And then I hear like a thumping sound <laughs> upstairs. Right? Like yeah, a, she's, a, she's a duplex. Wow. No, no. The, 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 the upstairs neighbors are stomping okay. around. Uh-oh. And she wants you to do something about she it. She wants me to do something about that, and I can't because they're two young 24-year-old women going to Fairleigh right. Dickinson. And last time I asked them to stop, they were condescending. They looked at me like I was a old guy who was jealous of them and, and wanted them. That, that I wasn't right. really complaining about the noise they were making. I was complaining because I couldn't be part of the noise. And they made me feel weak and insecure. But now she wants me to go back up there right, and, and straighten them out. Right. And then she doesn't understand why when you come back down, you can't get an erection. Right. After you've been completely emasculated by two 24-year-old uh, girls. Right. And that guy... Who was there with them? Yeah, right. So I, so I can't get it up. And what does she say to me? No, no, no. I'm, no we haven't even gotten that far oh, yet. Okay. So you, you've got your arm around her. Yes. And she's being uncomfortable, but you're not reading the social cues as usual. Why is she being uncomfortable? Uh, so, well, we're about to get to that. Okay. So you, you go in to just kiss her on the neck. Yes. And she kind of pulls, pulls away a little bit. And you're okay. like, uh, uh, is everything okay? And then she says, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, what was that you were saying about the Thomas Friedman book earlier? And I said, let it go. That's water under the bridge. <laughs> and she said, yeah, yeah, I understand. It's water under the bridge. No, absolutely. It's just, just a little weird that you were so upset about it. Yeah. And then I say, I changed the subject and asked her if she's wearing the IUD I bought her. <laughs> Did you not like the IUD? I, is it not your size? Then she asks, she says, I'm not wearing your ID because I'm over the age of 45. She's, and if I have a child, it's going to be because the hand of God came down in the middle of the night and touched me in my sleep. And then I'm going to say, I didn't know you were over the age of 45. <laughs> <laughs> And she's going to say, yeah, I told you I was 10 years younger than you. That puts me at 60 at the least. But I told you I was 45. <laughs> All right. Let's so you don't say, need to. So that's great. You don't need to wear an IUD. <laughs> Where is it? I'd like to return. I'd like to return it. <laughs> Before we go any further. Where is it? And then she'll say, oh, this, this is awkward, but I regifted it. You regifted my IUD? That was for you. I know, but I've got I've got a girlfriend. She's a little younger, and we're the same size vagina. And I just figured it would look like it would work look good on. Wait a second! You never told me that. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, I'm, you let know, me, let me just focus. Compare vaginas. Let me just focus on your neck. Can we just? Start. Let's start all over again, okay? I just want to work on your neck. I'm going to kiss your neck. What do you mean, work on my neck? I want to kiss what, your are you neck. In construction? I, I, are I, you building something on my neck? No, I'm just nuzzling your neck, and I, I, I can't help but notice that you're wearing the perfume I bought you. But you know, it's a little excessive. Why are you wasting? This is very expensive Chanel. Why, you know, let it last. I don't want to have to buy you. 
new perfume in six months. This should last you a year. You know what, David? Let's just relax and continue watching the Mr. Rogers movie, okay? Okay, let's watch the Mr. Rogers movie. Okay. Because Tom Hanks gets me wet. Uh, what do you mean by that? You know what I mean by that. So wait a second. When I'm kissing you, you're thinking of Tom Hanks or Mr. Rogers? <laughs> Maybe both of them. You, you know, I... <sighs> All right, just... Let, oh, you know yeah. what? Seamless is here. Why don't we eat? Why don't we eat? And we'll, we'll... I'm sorry, I can't hear you over the noise of all that stomping from upstairs. You want me to go back up there? <laughs> I mean, whatever it is, whatever you want to do. I, I mean, I just spent $50 on an Uber pool to get Uber here. Pool. I took Where are you I, coming I, from Montana? I took Uber Pool to get here. I'm not Ooh, gonna... is, that, is that why you were seventy minutes late? Yeah, I couldn't wait to see you. You were too you were too cheap to take an Uber X? I could I was I couldn't wait to see you. And I was sitting there in the Uber pool with my fingers crossed, hoping I'd I'd be the first stop. That's how much I love you. Oh, so all right. So what? So how does the night? How does it end? How does it end? Uh with about mm, eight minutes of joyless sex. <clears throat> yeah. You know, joyless for whom? Both of you. Yeah. Garcia, so uh, we're lying. We're lying on her. Here's poop. the thing: you can't you can't fully enjoy yourself because. All the time that you're sticking it to her, you're wondering who she's thinking about. Is she thinking about you? Is she thinking about Mr. Rogers? Is she thinking about Captain Kangaroo? Mr. Green Jeans? And then you're like, does she have a type? Is there a type of person that she's attracted to that she would be into Mr. Rogers? Should I be? I mean, I'm already condescending to her, so I talk to her like she's an infant. So I know it can't be that. Now, am I intimidated by her? Or no, do I... you're never... You're annoyed. I'm annoyed. Okay. And you're who's not the happy alpha? unless you're annoyed, David. Is Who's the alpha in this relationship? That dude with the two girls upstairs. Yes, exactly. All right. So now we've had coitus. <laughs> and, yeah. And I make her finish everything on her plate. Because <laughs> the Third Avenue Deli, it's expensive, and they forgot the coleslaw. What? Yeah, I was on the phone for forty-five minutes with the Third Avenue Deli, screaming at them about the coleslaw. <laughs> and they wouldn't send more coleslaw to Jersey City. No, then, and I told them that my uncle was Charlie Seamless. <laughs> <laughs> and when Uncle Charlie, when Uncle Charlie Seamless hears that you guys forgot the coleslaw and didn't send another delivery guy out there, he's gonna he's gonna have your head. And then she's off in the other room watching the eleven o'clock news. Right. And and, and well, she, 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 I'm sorry, I said you're up that late. Yeah. 
And does she, or did she, she, or does she DVR it from the night before? She DVRs it from the night before. Now, does she ask me to stay the night, or does she want me to leave? She says you can stay the night. Okay. And again, you not being able to really read social cues very well, think that's an invitation to stay the night. Stay the night. So I stay the night. Yes. And now she's crying. Whoa, where did that come from? Because I stayed the night. Oh, I see what you're saying. No, she's not crying. She just uh, sighs heavily. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I see. I see. And do, do I... Sh so, and then I get into the bed with her, right? Yeah. Okay. And? Uh... You just kind of both lie side by side looking at the ceiling mm -hmm. till one of you pretends to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. That's about it. Not bad. Listening okay. to the soft sounds of banging. Upstairs. Yeah. Upstairs. Yeah. Uh, okay. This next question comes to us from Malt. His zodiac sign is lower middle class. He's listening to us up in New England. Dave and Liam. When I hey, we never answered the question about why the guy's eyes well up when he plucks his. Uh, oh, when he, he sneezes when he. He, he sneezes he? when he plucks his eyebrows. Uh huh. What? What? what uh, why do you sneeze when you pluck your eyebrows? Uh, I don't ever pluck my eyebrows. Oh, my eyebrows are naturally this beautiful. Hmm. Okay, but let me Google it right now. Maybe he has salt and pepper hair, and the pepper is causing him to sneeze. Maybe that's how bad a joke writer I am. <laughs> All right, this is from Malt. Uh, it's because. Plucking stimulates the trigeminal, a facial nerve that branches down to the tip of your nose. Plucking? Plucking. It stimulates the what? Trigeminal. It's a facial nerve that branches down to the tip of your nose. Oh. Okay. What did you do? Uh, the joke police are coming. Oh, boy. <laughs> for, the, All right. for the joke you just made. Dave and Liam, when I was 17 years old, I traveled to New York City and saw a performance by Gigi Allen at a club, called the, a club called the Gas Station, located around 2nd <laughs> Avenue and B. Yeah, in the East Village, Alphabet City, back when it was dangerous. As you may know, Allen passed away the following day. My question for you two, assuming you weren't in attendance on that day in 1993... If you had been there, would you allow Gigi to smear his feces on you? Or would you have fled in terror as I did? Thanks for taking the question. Well, I, I don't know who Gigi Allen. Who's Gigi Allen? Well, first of all, I was about two years old back then, so I couldn't have. Yeah. Uh, but Gigi Allen was a punk rock guy who was a terrible musician, but he did these extreme uh, shows where he would. For instance, take a shit on stage and then scoop it up in his hands and throw it at the audience. Or he would cut himself with a razor and uh, 
bleed all over the audience. Wow. It was kind of like a Gallagher show, but a little funnier. funnier. <laughs> yeah. But you said a little what? Funnier. The other's Gallagher one and Gallagher number two. That's <laughs> you got to know that there's a Gallagher two out there. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, Ron Gallagher. No, no, he uh, Gallagher gave his act to his brother. Ron Gallagher, the actor. Are you being serious? No. No, no. There is Gallagher too. His brother. Uh, Look it up. A, Google. Looks it. Just like him. He looks just like him. Google Gallagher uh, too. So here's the thing. Gallagher was getting so much work at one point that he just couldn't accept like the lower paying gigs. So he would farm those gigs out to his brother Gallagher too, with the with the proviso that he couldn't do the sledgematic routine, like busting watermelons. Yeah. And then Gallagher too figured out that's all people came to see him for. Mm-hmm. So he started busting watermelons anyway. And then uh, Gallagher won. Leo Gallagher ended up suing him. Brother against brother. Brother against brother. Tale as old as time. Yes. A song as old as rhyme. Beauty and the Beast. By the way, Gallagher and I are uh, Facebook friends. Ah, good. All right. This next question comes to us from Senor Brainwash. Senor Balls. Senor Brainwash. He says, I am 30 going on 31 and have yet to have at least one person to call as a significant other. Do you think Democrats will have a brokered convention this summer in Milwaukee? (laughs) He writes, I have to say, Sanier Brainwash has a style. His questions have really taken on their own uh, life. Do you think the Democrats will have a brokered convention this summer in Milwaukee? No, I do not. I think why Bernie, not, David? I think Bernie will uh, walk away with it. Um. Okay. Walk away with what? The nomination for vice president. Certainly, you've come around to Bernie. <laughs> I don't, dude. The guy's. In his 70s and just had a heart attack on the campaign trail. That's not presidential material. All right. This next question comes to us from... the president of AARP, uh, but not the free world. Liam, I'm not going to discuss Bernie with you. I'm just saying, is it like uh, I'm being a little realistic? Liam, you brought a gun <clears throat> to a knife fight. We have a guy in office. I said right you brought now. a gun to a knife fight. You're ill-equipped. I'm extremely well-equipped. All right, I don't want to discuss this with you because you piss off my listeners when you show your your ignorance when it comes to government. I, I just, I just got to say, we have a guy in. Here's actually, here's what I'm going to say. We have a guy in office right now who's trying to start a missile war with the Middle East. And I will literally vote for anybody who gets a Democratic nomination. Suppose it's Rouhani. Suppose the Ayatollah Khamenei. Would you vote for him? (laughs) (laughs) Over Trump? I would really have to think about it. All right. 
No, no, I'm just saying I'm not in the business anymore of tearing down any of the Democratic uh, nominees until one of them gets the primary. Would you vote if for Bernie? Mike, would you vote for Bernie? I would I would vote for Bernie in the general, of course. Okay. Dude, I would vote for Bloomberg in the general. I would vote for a box full of dog turds in the general. And if a box full of dog turds entered strong in the Democratic race right now, I wouldn't sit here and tear it down. You're talking about Buddha Judge. <laughs> All right. This next uh, this uh, this is from I'm just uh, saying I've done a total radical shift on how I talk about the Democrats Democrats publicly after the events of the last week. Do you think we're in danger? Uh, I think that uh, the uh, if the Iranians actually shot that Ukrainian flight with 63 Canadians down, a we're going to lose an ally in Canada pretty fucking quick. And B, that might actually spark a world war where everybody hates being allied with us. How, how do you see? How do you see? I'm just curious because I, I think of you as a typical American. Well, I do. Saying, I, I uh, see you yeah, as your I average. I have a weight problem. I get it. I, I have a weight problem. I get it. I'm no, no, inf- low information voter. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> how I it. see you. Okay, good. Yeah, I know that. You, yeah, you tell me I'm dumb every week, so it's okay. no surprise. I, you, no, you don't, I don't tell you you're dumb every week. <laughs> you you, re, you reveal that you're dumb every week. Um, Emilio, I want you to take your crappy editing skills and put together a David telling me I'm stupid supercut. I have never told you you're stupid. Oh, oh my God. No. <laughs> it's painfully obvious. Telling you you're ill-informed <laughs> is like telling a – all right. So what was your question? You see me as the uh, typical American. You're the typical American voter. You're easily right. frightened. So how scared were you this week? You know, I wasn't scared, but I definitely – I'm concerned. And About, what? Re- About what? About what? About – the possibility that we actually have a guy in office yes. who is willing to assassinate foreign leaders with very little provocation and just to prove that he's the equal to his predecessor who he hates. And and so, so was Soleimani a bad guy? Was Soleimani a bad guy? Soleimani was most definitely a bad person, but you know what? That's not justification for targeting him for assassination. You know and, that. And so, so what happens? So we killed Soleimani. Iran declares war against us. Play it out. Well, uh, then the other... <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you know this. Middle East is a slightly unstable region. I, I know that. So play it out. What and happens? We, Tell me we how it's World War Three. Tell me how it's this scary. Oh, well, first of all, we're already fighting World War Three. Okay, Most sure. people don't. Play it out. Well, the thing is, World War Three is an information war, and we've been losing it for the last four or five years. But everybody is scared. Their head is spinning. It's being, fought on the, it's being fought on the information technology battlefield as we speak, and we're losing handily. 
because we're we're so geared towards typical land, air, and sea wars that when we're attacked with our information superstructure by countries like China and Russia, we're not really prepared for that. Okay, so tell me this worst-case scenario that you envision. Meanwhile, there are kids in cages along the border. About 60,000 Americans die because they're underinsured. Absolutely. But you're afraid now of World War III in Iraq and Iran. Tell me how it plays out. You're right. There's, I should only be concerned by one thing at a time. It's not a whole amalgamation of things. If there, so if there's a war in Iran, you know what? If, if there's a war in Iran, uh, then what happens when uh, the oil-producing nations decide to cut off our supply of oil and create a global recession? Not to mention what happens to America's infrastructure pretty fucking quickly when there's no uh, supply of cheap or any gasoline. I don't know if you remember the energy crisis of the 70s. So that, that's, that's the worst case scenario. That's not the worst case scenario. That's just a part of it. What are you afraid of? I am. <laughs> Other than I'm, just being afraid, because that's how I, dictators become dictators. They just I am. I am concerned that if we start a global war in a region overseas, in an area where we've been fighting nonstop a war for the last 20 years now, yeah. that uh, young people are going to be sent overseas to die. Maybe there'll be some nuclear fucking confrontation. And where, where's this? There. Where's this battle going to take place? Against Iran. I don't know if you've read the book of Revelations, David, mm-hmm. but it's going to take place in Bethlehem, the birthplace of our Lord and Savior, but no, Jesus and ser- Christ. Serious, because a lot of Americans, I've spoken to a lot of people, or in your case, low information voters. You, you haven't left your house in three days because of your cold. That is correct. But it's not because I'm afraid of... To? If, I Yes, there's a little agoraphobia on my part, but I'm posturing here. For my show, uh, right, acting as though I'm not afraid. Right, you're Charles Corral to Man on the Road. Yes. In all seriousness. In what, all seriousness. Being afraid, anxiety, is fear based in unreality. And that's how dictators thrive. Trump succeeded in scaring the crap out of Rachel Maddow and MSNBC and CNN. And it was another shiny object. World War Three where, oh, my God, we've got this crazy madman with his finger on the button and it's going to be Armageddon time. And while we should always be cautious and never trust Trump, this is a ground game. It's a game of inches that will be uh-huh. over November 9th, 2020. Right. And you can't allow yourself to get when to Andrew see- Yang is elected president of the United States. You can't allow yourself to fall prey to his prestidigitation. <laughs> He's using smoke and mirrors and he kills Suleimani. And now we're all focused on that. And it's World War Three and you have to. Be a grinder and fight evil, and by evil I mean the Republican Party, Donald Trump, inch by inch, and Roll not and, and not be hysterical. That oh my hysterical. God, he's going to destroy the world. You're giving him too much power. 
He doesn't. No, no. Climate change is destroying the world. I know. Donald Donald Trump is a bad president. So it is the responsibility of the media not to make the assassination of Soleimani the next big story. It may be. It may be the next big story. Uh huh. But it just may be. You know, they killed the second in command in Iran, and it's not going to trigger the apocalypse. No. The apocalypse is happening anyway, regardless of what happens in the Middle East. All right. All right. We're going to wrap it up. Australia is on fire. That's serious stuff. I'm not afraid of Iran. I'm concerned about what's going on over there. I'm concerned about passenger uh, jets being shot down. I'm terrified of what's happening in Australia and California and all along the western coast. All right. Last question, then we got to wrap it up. Joseph Healy. Oops. Was I allowed to read his name? Hang on. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, Joe. All right. Uh, Now I won't read that question because I said his last name. Billy Brown. Right. Billy in the Brown. Billy in the Brown. And he's at Penn Station. Has David or Liam ever taken Amtrak? What is the furthest distance David or Liam has traveled by car? Thank you, Billy. I love, excuse me, I love Amtrak. Me too. I took Amtrak, uh, I think the longest I've gone didn't on your Amtrak. Mother, didn't your mother once pull a train? I, I think you told me that once. Hello? All right, well, I gotta go. Go ahead. No, no, it's all right. I like Amtrak a lot. Uh, and in fact, did your the, mother the once Am- pull? Did did your mother once pull an Amtrak train? I think you're thinking of the mighty Paul Bunyan. Oh, okay. Go ahead. But I, I will I will say if you if you ever get a chance to take the the Pacific Starliner from L.A. to San Francisco or to Oakland rather, uh, take it. It's twelve hours and you go along the coast and it's beautiful. It is. It's it's fantastic. I don't know how they're able to paint those subway. Walls to make it look <laughs> like it's the great outdoors. Liam McEnany, I look forward to this every week. Me too, man. This was fun. This was great. If you would like to have your questions <clears throat> answered, go to the David Feldman Show website, hit the Ask Me Anything button, and fire away. And uh, leave a voicemail. Call the David Feldman Show hotline and uh, leave us a message. So far, three out of about 62 of your voicemails were usual. <laughs> Call 202-670-2752. That's 202-670-2752. And if you can't remember that number, go to the David Feldman Show website. Go to the Ask Me Anything button, and the number is listed there. Why don't we end with Liam's theme song? Should we do that? Absolutely. Okay. Ah! Ah! No. <laughs> That's not your theme song. Here's the, the, the theme song that was written and produced by Emilio. Thank you. Liam McEnany. He was fucking with cocktail waitresses two at a time. MC capital E N E A N E Y.
<laughs> Is there anything you can do for me, Mike? Sorry, Sal, not this time. Thank you, Liam. Can you stay on the line? I'm staying on the line for okay. your for the ten minutes of apologies. Okay, we're all done. Why okay. did you bring up my girlfriend in Jersey City? I, I does she does she live in Jersey City? You know, I'm pretending like we're oh. we're showing the audience what happens when. God damn it, you idiot! <laughs> the whole idea was we we're going to talk about what happens. <laughs> they ask what when I say stay on the line. What happens? Right. Why did you bring up my my girlfriend in Jersey City? I'm sorry, man. Uh, sorry about the whole... I, I forgot that was supposed to be a secret. I told you that in confidence. I thought when you said in confidence, you meant you were confident the relationship was working. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Stay on the line for one second. All right. I think you covered up that with that joke, so nobody knows that that was true. Right. Okay, good joke. Is it true? Is she in Jersey City? Of course she's in Jersey City, and she orders food from the 3rd <laughs> Avenue Deli. That's costing me a fortune. Is that true? Of course. That's and I hilarious. take Uber Pool, and it takes me three hours to get there. <laughs> and I bought her Chanel and accused her of wearing too much. I don't have to buy her a new bottle before the end of the year. <laughs> Why would you reveal these things about me? <laughs> All right. Stay in line for one second. Sure. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. 